Well, greetings and welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to be here to do this opening ceremony as we start this day with Tara and Rama and the, um, yeah, our galactic beginnings and <laughs> history day. So let's take a few moments to go into that heart space, take a few gentle breaths, breathe into your nose, out through your mouth, go into that heart space. Let go of the dross of the day. And as we gather around with our spirit guides, we also gather around in the circle. So let's do that in that virtual way and 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 invite in all of our spirit guides, our spirit teams, our medicine people, our ancestors, our totems, those who you like to work with. Gather around this council fire. So we, <clears throat> I will call in the all those sacred directions in the Cherokee tradition, and we're going to do that um, with a tone for each direction, and then um, with put. I'm thinking of putting this drum in the background. And just have that, and so you hear the Kimi drum, that linker of worlds. <clears throat> so, all you spirit keepers of the East, come look this way. We could gratitude for this rising sun, this new beginning, for the clarity of mind and that openness of heart to learn and to grow. And we welcome eagle and condor and hawks, you high-flying ones, for your gifts of insight and that ability to look at our lives with a benevolent eye and see that big picture. And we give thanks for this new day, this opportunity for beginner's mind to truly experience the joy and the humbleness of starting anew. And we invite divine masculinity and give thanks for that solar energy and that power of protection. Be with us as we begin this journey. And I want to tone ah for, for purification. This is the tone for the East. And tone with me. Now, in the Cherokee tradition, we go to the north. The tones are all from the um, Navajo or the western bands that go do the directions in the south. My teacher was Cherokee, and he taught me how to go to the north. So let's turn to the north and welcome all the spirit keepers of the north. Mm-hmm. 
and we'll tone at the beginning of the rest of these. So the tone for the north is innocent, and it is the word O. So here, tone with me. All you spirit keepers of the north, come, look this way. Give gratitude for all the ceremonies and teachings that sustain us. We're grateful for all you white-haired ones, elders, carrying on this wisdom, handing it to those who are learning. We give thanks for those white-furred ones, the snowy owl, the hare, the polar bear, who live in the place of the cold, hard truth, teaching us to embrace and be grateful for the truth. Give thanks to you buffalo people for your medicine of abundance. And thank you, tall standing nation, tree people, for your teachings how to stand in our power without breaking the teachings of longevity, endurance. And we are grateful to you, the winds of change, for empowering us. To resist complacency. Wado. And now let's turn to the West. And we will tone E for awareness. E. keepers of the West, come, look this way. Give thanks for Bear, for that medicine of going within, for that healing and discernment. And we give thanks to the big cats, Jaguar, Panther, Cougar, Pashat, for showing us how to live in two worlds, the intangible world, the invisible world, and in the physical world at the same time. And we give thanks for divine feminine, that lunar energy, for your gifts of life, death, rebirth, and that magic place of twilight, that sacred time and place in between. Be with us on our journey. Give us the strength to look deeply within our hearts, welcoming our hurts and our fears to come sit with us in order to be transformed. Give thanks to Otter for your playfulness and your women's medicine. Wado. Let's turn and face the south and tone A for relationship. 
tone with me. All you spirit keepers of the South, come, look this way. We give gratitude for the medicine plants that keep it strong in body and mind. And those magical herbal ones that heal those that body and mind as well. And thank you, Kit Coyote and Rabbit, you tricksters of the South. Remind us to laugh at ourselves. Do not take our ego so seriously and for the balance of irreverence with sacredness. Thanks to Porcupine for your gifts of innocence, trust, and faith in ourselves and in every being of the planetary family. We're so grateful for you, stone people, who carry the library of creation those gems that carry that healing energy for our physical bodies and our mental bodies and our emotional bodies. So thank you for our physical fitness and each body's expression of the divine. Wado. Now let's reach our arms up and Face the above direction, the Sky Nation. All you spirit keepers of the Sky Nation, come, look this way. We give gratitude to you, Starry Medicine Bowl, for the campfires of our ancestors lighting the dark sky. Thank you, Sister Sun and Brother Moon, and you cloud and rain beings, for our lives and for keeping us company on our earth walks. Thank you, Dreamtime, for that ability to travel in our spirit body, to experience our true nature, so we don't forget who we are. Many gratitudes to swan, dolphin, lizard, dragonfly, beautiful guardians and messengers of the Dreamtime. Thank you for joining us here. Waldo. Let us reach down and put our hand on the earth for the below direction. All you spirit keepers of the earth below, come, look this way. Pachamama, Gaia, Mother Earth, thank you for our lives. Thank you, all you children of the earth blanket, you creepy crawlers, you winged ones. Thin ones, the four-legged ones, in the pollinators and regenerators who keep us alive. Many gratitudes for the diversity of life, for that interconnectedness of life, and to that web of life and the equality of each member of the planetary family. Thank you, Mother Earth for teaching us how to take care of you, to honor all life, 
all life forms and to walk gently upon you with our love and respect. We're so grateful for you. Wada. Put our hands on our hearts as we go to the within direction and tone, ooh, and it means for carrying. Spirit keepers within, come look this way. You medicine ancestors, our personal ancestors, thank you for the wise choices you made in your lifetimes to sustain and nurture us, to pass down the wisdom and knowledge so that we can better live our lives as sacred human beings. Thank you to the next seven generations reminding us to make wise choices with intention and respect, to pass down the wisdom gained, and to create beauty and balance upon the earth. Wado. And the home is in all my relations. In Lakesh Alakin. I am another you, and you are another me, so thank you for taking that journey around the wheel, medicine wheel with me, and I'm going to change my hat as we are a listener-supported radio program, as all of us that make it happen here. (laughs) Each week we have expenses with BBS Radio for our broadcast here, and this week we need right away, (laughs) today, to send that in on a timely way, $118. And um, as we do that, then we just need another $316.25 to cover our expenses for this week coming up. So let me show you how to make that donation. Go into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And there on the home page, you'll see the menu selections, the schedule. And as you look at, click on that schedule for BBS Radio Station 2, which is what we're on now. This program is on Radio Station 2. You'll see that listed at the 3.30 hour, at Central Time. And as you click on the icon there for the True History, Hershey, and Sarah and our Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama, that's the program. Click on the icon. That takes you directly to our account where you can make a donation in any amount. So thank you for your generosity and your persistence <laughs> doing that on a regular basis. Lots of gratitude. And we also have two programs on Radio Station 1. So as you click on the the schedule for Radio Station 1, you see on Thursday and Friday at the 8 o'clock hour, on Thursday, a night at the round table with a panel. And then the word night is there with a silent K and an invisible K. But it's there. <laughs> so a night at the round table with the panel. Click on that and make your donation there. 
uh, as you click on that icon, it takes you to that page. And then on the Friday nights, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama, you'll see that listed at the 8 o'clock hour, Central Time. And if you click on that icon, that'll take you to our account as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action and making that donation. We're so grateful. And this is how to make it happen. And we're so grateful for all that BBS Radio does for us and our broadcasts and our archives and just everything they do in general. <laughs> They're awesome. And we're also grateful for all that Tara and Rama do. And so we'd also like to make contributions to their lives as well. And um, and so we make that commitment. So here's how we make a contribution to Tara and Rama. Um, again, go into your heart space and then go to rainbowroundtable.com. And there you can access the PayPal account for Rama. And what we need this week uh, for Tara and Rama is they need $200 for living expenses. They need $400 for bills that are coming in next week. And um, they need another $496 for the ET to pay ET's past due money for the mechanic work he did two months ago. <laughs> so uh on the car so this $400 for that and then it'll cost another close to another $100 to buy a new spare tire so Rama can have peace of mind as he ventures out every day at least 20 miles from his home so we'd like to take care of his peace of mind on that so thank you for your generosity and thank you for your uh attention to this matter as you, as you uh Go to the website and click on the donation. On the menu, you'll see that donate button or link at near the bottom of that list. So that web address again, rainbowroundtable.net, homepage, click on the menu, donate is at the bottom of the list, almost. Click on that, and that takes you to Rama's PayPal account or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. That's the commercial account. And there's a way to access the <clears throat> friends account so that um, you don't have the commercial charges on that. You can do the friends charges. It's much less. And you'll see that when you see that little heart on the page that accesses you to the friends option. And you need to put Rama's email there. At, uh, and that email address is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999-49 at hotmail.com. And then as you do that, uh, you can make that donation that way. And either way is perfect. We're grateful. And as you're making a donation, please let Rama know uh, at this address, Koran, K-O-R-E-N, 999 at net. Let them know what you sent and when you sent it. And uh, there you go. That's how it, how we make it happen. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your generosity and for <clears throat> paying it forward like that, may you be blessed many, many times over in multitudes <laughs> for paying it forward like that. I know you will, and I know you are, so lots of gratitude for all of you. Thank you. Thank you for your good hearts and your attention to this matter. Um, 
And again, they need, yeah, close to 500 for the car, around 400 for bills, 200 for living expenses. So lots of gratitude for your contributions. We're grateful for all that Tyra and Rama do. We're grateful they have all this access to information we can't find anywhere else. Living encyclopedias and plugged in and have <laughs> and and all the time always doing their work. So we're grateful for them and we respect them by helping them out. So what else? Yeah, the physical address if you need it is Rom D Berkowitz R A M D Berkowitz B E R K O W I T Z Post Office Box two eight zero two eighty. And that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. 87567 is a zip. I'll say it again. Santa Cruz, New Mexico. Zip code 87567. There you have it. All the information. So much gratitude for all of you. 13 thank yous, honey in the heart. Long life, no evil. And I'm passing this talking stick. And what's this? Oh my gosh, it's, it's right. It's Earth Day. It's an Earth Day talking stick. So it it has every critter on it. It has every Earth being there, every every uh, Earth family there. The the uh, winged ones and the finned ones and the crawlies are all over it. And all those, yeah. So those. <laughs> those earth ones, those those winged ones. There's lots of feathers and lots of fairies. Those elementals are all there, and the elementals keep it all together. So, so much gratitude and happy Earth Day to everyone. And greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. It's full of the Earth blanket. Greetings. Greetings, everybody. Thank you, Carol or Rainbird. <laughs> Carolyn Rainbird. Caroline. Greetings. And there's Rama. All right. All right. So I I think I can safely say that the energies you might feel like you're floating. Is that a good description? Yeah, my head generally feels like a balloon, yeah. I'm, but that, that, that's a little bit... Yeah. Uh, that's a little bit much. Mm-hmm. If everybody's head felt like a balloon, we'd be in trouble. Yes. <laughs> Is your head better now? It's getting there. (laughs) I could just say there are monster solar flares going on and a halo mass coronal ejections. And Tom and Sweet Angelique are just saying things are rolling in across the galactic plane. And to stay in the high energies, and we're coming to the end of Eid, this celebration, and the end of Ramadan, and... Well, I think it ended 
last night. Yeah. Well, it went through last night into the after midnight into the morning. Yes. Yeah. So what does that symbolize? I mean, I I gotta go print something out and talk about it. Well, that would be good. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it has to do with the end of end of Ramadan. Yeah, Ramadan. I know that that they have this practice. They fast all day, and then they go and have dinner with their families. But it starts like at 10 o'clock at night. They go through there to midnight or something. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's, that's what they've been doing for thousands of years. Yeah. And it's a sacred path that unites the Arab world, you might say. Yes. And so, um, there's a link there because Walking the sacred path is a good thing, and there's a good connecting link there. And as we call in our higher selves, we can find harmonics between peoples, and we can feel that and and express it in the form of linking in unity consciousness with love. And since that's all there is, then we're there. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, we were thinking of some friends of ours, Starseed and her mom, Patty. I'm just saying that this... Uh, let's blaze the violet fire and send good vibrations there. There's a, a situation where the, the government, you know, the places to stay for an older person that needs care. There's, uh, I would just say, challenges. And we can help people. There's an opportunity, it's at the end of our request for assistance, which you can find on our website. Yes. And connect and link there and read about it. And I'm just going to say, you know, you can, you know, you could email Rama and Rama can connect you. Micah's really good at this. I don't want to overdo it with him, but... Um, he walked us through it, and the opportunity is quite good, and I would consider it as a means for, for instance, for Starseed to help her mother and to insist on her being in a place. Evidently, the places available are day and night. You know, if you've got a good amount of money, then you get to go there. If you don't have money, then you get to go, and it's not a place to go. And so, and in the meantime, there was an example of a young man that was eaten alive in a prison cell in Florida. I think it was ordered to be shut down, and they 
were also ordered to build a new place. But uh, this is like the the end of the end of the end times where this horrify, horrifying situation is going on in so many areas and it's not okay anymore. Out of sight, out of mind is not an answer. So let's just put it that way. So what do we want to do? Oh, okay. I'm going to play Greg Pallast first uh, with Tom Hartman and... It will speak for us itself. Greg is so articulate. And so I'm just going to start. Let's do that. Okay, just turn the sound up here. All right. Senator Bernie Sanders on the line with us. He's the chair of the Oh, no, I got the wrong one. Ay, ay, ay. Okay, just a moment, Tito. We did that last night. Just go right back to the neighborhood. Oh, there we go. Okay. Almost there now. Oh. George's vote suppression hitman. Uh, his website, Greg Palace, P A L A S T dot com. Uh, Twitter, Greg underscore Palace. Greg, welcome back to the program. Uh, Dominion just uh, settled with Fox yesterday for three quarters of a billion dollars. Fox essentially admitting that they've been lying about the Dominion voting machine stealing votes. Um, this is a, there's a larger issue here though, and that is. You know, number one, I suppose the privatization of our vote. You know, uh, why do we have private corporations counting our votes to begin with? If we're going to use voting machines, shouldn't the government buy them and, you know, program them? Uh, because all of the software is not open source. None of it is open source. Nobody knows what's in the software. Although, you know, apparently everything is hunky-dory and copacetic. But why is this not owned by the government? And, and number two, you know, uh, this whole long history, I mean, you know, back uh, when Bush was, uh, you know, took the election in 2000, there were there were a lot of us, I was included in that, who were concerned that maybe the voting machines were a little hinky or at the very least that in the 2004 election that uh, in Ohio, you know, the uh, Ohio Secretary of State's office shut down and they had to reload the votes from a server in, in Kentucky, I think, or something like that. Or am I completely wrong on all of that? You're completely right and completely wrong. Cool. Uh, so that's number one. <laughs> okay, uh... Uh, I, you want the government to control it? You mean DeSantis and Kemp and Trump? Uh, I would like the software to be open source. Yes, whether whether the government mandates it or whether the government owns it and it's open source because of Freedom of Information Act laws, I would like to get the software to be open source. I would like not to depend on software whatsoever. And that's why in Los Angeles we have a system that was created by the Venezuelan government. Uh, it's by a group called the Smartmatic. What it does is it prints, you, you make your choice on a screen, it prints the ballots, it doesn't tabulate the ballots in a computer. You look at your paper ballot, you say, okay, I'll put it, put it in the scanner, and then it goes to the lockbox, and you can recount that you got paper. You don't have to trust anyone. 
And that's what we should have, a, no, a system where we don't have to work on trust. You know, we have your right to be suspicious because for a couple decades we had something called push and pray machines. You stick your finger on a candidate's name on a computer screen and you pray that they count that vote. But now, because there's been great activists like Bob Petrakis and Harvey Wasserman, we've gotten rid of push and pray. But what we have to now let go is this idea that they're still hacking these computers, that is, that someone is going in from a cave and manipulating the software and flipping your vote. That's over with. And now Fox is paying three-quarters of a billion. That's just the beginning because Spartmatic. Uh, remember, they've accused uh, Fox, uh, uh, Lou Dobbs on Fox and, and the rest of his gang, accused Hugo Chavez of fixing the election to defeat uh, Trump's re-election. Uh, Chavez has passed away a long time ago. And, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a canard that we on the left kind of began generating from our suspicions, legitimate suspicions. But now, as I've warned, uh, the Fox crowd, the MAGA, the maggots have picked up with Donald Trump this idea that we started. We fixed that problem. What we have to now do is look at the real problems with voting, which is vote suppression. Locking off the lockboxes, stopping souls from the polls, mainly black souls from voting early and on Sundays before the election. These are the things, the massive purges that Brian Kemp has engineered, Chris Kobach of Kansas, interstate cross-check, these types of purges, which affect mostly people of color. We have to switch our attention to that and not get go down the foxhole of some guy in a cave manipulating the software and flipping our votes. We had good reasons to, to mistrust that system, but now Fox has grabbed it once it's been proved that that no longer is our problem. Our problem is the attack on the right of people of color to vote on a massive scale, and that's where we have to put our focus now. Yeah, and, and, and this is... This is really a substantial issue. I mean, the, yeah. the, uh, the Supreme Court in 2018 legalized purging people from the voting rolls with uh, very few criteria uh, right. in that Ohio case. And, and, you know, Mike DeWine is purging people in, in mostly in the cities that have large black populations in Ohio. Uh, it's happening in, in Republican-controlled states all across the nation. He saw a massive drop-off in black voters uh, in Florida in the last election, uh, you know, whether that was the result of voter purges or whether that was the result of uh, Ron DeSantis parading, uh, you know, a, a dozen black intimidation cameras right in, in handcuffs because they, they voted as felons is, is uh, still something that they're debating down in Florida. But but uh, and for example, you mentioned in your uh, in your op ed today um, that yeah, GregPalace.com. Yeah, yeah GregPalace.com. Indeed. Um, that that uh, in in Detroit, which went for Donald Trump uh, by what something like ten thousand votes, there was something like, there were, there was a whole pile of votes in Detroit that didn't get counted, and it wasn't just the voting machines. Tell us about that. Well, what happened was this is important to understand the issues that affect voters of color, which a lot of which the media uh, ignores, and frankly, a lot of people on the left. So in 2016, Donald Trump supposedly won Michigan by about 10,700 votes. Uh, at the same time, ready for this, 75,355 ballots, seven times Trump's margin, were never counted. Why? Because the it's all paper ballots there. So it wasn't about computer manipulation. However... All those ballots were supposed to be put into scanners in Detroit, 
The scanners broke down en masse, so 75,355 ballots were never counted. And by the way, so Hillary, if those ballots were counted, would have won Michigan, and maybe that would have uh, the other two states. But what happened was is that uh, Jill Stein paid for a so-called recount. It wasn't a recount, Tom. It was a counting of those ballots in Detroit. And who cast those ballots in Detroit? It was accounting for the first time of those ballots in Detroit. Trump was able to go into court, stop the ballot count, and therefore, um, that uh, there's no other way to put it. Michigan was stolen from Hillary Clinton by those machines. Now, how did that happen? Are, are the black managers of, uh, you know, it's a black government in Detroit. Why are they knocking out black voters? No, no, no. They warned the state, the city, uh, the city clerk said, our machines can't handle this race. They're broken. Our votes won't get counted. And guess what? Rick Schneider, who's the, uh, who was the Republican governor, said, well, you don't have the money, Detroit. We ain't giving it to you. So they knew that black votes would not be counted, and 75,000 black votes were not counted in Michigan. This is a continuing problem. It's not about some guy in a cave, you know, playing with the software, flipping a switch. So let's be careful about that. What it is, though, is systemic racism in the voting process from purges to bad machines. You know, in the barrios and ghettos, we get the worst hospitals, the worst police, the worst schools, and the worst voting machines. And when I say voting machines, things, simple things like scanners. In Florida, back in 2000, it wasn't someone flipping the, the votes. Most of those ballots were paper. You had... Things like uh, in Gadsden County, the blackest of, uh, of Georgia, excuse me, of Florida's 67 counties, over 700 votes were disqualified because people put a check mark next to Al Gore's name, and then it said write-in candidate, and they wrote in Al Gore because that's what it said. A hyphen was missing. It's a minor thing, except that 700 black votes were thrown away. Which would have given Florida to Al Gore. And, and the presidency. Yeah, exactly. Al Gore. And so... But in the white counties, you had scanners in each county in the white counties like Sarasota and Tallahassee. And if you made a mistake like that, because the ballot was misprinted, the ballot came back to you and you were given a fresh new ballot and told how to correct it. This is the apartheid in American voting. And we have to deal with this. And a lot of my friends on the left, and I hate to say this, it's an apartheid within our own voting rights movement where a lot of uh, the people that are talking about flipping votes and, uh, you know, software and, and that type of manipulation. Uh, those are mainly my white colleagues. <laughs> I'm one. Uh, and whereas uh, the African-American and other uh, leaders in, of voters of color are talking about vote suppression. Right. And it's impossible because, like, and the problem we run into now is that if you bring up vote suppression, like, for example, um, the canard that, uh, we had a, a record turnout in Georgia, and, and Brian Kent was praised for not uh, attacking the black vote in this last election where he was, uh, where um, uh, Reverend Warnock was running for re-election. That's not true. There was a drop of one million votes, one million votes in the Senate runoff because they crushed the early voting period, the souls to the polls period, from uh, 60 days to seven. And then they also cut off, uh, basically removed almost every drop box. They removed um, 75% of the drop boxes in Atlanta while increasing in the white counties, increasing the number of drop boxes. So you end up with a problem that the media won't look at 
and I really need my fellow uh, voting rights advocates uh, of a pale face uh, race to please pay attention to the issue of vote suppression. Otherwise, we're going to be put in the foxhole conspiracy group with um, uh, Barty Romo and the rest of the, uh, the games. Yeah, I get it. And it seems to me, Greg, that the solution to all of this, a very simple, straightforward solution, is uh, to pass legislation, which was, by the way, included in the For the People Act that every single Republican in the Senate blocked, and then Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, the problem solvers, uh, refused to go along with, uh, you know, blowing up the filibuster to pass this thing. But the For the People Act explicitly said the people of America have a right to vote. And if you have a right to vote, then when Brian Kemp tries to do this stuff or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all these, all these examples you've given, um, they have to prove why they have to, why they should have the ability to violate that right. Whereas right now they don't have to prove that. There's no, there's no affirmative right to vote recognized in the United States. In fact, in, in Bush v. Gore, uh, William Rehnquist wrote, there is no right to vote for president of the United States. And that is a verbatim quote from the, from the, uh, from the ruling. So, uh, you know, it seems to me like that's the solution. Well, as you know, uh, you're a student of the Constitution. John Quincy Adams said that there's no more dangerous, uh, dangerous system than democracy. So there's a reason why that the right to vote was left out of the Constitution. It was deliberate. So the riffraff, like us, don't get to vote. And certainly, uh, people of a certain color would not get to vote. Right. But now we have to take this country back in, in that sense. But it's very important that we stop peddling this idea that there's a guy in a cave flipping our votes. Yeah. Let's talk about vote suppression. Yeah, no, I get it. Greg Palace, the great Greg Palace, gregpalace.com. Ooh. Thanks, Greg. You're welcome. Great talking with you. We'll be back. Uh, who are the Republican parties asking for to report on divisiveness in schools and also my thoughts on Dominion? Stay tuned. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be right back. It's uh, your media support group for We the People. Okay. So now you want to introduce what we're going to play, Rama. Oh, I have it, don't I? Yeah. Okay, I will read this before we start. This is, this is, this is really, this is the work. <laughs> this is the work. So let's do it collectively in mind and heart. So this is called, this is called The Lost Art of Sacred Union by Michaela Sheldon and Ethan Fox. And it's called Channeled Revelations. In the episode of Channeled Revelations, Michaela channels on the divine feminine and masculine and opens the vaults of knowledge on sacred sexuality. We learn about the divine masculine and feminine ideals in a modern day context the thresholds of masculine and feminine expression and how to return to an ideal masculine and feminine state of being. The guides discuss the malevolent influences that are altering our genetic blueprint and how that has led to a world of extremes. Further discussions center around Akhenaten and Nefertiti 
and how the ancients expressed divine feminine and masculine differently in their leadership of others than world leaders today. Ethan and the guides also discussed Tantra, how it was practiced in ancient times, and how it differs today. Additional topics include the role that honeycomb played in the tantric, in the tantric practice in ancient times, the benefits of a practice for couples, as well as the impact on health and lifespan. The conversation ends with a discussion of how to practice independently for those who are not currently in a loving relationship about Michaela Sheldon. uh, Michaela is an intuitive channel, executive director of the Flower of Life Institute and marketing director of the Awake and Empowered Expo. During a struggle to overcome chronic pain, Michaela experienced a shift of awakening. Discovering her intuitive gifts, and launching a healing process. She left behind her role as a marketing consultant. And and so, oh, and soccer mom, to step fully onto her soul's path as an intuitive channel. Michaela has the ability to channel a variety of multidimensional, extraterrestrial, and angelic beings to answer questions about our history, current challenges, and where we are headed in the future. She joins Ethan each month to Awake and Empowered TV transformational experience to bring universal channeled messages to the listening audience. Through her transformational experience, Michaela has come to understand that her channeled messages are vibrational in nature, energetically uplifting and healing those who hear them and allowing lightworkers to firmly step onto their soul's path and serve as a human conduit for healing energies. By tuning in each week, listeners will gain inspiration and tools to maintain and raise their vibration, as well as heal and open their energy field by directly connecting with the consciousness of multidimensional beings who are here to support our evolution. She has experienced astoundingly accurate results. She often receives visions of significant past life experiences and describes how they are impacting a client's present journey. And so it is. Uh, expatia, expats, epitia book, an inner circle community. Mm. All right, Rama's ready, right? Mm-hmm. How long is this again? Hour 58 minutes. All right, let's do it. Oh. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Awaken Empowered TV. I'm Ethan Fox, and I'm here with Michaela Sheldon. And today we're going to be doing another episode where we're doing some channeled questions to uncover some of the mysteries of uh, of our ancient lineage and also putting that in the context of the modern world and what's going on today so that we can uh, sort of incorporate some of these ancient uh, teachings and wisdom and actual techniques into our modern society that we live in now. Um, so uh, for these channeling uh, shows, uh, I don't discuss with Michaela ahead of time what my questions are, so she can be completely out of the uh, loop as far as I don't want her to have any biases or any thoughts in her mind about anything we're going to be talking about. Of course, she is a trans channel, uh, and because of that, uh, the information that or what she's channeling, her mind doesn't interfere with it. But but just to be extra careful and extra sure, I prefer not to discuss these. So these are completely fresh uh, questions that um, she has not heard. So um, so we're going to get right into it now and uh, move on to this subject. Uh, so whenever you're ready. Um, last time we talked a bit about um, uh, Tantra and relationships and things like that. And I wanted to delve more deeply into into that. And in particular, this time, talk a bit about the divine masculine and feminine. But I want to start with a general understanding in the context also of what's taking place in the world today. And then by the end of our conversation, go back around to ancient wisdom and teachings and uh, and how we can apply them. So to to begin, I want to understand in a modern uh, context, uh, how, as far as the ancient teachings would, would apply today, how would we perceive a divine masculine or a divine feminine person? Like, what are the characteristics, uh, if if there are even any? For example, is divine feminine characteristically what we think of as feminine? You know, women who um, are more nurturing and warm and caring and mothering, uh, and maybe even um, dress in a in a more feminine female way as we stereotypically know of it today, anyway. Um, and characteristically in our society, women uh, who are more feminine tend to have longer hair, where men don't characteristically have that. Uh, so there are certain physical qualities, and of course. Uh, hormonal uh, differences as well that we notice today. Um, and men, characteristically, as we know of it today, uh, what we think of as a, a male man is more masculine, uh, tend to be more physical, maybe more analytical, um, and more of that strong father figure versus the nurturing feminine side. And And men in our society, on the whole, certainly not all, tend to have shorter hair, although I know in Native traditions, men had longer hair as well. But I'm trying to understand what does what does the divine masculine and feminine look like in day-to-day life if we were to apply it and if we were to aspire to those characteristics today? Well, this is an interesting and multi-layered question, and we are the Pleiadians, and we're so pleased to bring our insights into this discussion because there are so many ways to look at these ideals of, of masculine and feminine. Of course, if we are taking this to the highest level, 
every being is a creator and as such must contain both the masculine and feminine in in some semblance of division not necessarily to associate with it as a a character or or as a soul playing out a story but in order to fulfill a destiny because masculine and feminine energies they have their origins uh, within the cosmos and and we are speaking here of course in in terms that are understandable by all of those who are watching because we know there are varying religious beliefs that must be accounted for when we are referring to the prime creator uh, which is known as god in, in some circles so if we bring this into a more physical uh, manifestation or, or discussion uh, as you are requiring of us. We would say that there's a huge difference between the masculine and feminine definition as it is coined in biology uh, and the masculine and feminine that has evolved through a certain lineage or ancestry. And, and both must be accounted for and certainly apply because on, on every planet in, in every star system throughout history, masculine and feminine exist. It, it simply exists through an evolutionary process and, and has become something uh, well-defined and understood. So what you are uh, explaining to us in terms of the more uh, feminine and, and softer qualities, nurturing, for example, and, and the more masculine and, and protective qualities of a man, these have become more associated with on Earth uh, than they have been in other star systems. And and we can go back to ancient civilizations and say that in, in native tribes, even uh, these positions were revered, but for, for very different reasons than they are today. So, so, so let's first take the roles uh, of masculine and feminine, and then we'll speak a bit to the biology and the chemistry and the makeup as you have um, requested. What we notice about communal uh, gatherings, uh, whether they be tribal in nature or, or even more cosmic or, or futuristic, is this. It is natural for beings to take on certain roles that they are predisposed to fulfilling, whether that is nurturing young children or, or teaching them in some way, uh, or whether it's tending to the earth and, and building shelter, uh, even hunting and gathering for the tribe. There's a certain makeup that exists within the genetics of humans that, that predispose them to these activities. And that predisposition we think is sometimes looked at and, and categorized in a very negative way. Uh, yet we think it's such a, a positive part of, of who you are and, and who you've become from the very beginning of time. Uh, the seeding of humanity, for example, and, and all of the multidimensional genetics that you have enhances uh, these roles as they have been uh, uh, playing out throughout time. However, we do note that the masculine and feminine balance and, and chemistry within each individual has to take on a, a certain dominance uh, in order to fulfill these roles. And, and this is why you may notice the difference uh, in, in uh, structure uh, 
or in in um, uh, the the natural again predisposition to to love and nurture and to care. It is not exclusive to the feminine or to the masculine, but but certainly uh, souls choose these um, um, biologic um, characteristics, in other words, because they somehow suit a part of the plan that, that they have already orchestrated, meaning uh, women may come to the earth and, and already have chosen a role uh, in mothering. And while that doesn't take away their desire to do other things, that is something that is so important to the evolution of humanity that it's revered from the heavens. But what we've noticed throughout time, um, and, and, and we could go so long and so far into this topic that it could take up uh, the entire period of time that we are spending together, is this. There has been so many different malevolent influences uh, and forces that is affecting this natural evolution that sometimes uh, it's very hard for souls to to truly fall into with with great ease the choices that they have made. Uh, in other words, the the homeostasis within a feminine or a masculine being is very easily found if there's no resistance to that choice. But once resistance has been implanted in the mind or or perhaps um, certain toxins have entered the body or there's been programming from, from outside of the self, um, these very uh, um, subtle and, and we might say even profound um, balances of masculine and feminine become slighted. And, and this is what you are witnessing right now to, to, to a certain degree. Um, genetics have been such a huge focus on planet Earth for such a very long time. And, and in fact, we could say this history comes from the cosmos. We revere our genetics in, in Pleiades as many other races and star systems revere their own because genetics, they're everything. <laughs> There's such a, a beautiful and, and um, delicate interplay between our genetics and, and everything that we become, uh, either physically or non-physically or, or both. So for anyone to have access to our genetic template and to somehow attempt to skew it is to weaken our lineage. And this is what we fear has happened. So it isn't necessarily important, we think, that a divine feminine or a divine masculine being has to fall into a very narrow definition or, or range of what that is. But there are some things that will come natural to them that are so ingrained in these predestined choices that if it is resisted, can take a soul off of its true path. So, okay, so based on that, what you're saying is, I'm just going to paraphrase from my own my own words so that you can tell me if I'm on the right track and continue from there. So what you're saying is that our genetic predisposition as masculine or feminine, in divine masculine or feminine, does tend to, 
direct us towards certain activities. And and if that's if I'm understanding correctly, so for example, men might be hunters, um, and women may be the ones who prepare the food in in some tribes uh, in older in more ancient and maybe even some indigenous tribes today on the planet. Uh, and in even in Western society until fairly recently, um, those roles are similar. Uh, maybe prior to the 1970s in, in the United States, as an example, uh, that was more characteristically, characteristically true, uh, where women prepared the food and they took care of the children. So they were mostly homemakers and men typically went away to work. Um, so if I'm understanding correctly, you're saying that our genetic predisposition toward masculine or feminine would lead us into preferences for those types of lifestyles or um, uh, ways of living or choosing. We agree. Uh, You're clarifying what we have stated well, yet we want to make the topic a bit broader in terms of these roles. Uh, and we know you are generalizing here, of course, because for us to say that every divine feminine being comes to nurture children and feed children would be an, an overarching definition that would not account for, for many different deviations of this, of course, because some women come not to certainly give birth to children, but are here to birth other things and to become nurturers of uh, the earth and, and caretakers um, of, of the the sick. So we can't say in every situation uh, that we can clarify so rigidly, yet we, we agree with the premise of what you are stating. Okay, so, um, the, so the premise being the idea of those characteristics, such as you mentioned, nurturing. So it may not be children necessarily, um, but maybe maybe a woman or a divine feminine woman may decide to be a school teacher or something else of that nature. Whereas for, for example, if we reverse the roles, if a divine masculine were to um, become the nurturing parent or, um, or take on a more traditionally female role, is that still divine masculine? Let's explain this from a different viewpoint, um, and, and then we'll answer your question, because we want to talk a little bit more about the makeup as we see it, uh, divine masculine and feminine, how it plays out through, through a soul structure. Uh, and, and, and let's speak in terms of, of physicality. So uh, every soul that comes to be human uh, has a, a mind, uh, a body, uh, emotions as well as a spirit. And, and while all of these things are, are accessed and utilized, what we tend to notice is divine masculine are, are beings are more available to working well within the physical and mental constructs of their energy body. And, and that isn't wrong necessarily. In fact, a divine masculine being can be an incredible teacher by channeling these important insights and and aspects of self and and using them as a tool uh, to offer to others. And and in the same way, uh, divine feminine, we believe, is more 
accessible to the emotional body uh, as well as the sensitivities of spirit. And, and because of this, can certainly be more nurturing and, and available to those areas, but can become uh, a teacher in this way. So it isn't necessarily the roles, again, that we want to focus on uh, so much as how those roles are addressed differently uh, in terms of these different energies, if that makes sense. All right. Yeah, I, I do. I do understand the direction you're going. So essentially, we're going to talk about the roles necessarily, but the way that the the individual exercises those roles. So, for example, divine masculine, I think you said was more technical or more, um, um, what was it, uh, thought oriented or logical or something like that, right? So, for example, a divine masculine who is a teacher might be, would we say a physics teacher or an engineering teacher or maybe a shop teacher or something like that? Possibly, but there are other interests, of course, that a divine masculine being could pursue. But, but let's put this back into the family unit and, and, and the tribe, uh, if you will. Uh, a divine masculine being having such incredible access to uh, a mental processing and a physical processing that a, a divine feminine being doesn't uh, can utilize those gifts and talents to ensure that uh, the, the, the thought process that goes into something is complete, uh, that the physical nature of what must be done is, is handled. There's a, a certain, um, we'll say, reliance on that that the divine feminine has that makes her role in accessing what she has available to her easier, in other words, and, and to apply it even wider. So if a masculine and a feminine being are working together and they're truly um, working within their strong suits of energy, they are going to complement each other in, in the most perfect way and, and in doing so, complete the whole. So, so again, we want to take this out of the realm of, of a teacher having to teach a certain subject because we know that there are certain divine masculine beings who are very adept at art. Um, they are channeling their divine feminine self, uh, which has been rare oftentimes throughout history, and bringing it to the surface in a different way. So there, there are varying degrees of this that we don't think are necessarily wrong, but when those degrees become far too intensified or, or far too out of balance, that's where we begin to see, um, we could say some inauthenticity going on in the genetics. So you said divine masculine is is more physical. So is that why characteristically in uh, tribal societies as well as in, in um, Western societies today, men tend to gravitate toward more physical activities, for example, hunting uh, for food, for example, and, and why men tend to have a, a more muscular physiology uh, characteristically, um, and um, when you said um, intellect or something like that, I forget the word to use exactly. But so we tend to, or uh, divine masculine tends to have more talents in, or they process their environment through those avenues. 
We like what you're saying here. The the processing is key, but but also uh, a soul's energetic signature, uh, let's say, is made up of several things. First, the masculine and feminine balance, and, and that is going to determine uh, which areas they process through. But but in addition to that, there are a variety of opportunities we might say for a soul throughout its entire life to explore uh, the the masculine or feminine that isn't their true nature. And and this, I think, is just as important um, uh, as anything else, because in, in a spiritual sense, what you're noticing on planet Earth is, is the awakening of the masculine through its more feminine sense. And, and this isn't necessarily wrong, but if it is chosen uh, as the dominant part of the self could take a soul off its path. Okay, so to put that in the context of what's going on in the world today, um, well, first of all, before we get to that, are there any limitations that the divine masculine has that would limit it in terms of things or way, ways that it can process its environment or experience um, that the feminine does very naturally and vice versa? Does the divine feminine have any limitations beyond which uh, that are more masculine that the masculine can do very easily? We don't want to use the word limitation, but but we'll say there's a threshold uh, where the divine masculine, for example, being uh, more predisposed to to the mind and the physical body, uh, is is truly able to offer something very unique through those parts of self, and while it can explore. Uh, it, it's feminine components, and, and we think that's an amazing thing to do. It would never become fully the feminine being that uh, a true divine feminine soul is. And, and this is why the biochemistry and all of the, the sensory outlets in, in a feminine being work completely differently than that of a masculine we're not saying here that the sensory system of a masculine being is weaker. But what we are saying is it isn't its first instinct to work with because in ancient civilizations, there was a reliance on the, the, the grandmothers and the wisdom keepers and the oracles and the, and the, the matrons who would come in and, and support the men in the tribe with, channeled information with um, instincts and intuition. It's not to say that the hunters and gatherers did not also learn that, but they learned it in such a physical way, as you could imagine. Uh, the hunter and gatherer would begin to feel the, the senses of the skin, uh, the, the changes in, in wind and, and the, the speed that a bypassing animal might be picking up as it senses danger. Uh, these are the subtle intricacies where perhaps a more masculine being would be using its body and, and its outer senses versus a, a feminine soul using the, the inner uh, psychic abilities and, and intuition. So the instincts work a bit differently 
biologically and biochemically uh, for a purpose. Uh, it isn't to say one is, is better or worse. And they could be adapted in, in both masculine and feminine to a certain level. But our question is, why would you choose to do this when, when you have come with such uh, an ingrained strength uh, to, to work with? To try to change that ingrained strength or to work against it is why we see so many on planet Earth suffering today. All right. Well, on that on that uh, topic, um, as I mentioned earlier, part of the 1970s in the United States, and, and I don't know if this is true globally, but actually it's not true in all areas exactly the same timing. But we'll use this as a uh, as a conversation topic. Uh, but prior to the 1970s, um, we had more female-male roles in society that were much more defined than they are today. But since then, with the, uh, for example, in the 1970s, the women's liberation movement, and we've come now to modern times where um, currently we have um, a trans movement, non-binary, LGBTQ, etc., um, all those uh, further steps in a, in a direction where the lines between male and female are becoming blurred. Is there a particular, are, would that, is that a good thing that we're exploring those uh, experiences or is that taking us farther away from, uh, I mean, for example, you were saying sometimes it's okay for divine masculine to explore some feminine qualities, but beyond a certain point, it becomes detrimental. Um, have we reached that point or or is all of what's taking place in the planet today an essential part of that journey to becoming more perfect uh, divine masculine and feminine beings? Well, in our viewpoint, everything has its purpose, meaning there will be times on any planet and within any race uh, where extremes are, are gone to. In order to explore uh, themes like masculine and, and feminine and how they have been defined throughout history such that they can evolve uh, and become something better. But there's always an underlying factor that, that we must account for. And this is focused solely on planet Earth because we know this is where you reside and, and what you are uh, most interested in. There have been so many malevolent influences throughout history that have been focused on eroding your genetics, that many of the, the patterns and the belief systems and, and the implants that are coming to the planet today in, in terms of certain storylines and characters that humans must adopt are very uh, outside of the realm of your true um, blueprint uh, or divine plan. So, so we want to go back perhaps to something that we've stated previously and often in these discussions. There are always going to be periods where the pendulum will swing to one side. And that is because it has been on the other side for so long that a race wants to explore the, the difference in, in what it has been living contrast uh, abounds and that contrast gives us not only um, something to navigate our personal reality but also a premise 
for evolution. But never have we seen such extremity uh, having stayed in for such a long period of time. And this could only be because there are hierarchical forces at work or um, we might say from a, a, a numbers standpoint or a, a population perspective, this many people choosing to not associate with a certain gender. And we don't believe it's wrong. Again, necessarily, we think everything can be extremely helpful and purposeful in self-realization and, and a soul becoming something that it is meant to always become. So, so we might add that there are souls right now on planet Earth who are predestined to experience exactly what you are asking us about, even though it seems um, outside of what you might expect for a human race. And that is taking humanity in a specific direction. Even in families, some of these souls have been born to, to parents and, and entire lineages to, to show up and challenge certain ideals. Now, you mentioned to us uh, the 1970s and, and, and feminism uh, movements and things like this. And, and when we speak of malevolent force and, and we speak of um, programming, this is exactly what we are talking about. It is not to say that uh, a divine feminine soul choosing to live in a certain way beyond what it has been taught is wrong. But to train an entire population uh, in the rhetoric that, that we have observed is not natural. And, and we think it's taken way too many souls off their, their, their path uh, beyond what they are meant to experience. Now, the movement in the 1970s, feminism was orchestrated behind the scenes by the U.S. CIA organization. So it seems like, so what you're referring to is that there are these different institutions or hierarchical structures in our society today in the world who are essentially orchestrating these movements and 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 hold and bringing them to an extreme uh, and holding them to that extreme longer than it should be. And it, we can use a brilliant analogy here that we think many would understand. Uh, when you are planting a seed, as long as that seed is pure. Uh, and organic, organic and, and receives uh, the natural resource that it needs, it, it will grow to be whatever it is meant to be, and, and it will serve many people. But on the planet today, many of your seeds have been changed genetically. And those genetic seeds are in very sterile environments, and, and they are receiving the same thing to become exactly what someone wants it to be. And this is what we see happening in humans, unfortunately. If a seed is left to itself and in a natural and organic environment, blossoms to prefer to become more heavily focused in masculine and feminine, then it is most likely on track of its divine plan. But if a, a program or um, uh, an, an, an inorganic structure has been changed or, or placed within that seed, we might say, uh, it's going to blossom to become something that it was never meant to be. 
something that might be exactly the same as everything else. And, and this is the um, concern, we'll say, that we have uh, when you're mentioning organizations like this and some of their messaging. Uh, it is like planting something in the seed of the mind that, that blossoms a soul away from its true path. So today we have a lot a lot of messaging that's going around um, to what appears to be to feminize the masculine more. Uh, for example, uh, a lot of messaging to not eat meat anymore, which typically men tend to like to eat meat. Uh, and also, for example, like uh, testosterone is being called a poison these days. So although... I realize that testosterone isn't what makes man man or uh, divine masculine masculine, but but uh, but these messaging, these different kinds of messages are starting to become very dominant in society today. Uh, is that all part of that same taking us off track to go to one extreme? What you must uncover is the the foundational purpose behind all of these messages and and the the actions that are also accompanying them. Um, and, and with great respect for those who might hear this and, and feel a sense of fear, uh, it is never our intention to highlight something uh, that would cause harm to a soul's vibration. Yet we would be remiss if we were not to acknowledge that there is a group of hybrid humans on planet Earth with a malevolent focus to both change the human genetic to weaken the potential of humans to make certain decisions or to be in uh, power or, or a sense of sovereignty uh, and also to lower the population to a degree where it is more manageable to control. These two foundational reasons uh, will be seen or, or can be uncovered in, in every one of the agendas that we see playing out on, on planet Earth today. So what you're saying is the, all these different messages and also the various um, movements toward feminizing men and making uh, women more masculine are to disempower society and make them weaker. More, more easy to control. Well, there is an energetic standpoint to this that, that must also be understood. We've talked a great deal here about the chemistry and, and the biology, but from an energetic standpoint, masculine and feminine, uh, these energies are not just creative in nature. They are restorative and they are strengthening. They can also be healing. So if a divine masculine being believes that it must focus only in feminine and a feminine being must focus only in masculine, they are working with somewhat a, a, a weaker component of their own energy field and in doing so is not able to, to show up and provide uh, this energetic exchange that we speak of. Uh, you said you mentioned that um, if a being or a human or soul comes into a physical body with a certain structure, 
there are certain tendencies that you naturally will be drawn toward in life. So is it reasonable to assume then that if these different um, interferences had not occurred in our society, that uh, human beings who were born into a female body would uh, always, or at least most of the time, gravitate toward more of the uh, divine feminine characteristics that we already discussed, for example, intuition and feeling and emotion versus uh, someone born into a male body would almost always, if not always, gravitate toward uh, more physical and, and characteristics that you mentioned that are attributable to divine masculine. Well, there are deviations of this. So we hesitate to use the word always because we know, of course, that souls come to have multiple and, and infinite experiences, not only uh, of their genetics and divine masculine and feminine energies, but, but also um, certain talents and abilities that, that don't um, uh, preclude uh, a soul based upon gender. And we'll give you an example. There have been time periods where the feminine masters have been the leaders of the tribe. They have been the wisdom keepers. They have been the ones who have gone out and roamed the lands and, and, and built the temples. Now, in these circumstances and in, in these civilizations, it was because it was meant to happen that way. Uh, there was not the balance of, of masculine necessary for the feminine to rely on. So there was a reliance upon themselves. Now, we don't see that necessarily being the case in this day and age, uh, but we do know there are a variety of souls coming to planet Earth right now who are living out predestined plans to explore the, um, we'll say, the, the, the alternate and perhaps uh, unseen part of their energetic signature, which in a masculine being might be feminine and in a feminine being might be masculine. We don't see this as a problem. What we do see as a problem is the influence of society to, to do this as the right way. And that's what we're noticing about the, the time-space reality you are in, is that is this influence is, is creating an unnatural type of, of evolutionary process that is guided in the direction of a very slight number of souls and what they want for the planet. So um, obviously we're all having our human journey at this point. And although, as we discussed earlier, some of this has been taken off track a little bit by the hierarchical structures on, in the world today. Um, nonetheless, we're evolving through these experiences, uh, even though it is an extreme. And, and at some point, it will come back to middle or to a more neutral place, I imagine, with the wisdom and experience we gain from going to such an extreme. Um, from your perspective, uh, can you even foresee whether or not we're going to remain in this extreme for uh, uh, for the foreseeable future or or are we near the end of that extreme and going to return back to neutral? 
we always see multiple possibilities, but but we evaluate those possibilities based upon a, a certain match to your vibration as a whole. And, and there are some good signs that, that we would like to share uh, first. We are noticing a, a great number of humans awakening to what we have just spoken of, this, this foundational agenda uh, and those that are behind it. And because of this, they are becoming, we'll say, internally rewired uh, and consciously awakened to, to the idea of living uh, more authentically and, and outside of some of the, the false timelines and, and, and pathways they've been on for, for a great number of years, even beyond the generations that are embodied on, on planet Earth today. Um, however, the extremity that is taking place on planet Earth isn't necessarily something that we think is going to change right away. And in and, and extremity or intensity, uh, chaos even can be a very positive thing, even though we know uh, in human bodies it does not feel this way. And, and this is why when there is intensity, when there is chaos, uh, you can guarantee there is a new design coming into being. And, and we are not sure exactly what that new design will look like because all of you uh, are deciding together. But we do see the fate of those who are working behind the scenes. Um, so, so imagine that a collective comes together with a single intent, and that, that intent is malevolent and, and perhaps focused on uh, weakening human genetics and all of those humans have a common time or criteria through which they are meant to focus their will. This happens all of the time in everyday life, but many of you do not recognize this. Um, humans will come together to create something. And that creation may be a, a corporation, a, a business, uh, and the business falls apart. And there are many fingers pointed and, and a lot of discussion about what went wrong when in fact it was a soul timing that brought these people together they were meant to build something and walk away at the exact time it would deconstruct to give them a different experience and all of those involved in what they've created something new as well and so we can say wholeheartedly uh, that all of those who gather with malevolent intent have an expiration date not to say that it will be a stark change right away. But what you may notice is, is a waning or, or a weakening in their influence. And this is already starting, even though they may still be creating chaos uh, and intensity. Uh, the way that humans respond to that is going to be the key, meaning if humanity falls into the chaos and becomes uh, a false victim to it, uh, we might see a revival of some of the activities that have been taking place for the last couple of years. And we know this has already been discussed, uh, that there may be future accounts of what you've just gone through. That is never a guarantee, uh, even though uh, from a, a more cosmic or, or even astrological standpoint, uh, there are influences that will come in that may be challenging Nothing is ever set in stone. Uh, you are all co-creating it together. I'd like to spend a little time talking about 
uh, how we get back to a more divine feminine, divine masculine state. But, uh, but uh, we'll get to the spiritual component of it later, um, spiritual practices and things of that nature. I want to first talk more about the more physical components of it, or if there are any. For example, regardless of where we may be as a male or female uh, human being, uh, let's start with female, for example. How does that individual know if they're operating in an optimal divine feminine state in a purely physical sense, not the spiritual part, we'll address that later, but for example, are there certain interests or uh, not interests, but um, directions or things that they should pursue in life to develop those qualities, perhaps even career interests or lifestyle choices or are there any physical components at all or is that not at all important? There is no outer measurement of a divine feminine soul's uh, ability to harness that energy to its fullest. Uh, the only measurement could be contentment internally and a connection, we believe, with other humans in that soul's life in a way that is, is, is soothing and nurturing. Because ultimately, this is how we see divine feminine souls. They are healers and, and they are teachers and they are nurturers. And if that piece is missing, even internally uh, of the self, or even especially, we might say, uh, internally of the self, um, that should be a red flag, that there is something going against the grain in terms of your ability to, to properly channel that energy. So, so we can't say that showing up in any specific role is, is so important, uh, other than uh, the way that a divine feminine mm, soul feels uh, within themselves. Uh, and that is often something that we think is um, minimized right now uh, on planet Earth. And, and we'll give you an example of what we are speaking of. So many uh, humans today are, are struggling uh, with depression for example, or, or stress or anxiety. And, and many of these uh, have been diagnosed uh, with certain illnesses, mental illnesses or diseases. This is a sign that ultimately you are going against the grain of your natural sense of energy. Because if you are feeling anxiety and and somehow predisposed to the outer world controlling your inner. You are holding back on, on a natural essence uh, that is your birthright and, and able to be channeled and utilized. And, and we know we are saying this in very easy terms. It, it, it may seem that we are speaking down to those who have these diseases and they should be able to easily uh, understand and put into application what we are saying. But what we're demonstrating here is how far away human souls have been directed from their true and authentic self. So, so if you are living within the true balance of your feminine or masculine energy, you will uh, feel content. Uh, you will feel strong. 
you will have um, energy to do the things that you need to do and you'll naturally follow uh, instinctively uh, where you are meant to go and, and also what you are meant to do. Okay, so if we're, we're talking about divine feminine right now, if um, somebody is born into a female genetic structure or female genetic body, let's say, um, it doesn't really matter what career choices or things of that nature that they pursue, but it's more about focusing on the qualities of divine feminine, such as the emotional quality or intuition or nurturing. So if, if you're a, if you are a, in a female uh, physiology right now, and you have no interest in those things, or if you have not developed those qualities, are those necessary? Well, well, well let's back up for a minute and, and let's give another example that we think would be very valuable here. Uh, because you've brought up the feminist movement and, and the divine feminine souls on planet Earth feeling as if they have to take a more masculine role in a workplace. We don't see anything wrong with a feminine being choosing a, a more business environment. In fact, we think that it's been important over the last several years for the divine feminine to inject itself into primarily masculine energies. And this is why. Sometimes there is service here. Sometimes Feminine souls are entering a more masculine dominated energy to break up patterns and to change the consciousness of those entities. Uh, even business, for example, is, is becoming more spiritually aware and more conscious as you move into the fifth dimension. But again, the problem here that we see is that there has been an overall message, a resounding message to the whole of, of humanity, that feminine beings are unworthy unless they are taking a position of, of work in a masculine way. And this is where you may find the perfect example of, of what we have just explained, uh, where someone is feeling the stress and the anxiety uh, and the, the unnatural state of being by choosing to do something that they were never meant to do in the first place. So, so on the whole, we see the divine feminine possibly choosing roles that are more nurturing and healing in nature, but not necessarily exclusive uh, of certain more masculine traditional experiences, if that makes sense. Let's, I'd like to go back to ancient times to maybe add a bit more color to what we're discussing and maybe get more understanding. Um, for example, Nefertiti uh, held a very uh, leadership-oriented uh, role uh, in her time, in, in her during her rulership, which typically was a male role. Uh, and throughout dynastic and pre-dynastic Egypt, there were primarily male leaders, but every once in a while there was a female leader. Uh, and so she was one of those exceptions. Did she live or lead in a more masculine way or a more divine feminine way? Nefertiti led through her heart. And this is quite different 
than how a masculine soul would ever lead. Uh, we have discussed masculine and feminine in terms of the, the mind, body, emotions, and spirit, but, but let's shift now uh, to the frequency of the heart because the divine feminine has come up in such a way throughout ancient history to to revere and, and even practice the connection to the heart. So in ancient civilizations like Egypt, for example, the heart resonance between divine feminine leaders and their entire populations were strong. Messages were brought in through the heart and the intuition was read through a, a, a feminine soul like Nefertiti taking on a more or masculine characteristic, but able to utilize those things in proper balance. So, so certainly there are times when we notice a divine feminine master will take a lead role and, and have a very compassionate and adept use of their physical and mental structures, but through uh, a, a more compassionate and, and resonant energy of the heart. Uh, and this is something that we believe has been most lost uh, on the earth plane today, especially in the divine masculine, perhaps even trained out of the masculine purposely through time. So, so imagine uh, in today's world, uh, a divine feminine master coming in with profound access to the higher mind and, and to the physical body and able to channel that through the resonance of the heart in a very collective way, you would see a much different society than you live in now, one that is less hierarchical uh, and perhaps uh, more abundant and, and more prosperous in nature. So is is um, living through the heart a uniquely divine feminine characteristic? It does not have to be, but but we do notice that here on Earth, especially in more ancient civilizations, the divine feminine masters have dominated in this area, and even still today, it is the reason why the uh, transition on Earth to uh, awakening and higher consciousness has been led through the feminine. Because it is that resonance of the heart, a very detectable energy indeed uh, that can be channeled and, and utilized as, as a benefit in, in the feminine structure. So, so the divine masculine, perhaps in this timeline that you are on, they are catching up uh, to where a lineage of, of feminine beings uh, throughout space and time have had access to this very valuable uh, technology even, we'll call it, and, and some today even coming back and reincarnating without having to reactivate it again. So um, based on that, is it a role of the divine feminine on the planet today to lead us into a spiritual or more highly conscious future, whereas that may not be a male or a divine masculine role? In this timeline, yes, we agree with you, but not in everyone. It, it is not exclusive, in other words, uh, to, to the choice of masculine and feminine. Ultimately, uh, to live in, in unity consciousness, uh, masculine and feminine must be in perfect balance. And what that means is there aren't necessarily certain roles that, that must be characteristic of, of, of each gender. But there is a, a, a merging together of the, the strengths and talents, as we've mentioned, and, and energies 
of, of all humans together as one. And this is how the ancients practiced. Uh, they were upholding uh, each other in, in their energy and ensuring that that energy was properly exchanged to benefit the, the whole civilization. So in an ideal scenario, an individual, whether physiologically male or female, would have a little bit of both divine feminine and masculine in them? Yes, Okay. that is correct. But would it be biased one way or another based on the physiology, meaning would a person with a male physiology be more masculine and maybe a little feminine and female physiology be the opposite? Yes, and that is what we have been referring to all along. There's a threshold, in other words, and certainly someone who chooses a, a more masculine role as a soul is going to have more availability to those masculine energies because they are meant to put them into some very beneficial use uh, and vice versa. Uh, and this is why masculine and feminine work so well together because what is not um, in, its, in its highest quantity uh, within another uh, can be met and, and replenished as souls come together and merge. Okay, let's talk about Nefertiti's counterpart, Akhenaten. Um, he was also a leader uh, and um, was a highly revered leader, but also highly revered for having a very specific um, and counter to the society at the time, spiritual belief system that seemed to be a more conscious uh, belief system than what was present at the time. Um, so here's an individual who was a masculine uh, physiology, although based on his depictions, he might not have been entirely homo sapien sapien as we know human beings to be today. Um, he might have been a hybrid or an extraterrestrial or something, but but still there seems to be some male physiology there from the depictions we see, different from Nefertiti who also who looks very female. Um, how did he lead differently than Nefertiti? If we are to answer this question, we are to to open up the vaults of knowledge that refer to tantric practice, because the leaders that were successful in relationship like this were using these practices to uh, take up the balance of energy from each other necessary to exist in a higher state of those energies. In other words, perhaps we could say the masculine today is defaulting to, to a lower frequency range of the physical and mental embodiment that they are capable of. Because if consciousness or enlightenment was truly present, these things would not be used to distract. They would not be used to demean they would not be used to to traumatize, uh, which was not the case with the ancients you are speaking of. A more enlightened state of consciousness doesn't neglect the masculinity within itself, but transforms it through the balance of the feminine to become something of higher consciousness. And in this way, expresses through itself to change the entire collective it is guiding, uh, 
we realize that you have have referred to to these two souls as as leaders, and and we want to make the distinction between the the leaders uh, that that you have brought to certain positions of power on planet Earth today, uh, and those that existed in ancient civilizations like the one you refer to. They were not leading as of being in power over others. They were guiding and mentoring and providing insights such that everyone would thrive. But to do this, they had to first understand how to thrive themselves. So many of these ancient rulers, leaders, guides, uh, they were taught by ancient masters, even intergalactic beings on how to use certain practices of breath to raise the energy from the the lower chakras into the higher and to exchange it between the masculine and feminine such that the the more beautiful aspects, the more sentient aspects of of these parts of self were not only um, strengthened, but but the entire physicality and, and nature of those souls would completely change. And, and this is why you see them in the most ornate and, and beautiful states that you do in, in, in ancient renderings, because they were literally becoming a, a blended uh, uh, genetic uh, aspect of each other. Now, we're, we're Akhenaten and Nefertiti human beings as we know of today, the same species, or were they an entirely different race? Certainly not species? the same species that you are today. And, and, and the reason that we say this is twofold. Um, humans in this timeline, uh, unfortunately, uh, and we say this with great respect, ha- have been taken off of their original divine blueprint uh, so far that you are attempting to reclaim it uh, as we speak. You are all hybrids. So to say that Nefertiti and Akhenaten were different than you would would also not be true because you are all seated in the likeness of, of many intergalactic races. It is just that in ancient civilizations, they knew this. They understood the dynamics of, of the DNA and, and how to work with it and, and bring it into its most uh, resilient and, and blossomed light. And these practices have been lost. So what has happened, unfortunately, uh, is that humans have been relegated to working with only uh, a small subset of what's available to them within the DNA. And this has further weakened genetically um, uh, humanity as we know it. But but as we say this, we, we do want to add it is not difficult to turn that around. Uh, in fact, so many of you have already made incredible progress in terms of, of activating your DNA and, and accentuating your energy centers and, and aligning with the great light that you are. So, so we have no fear in what we are saying that humanity would meet its demise. In other words, we, we are simply stating the, the difference that we notice between who you are today and and who humans were back then. Now, Akhenaten and Nefertiti and other members of their family, some of them are depicted in um, uh, art or even in sculptures as having elongated heads. And many of them wore these very tall hats or headdresses. 
Um, did they actually have elongated heads? Were they an entirely different species? And what capabilities or um, skills did they, or maybe even intellect, did they possess, but with that um, different structure? So you must remember that the the brain uh, is not a separate organism that functions on its own. In connection to the heart, it, it is an electromagnetic force field. So at the very beginning of time, uh, when many different races, as we have spoken of, arrived on planet Earth to, to seed a new race, they were lending uh, the, the highest and, and best aspects of their genetics uh, to these races. And many of them um, were working with a higher mind and an electromagnetic structure uh, far more um, intricate and, and even perhaps uh, intense than what humans have evolved to work with today. Now, in ancient civilizations, some of the elongated skulls that you see, uh, these are truly the manifestation of material, a, a physical organ replicating itself in size to the amount of energy and information that it had access to. Uh, in, in other words, if you are um, to imagine the Akashic Records being a, a massive bulk of, of all that has ever been known or created. And hybrid beings, uh, the first humans on Earth, having access to that immediately. Uh, you can imagine how the human body would have to accommodate and change to allow that energy to be integrated. So these elongated skulls, uh, we could say, are, are a hybrid manifestation of the more expanded genetics that, that humans uh, were created in and, and perhaps had access to in those various civilizations. But these humans with the elongated skulls uh, were defaulting more to their hybrid nature, which which also isn't something unique only to those timelines. Let us explain. Uh, in today's world, uh, there are humans who are accessing the Akashic records. Um, some of them uh, are becoming more sensitive to their environments, even to food and water and choosing to not ingest them at all. Uh, crystallizing their DNA and even looking more like extraterrestrials. You have crystal children coming to the planet that, that are examples also of, of the, the genetic predisposition to multiple races. Uh, these are no different than the manifestations of, of an enlarged skull. It's just a different interpretation in a different dimension and a different timeline uh, than the ones that these um, hybrid beings were on. Some of you are defaulting more to your Pleiadian genetics at times, and some of you are um, choosing to explore your Arcturian genetics. Naturally, this is going to create physical changes uh, within your structure. Even the giants that are known throughout history to have walked the earth were a material manifestation of energy and information coming to light. 
So the material construct of your body made of light is a manifestation of energy and information that you are uh, existing within. So we're not at any sort of a disadvantage compared to some of these ancient beings with the elongated skulls. We're just experiencing things a little bit differently. You are never at a disadvantage. There are certainly forces that are always going to be challenging you uh, to awaken to things that have been stolen from you. And then we think this is the case right now, as it has been the case in many other time periods uh, and civilizations. But in a moment's notice, uh, all of that can change. The struggle, however, that, that you're facing as a collective is that you as an individual can achieve so much, but that individuality is still connected to, to a, a matrix of collective energy. And, and the collective tide uh, must somewhat move together. So, so what you're, you're witnessing is the, the push and pull and the forward back motion of, of awakening and resistance and awakening and resistance. But just like the pull of a rubber band when it gets too far will, will snap in one direction. Uh, we believe this will also happen on planet Earth. And what you will find eventually is, is the evolution uh, of humanity will take on uh, a completely different um, look and, and feel and characteristic uh, in this dimension and timeline than it has in any other. Are there still physical beings walking the earth today who are from that ancestry who have the elongated skulls? Yes, there, there must be and there always are. Uh, just as there are human beings walking the lineage and, and ancestry of Sirius, for example. Um, but we know it's difficult to maintain, uh, not physically, but, but genetically, the connection to the Akashic field that those in ancient times had. So, so what we're, we're referring to here is that perhaps the elongated skull is not exactly the sign in this timeline of what it was back then. It's simply a genetic predisposition that's playing out in physical. So would a, an individual who has a larger physical structure, say taller or just bigger build, have more information and energy in the body than somebody who's a smaller structure? Yes, but that does not necessarily mean they are making use of it. So uh, height in and of itself is not an indication of consciousness and access to energy. It can be in a material dimension um, um, an example uh, of how energy wants to to uh, expand. But consciousness is always the determining factor for whether or not a soul is able to utilize what it has access to. And, and so we see varying levels of consciousness in, in different souls across the board. And it matters not if that soul is, is shorter than someone who is taller um, the, the consciousness will always override the material manifestation of how energy and light um, uh, choose form. Some of the 
giants that are written about and even some um, remains that have been found in more ancient times biblically referred to as a Nephilim as an example. Uh, so their structure was substantially larger than the, the average human being today. So do they necessarily, so in theory, they would have more energy and more information in that structure, but were they utilizing it on the whole to the same potential? So, for example, were they on the whole as a civilization uh, living more to a greater potential than we are able to in our smaller human structures today? Not necessarily. So, so let's explain uh, the Nephilim and, and their arrival on Earth, because we don't necessarily see them as, as human. We, we see them more as extra dimensional. In a choice to come to a planet that is not your own, there is a, a transitional process that is quite miraculous that must take place. It is like moving between dimensions. Uh, Any time that you are moving from one dimension to another, you are reconstructing everything that you are and everything that you know. So there are drastic changes that are apt to take place. What you're noticing in those ancient giants, for example, is how light at a very high speed, very high vibrational speed became slowed and manifested into form. And certainly the large size is accommodating the amount of information and access that those beings had. But when it finally comes into being on Earth, it doesn't necessarily automatically ensure the same access is had. Because remember, these beings that travel from a long distance they are now in a different dimension and a different time-space reality, working with material and energy in, in a new way. So not all of the Nephilim, for example, were capitalizing upon uh, who they were before and, and how their structures were able to utilize information. Some of them were. Uh, it's very similar to, to what we see on the surface of the Earth right now uh, in humans. Uh, the, the access is amazing. Uh, the plasmic energy and light that is coming to, to the planet today is, is activating so many, but not all are, are taking advantage of and, and using these energies to their fullest benefit. Some of the ancient uh, Sumerian gods and goddesses, for example, were depicted as being very large in stature compared to what appear to be more uh, average what we know of human beings to be in size today. Uh, and, and these, uh, Sumerian gods were said to have, uh, possessed great wisdom and they built, um, very large, um, cities and, and, uh, taught people different things and so on. Um, now it appears that unlike the average Nephilim that we just talked about, that some of these uh, Sumerian gods, who also were giant, as we would think of them today based on our size now, actually did do some extraordinary things uh, and did create extraordinary societies and, and so on. 
so would you say that uh, that they were actually utilizing that potential in that physical structure compared to some of the Nephilim we were just referring to? The, the key difference here that, that we think is important to note is collective intent. So often we will see a, a hybrid race, for example, come to the earth and through the transition, uh, there is some division or, or separation and, and intent goes in different directions. Uh, and because of this, uh, there is not a strong, unified and resonant force that is able to channel that information for the good. And, and in the case of the Sumerians, we see this common intent and, and this unified focus where not only is it possible uh, to, to channel uh, incredible amounts of energy uh, and bring it through a physical structure to Earth, but to use in, in a combined fashion the energy of all others to support an entire civilization. And, and that's where many of the ancient practices, for example, that were utilized to create pyramids and, and very ornate temples uh, began. Uh, this collective intent is just as important uh, as anything else that is focused upon. In previous conversations, we've talked about some of these ancients uh, that are depicted as giants. Uh, and even in pre-dynastic Egypt, there are similar depictions. Uh, and throughout the world, some of them are depicted carrying handbags or uh, something at their side. Now, how was this utilized in order to, was that something that gave them the ability to access more of that potential to, to, uh, be more extraordinary, uh, or when without that technology, they would not have been able to do that? Each of these technologies were, were slightly different again in their intention and their use. And, and it is not to say that the metaphysical powers had to be enhanced with a technology. But again, you must remember that the earth at the time uh, existed in, in a very different dimension and in a very material vibration, which those who came were not used to. These technologies being, being elemental brought the harmony of elements and crystal from their own star systems to be combined with those of Earth. And in this way, uh, many of the hybrids that use them found balance and equilibrium between their position on planet Earth and their other former uh, star systems. And, and this is a difficult concept that we, we want to try and simplify. But imagine this. There are groups of intergalactics that, that will choose to come to a planet like Earth for a specific period of time uh, to leave behind a legacy of, of teachings or, or create civilizations, but they will return. Of course, while they are gone, the star system that, that they originate from is going to go through a great deal of evolution. And that evolution may be happening on a different time-space trajectory than the one that they've chosen. So many of these technologies helped them to keep up to speed with the evolutionary process that was going on 
within their own races, even though they were focused on serving another. And this um, came into being in, in so many different ways. In other words, uh, sometimes it was an immediate knowing uh, that something new was available, a, a technique, a, a technology, a modality that could be transferred to Earth and blended with something else. Or in those in-between moments when um, uh, a, an ancient Sumerian was deciding its work on planet Earth was done and it may return to its its uh, home civilization, uh, it was being downloaded with everything it needed to um, keep up to speed, uh, to, to find itself in the, in the perfect uh, location and the perfect uh, environment to continue its own personal evolutionary process. Okay, so I'd like to now come back to the idea of um, the sacred sexuality and Tantra and so on. Uh, we may not finish this conversation this time, but at least we can get started. And we'll continue in a future uh, conversation. But uh, before we get into the specifics, can you define uh, what you refer to as Tantra? Because today it's different. So can you call it, define it, but also tell us how it's different today from what it was before? The most simplified definition of Tantra that we can offer is the blending of masculine energies to perfect balance. Now, this has changed, of course, uh, throughout many timelines on planet Earth, uh, often because in sexual practice, the imbalance of masculine and feminine has been focused upon, and, and that imbalance continues to perpetuate today or in intimacy uh, there is no utilization of the true life force and sexual energy that two souls are able to tap into if they are attentive fully attentive to each other in order for you mentioned masculine and feminine balance uh, is uh one of the fundamentals of Tantra. And so is it necessary for it to be a male and female physiology that are existing in masculine and feminine balance, or can you have two male or two female or any other, anything like that? As we see it today, and as we have seen it throughout history, the chemistry and the biology and the energy of the sacred masculine and feminine are the only two that are able to work this imperfection. And, and this is why they both work completely different sides of the equation and are offering something completely unique to the other. What you're essentially saying then is that we, we in order to be in an optimal state of balance, we do have to have 
a male and a female physiology that are existing in that balance. Uh, if I'm, is that correct so far? When you're speaking about balance, we know there are many who are listening to this transmission who are going to interpret that word completely differently because within the self, Masculine and feminine balance can be found even if there is a predisposition to one or the, the other. And this is how knowing thyself is always going to allow for the masculine or the feminine within you to find its proper balance. And this is why even in a divine feminine soul, the mental and physical bodies can become a perfect manifestation through the feminine and vice versa. But in tantric practice, in, in coupling, the idea is that the masculine and feminine energy stem from prime creator and are equal parts of the same vibration. And when they are merged, are not only going to accentuate in the other what is out of balance, but allow them to use their predisposed um, area of focus to an even higher and, and more conscious ability. And so in the difference, one of the differences that uh, exists today, then would you say is that we've taken this sacred sexuality more into a physical sexuality um, where today we have lost touch with the spiritual component, but it's become highly physicalized. Even Tantra, as we know of today, is a very physical practice and not as spiritual. And, and perhaps we would use the word energetic as opposed to spiritual because it has become physicalized, but also uh, very focused on momentary satisfaction and generating creative energy in the lower chakras. And while the lower chakras are, are extremely important, as that energy becomes channeled into the higher, a more spiritually and enlightened soul emerges. So using tantric practice is, is not even sometimes a necessary focus on sexuality at all. It is building the natural life force energy from, from the lower chakras into the higher time and time again uh, to be to be sent and spilled over into the vibration of another. But remember also uh, what we have stated about the heart and, and the resonance of the heart, because in ancient ta tantric practice, uh, the resonance of the heart between the masculine and feminine soul became one. And in that grew a field. And that field was not only beneficial, for the, the manifestation of what those souls were, were meant to do and, and able to uh, create on planet Earth, but that could spill over into the anointing and, and manifestation of others. And this is why these individuals were seen as, as rulers or leaders or mentors. It had less to do with their position of power or decisions they were making and more to do with the energy field that they were collectively building on behalf of their civilizations. Then in that case, the, the heart connection is absolutely essential to, to uh, practicing Tantra in, in, in the ideal sense, right? So if, um, 
So if, if somebody's in a couple or a couple situation where there isn't love or harmony in the relationship, Tantra would not be, uh, would not work in that situation, would it? If a couple is not in a, a state of love or, or highest respect for another, uh, Tantra or the energy of life force cannot be properly raised. And, and here's why. Love has no limits when it is expressed within. And someone who has deep love and respect for themselves would not enter into intimate relationship with another just for the feeling of pleasure. Uh, and, and this is something that everyone should consider and perhaps even teach to the younger generations because the, the genetic fluids that are exchanged during intimate acts are changing the dynamics of your entire structure. And what you are aiming for is to ensure that you not only become more resilient and, and prosperous and strong, but that the energy you're cultivating is going to be shared in, in a beneficial way with others. And that is truly what the origins of intimate relationship is. Uh, it is thought to be uh, for the self and for the other, but the partnership goes well beyond that. Uh, the, the relationship between intimate partners is changing the entire planet, uh, or can change, we should say, the entire planet for the better. In more ancient times, didn't some divine feminine um, masters play a role as an as a sexual activator or in tantric practice for individuals who they were not in a loving relationship with? They were not necessarily in a state of servitude in this way. And, and, and it certainly depends on the civilization that you are referring to because there are many. Uh, but the most revered, the ones that were um, in the highest intention, for example, uh, knew the value of divine feminine energy because the masculine rulers at the time who would choose, for example, uh, a har harem uh, of female beings, were not doing so to, to show um, any neglect uh, for their well-being, nor to show any, any semblance of hierarchy or power. They were receiving something very valuable to be shared with others. It was cultivating a powerful energy that the masculine did not have access to alone. And in some civilizations, this was needed in abundance because there were uh, a great many goals uh, to achieve. And certainly there were challenges that were faced. Uh, so the feminine was revered uh, for the uh, reinstatement and we'll say um, uh, restoration uh, of life force energy necessary in those guiding uh, entire communities. Uh, keep in mind, however, this was not done only in a physical sexual way. Uh, and unfortunately, many of the stories uh, of these historical times have been changed um, to to slight them uh, in, in, in a sense. 
most of these practices were done in, in a meditative stance, uh, collectively and, and individually one-on-one. Uh, the feminine harems were taken extremely well uh, care of because in pampering them, their vibration would culminate and grow and have an immediate effect on, on all of those surrounding them. And King Solomon is said to have had a thousand wives. Uh, so you're saying that it wasn't a sexual, physical relationship he was having with them. They served as um, as a vessel for energetic contribution to help him to fulfill all of the things that he did in that lifetime? It is not to say that the Tantra that was practiced at that time did not lean into uh, any type of physical contact. But we don't see this as the premise nor the overarching theme of these relationships that he had with these women. Many of them were revered oracles who were bringing energies and insights in from the greater universe. Others were offering restorative breath practice and together time traveling throughout the cosmos to bring back information um, as well as modalities and, and various uh, insights that could be capitalized on and used in the civilization that he was uh, focused upon. Uh, there are a variety of stories and scenarios. Tantra is never one thing. And we think this is what has been taken out of context in this timeline and how Tantra is practiced. Well, certainly uh, there are ancient instructional uh, practices that can be followed uh, the best tantric practice is cultivated personally between one and another uh, because every individual is completely different. The key, however, and the foundation is ensuring a rhythmic and succession uh, of breath, uh, the in and the out breath, um, finding its oneness between the individuals practicing so that everyone is lifting each other up into a higher vibration and dimension. What role do the male and female play in a tantric practice that, that, that are, that's unique to each of them? Uh, let's start with female, for example. What, what, is the, what is their role in that interaction? The divine feminine is nourishing and replenishing the chi of the masculine. Because as a physical and, and mentally focused soul, uh, that energy is being utilized very rapidly. And it is not just lost in sexual practice, which unfortunately has become the norm in the timeline that you are in. It is utilized in, in very practical ways. And so the feminine is, is nourishing and replenishing that masculine energy by, by offering her own because there is a wellspring of access that the feminine has through spirit to the, the we'll say, plasmic universe. Uh, many speak uh, of the, the cosmic womb or the womb of all creation. We simply see this as a force field, uh, a field that is universal, that, that all have access to. But again, the, the lineage of, of divine feminine beings throughout history, uh, they have practiced this. 
And because of the way their structure is oriented, having a womb themselves sitting right in the area where life force is generated are more powerful uh, in their ability to share it. So the masculine and feminine relationship is extremely important in this way as the feminine is nourishing the masculine and the masculine is perhaps for help, uh, perhaps helping the feminine to achieve even greater bandwidth of energy. It is less to do with a restorative type of transaction uh, as it is a more relaxing and um, uh, softening type of energy. When the feminine is in the arms of the masculine, uh, it does not have to uphold anything that it is not. And in doing so is available to receive all that it is. So, so we see um, uh, beneficial transmissions or, or uh, channelings and offerings going uh, in both directions. Does a masculine typically lose energy or vitality or life force in, uh, in a tantric practice? Um, but you're saying if the practice is done correctly in a heart-centered way, the female replenishes that. Yes, that is correct. Even if there is a physical release of that elixir, the divine feminine in a tantric practice will restore the bounty to the masculine. And, and there is a never-ending supply of life force that the masculine is able to tap into. Now, in modern times, um, in the wedding tradition, there's the honeymoon. And honeymoon is the combination of honey and moon. Uh, and I, from my understanding, there appears to be some ancient traditions around the use of honey and honeycomb and the idea of the moon or the lunar cycles. Uh, what is that connection? What's the significance of honey or honeycomb in the tantric practice? Well, the most important, we believe, while there are many, is that the honeycomb represents the frequencies of the heart blending together in, in, in two individuals and, and becoming a, a massive force field in and of itself. It is a geometry uh, no less important than, than any other. In fact, uh, those that were blessed with the honeycomb were taking in a, a sacred and physical divination tool to help them better merge their heart centers as one. But we also think about the connection of the hive and how the hive operates. There is a queen and that queen is supporting all of the bees in doing everything that they must to ensure their sustenance and, and prosperity. And perhaps this is the, the greatest analogy for how we see the, the masculine and feminine interacting. Well, we don't want to put the feminine uh, above the masculine uh, by any means, it, it was well known in these ancient civilizations that that the feminine was the catalyst of this energy in the masculine and, and could provide uh, not only for her beloved, but also for entire civilizations, this unified connection. How can the honeycomb or honey be used in a tantric practice to enhance that connection or to enhance the potential? It is symbolic, yet imagine within the honey itself, 
there is a similar type of elixir and life force capability. And, and this is why um, many today are still using honey as, as a medicinal uh, type of um, remedy because within it is the vibration of all those who created it. And that vibration is very high. So if we are using this as a tool to, to enter our tantric practice, perhaps what we are doing is setting the vibrational tone and intention of what we want to achieve. Are lunar cycles or any astrological cycles uh, necessary to observe in tantric practice? Not necessary, but sometimes beneficial. And, and there are so many, it would be difficult for us to name them, but the ancients revered the lunar cycles because they knew it was not only a, a passage and a purging of energies not necessary to continue on with them in the next phase, but it was a, an intensified time where the divine feminine was at her peak. In other words, if we are looking at the access to emotion or the access to spirit, the divine feminine is is using the lunar cycle within her own body to cleanse and to purify. So these times were noticed and and certainly uh, revered for these practices. And some ancient books such as the Kama Sutra or even um, modern Tantra books, they use different kinds of physical positions or um, things like that. Is that part of that practice in ancient times? Is it even necessary to have that physical, um, those physical positions that they use in these books or these reference materials? Or can it, can Tantra be achieved simply by meditating side by side or in some non-physical way? Tantra in our minds, uh, it is a, a meditative practice. It is the synchronizing of breath and the the two becoming one, however that best happens between both partners. What you're seeing in in some of these um, instruction manuals uh, having to do with physical position uh, are certain preferences for moving the body in order to heighten the access of life force. It's somewhat like yogic practices. Certain poses are are positioning the body to channel energy or, or to receive it in a heightened sense. Yet we don't think that yogic practice is for everyone uh, in the same way we don't believe that these tantric poses are meant for everyone either. Um, there are so many different options that you can choose uh, in intimacy. As a matter of fact, uh, we think it's important to um, uh, become open uh, to exploring these these various ways of being in intimate relationship uh, to truly find what peaks not only your uh, physical and, and sexual pleasure, but your vibration. That is what's most important. The, that blissful orgasmic state is not something that should be taken lightly uh, nor happen in a moment's notice. It is something that can be cultivated throughout your entire life. And, and this is uh, perhaps what makes the poses less important than the breath. 
because these may assist in, in reaching that high vibrational blissful state in a physical way, but isn't um, supporting uh, a couple or even an individual in carrying that orgasmic state beyond the experience. So in that case, just simply the alternating breath between a male and female is all that's necessary to uh, enter this tantric state or to have a tantric practice. The physical is an optional enhancement, but not required. It, it does simplify the practice a bit, but but yes, we agree that the, the rhythmic breath is the perfect place to start. But the energy has to be cultivated. Remember, this is what we are most uh, uh, concerned about. And, and cultivating energy, uh, it can happen within individuals and couples in so many different ways. For example... Um, raising the energy from the lower chakras to the higher is something that in ancient practice was a part uh, of these meditative periods where um, teachers would guide those who were stepping into an, an intimate or committed relationship beyond the sexual component to raise kundalini. Uh, kundalini raised within each individual uh, can intertwine and can exemplify the response that you are having internally. Uh, this can not only be uh, used as a creative tool in terms of manifestation and, and focus of intent, uh, but it can also be very healing to, to the physical body in, in all regards. Uh, whether there is uh, some disease in the body, in the mind, uh, in the emotional body, uh, this kundalini energy we speak of, the, the rising of that elixir from the base of the spine uh, all the way up to the crown and through the root is, is like a, a, a magical serum. Uh, it is not just meant to, to enlighten and raise consciousness, giving humans full access to the pineal gland and, and all that is available there, but, but also helping the body to function better as a holistic vehicle. And this is truly what the, um, the, the focus and intention was in these civilizations. It, it was not just the prosperity and, and the abundance of the couple and the civilization, but ensuring that they would live as long as possible in, in the, the most, um, um, heightened way, uh, comfortable way that they could to be the best versions uh, of themselves. Does Tantra practice extend lifespan then for the couple? It is practiced in that way and for that intent, yes. In ancient times, uh, at least in some biblical stories and other stories as well, it said that some of these uh, ancients lived for hundreds or thousands of years. Was that because of their physiology or the dimension being different then, or was it a, uh, a tantric practice? Well, it is a combination of both because there are many factors that must be considered. Uh, primarily, those in ancient civilizations were not dealing with the toxic environment that, that many of you are today. So they were predisposed to living longer because there was nothing influencing their bodies away from an organic state of life. 
in addition to this, we might say their belief systems were completely different than the ones that, that you have adopted now. Um, and these are genetic as well, uh, handed down through lineages. Uh, we expect to die at a certain age, and because that expectation is there, it is wired around the possibility of our leaving the planet. But the way Tantra works right now in this day and age is that it bypasses those limiting beliefs because as the Kundalini rises naturally and works its way into the, the higher centers, the, the pineal, the, the mind, the, the crown, uh, you are becoming more uh, not only aware of options that you have at your disposal, either physically or, or spiritually to elongate your life, uh, or you're questioning um, what has been taught to you before uh, about any limitation that, that you may have in that way. So, so it's somewhat like breaking all of the physical and spiritual norms in, in one practice. What you're describing about Tantra and raising energy uh, in this couple situation you're not referring to what what seems to be very prevalent in tantric teachings and practice today, which is raising sexual energy to feel that sexual arousal. So you're not referring to a sexual arousal type of energy. You're referring to more of like a bliss state, kundalini, which would not be sexual. Well, they seem to be one and the same. Uh, it is just that you are putting a distinction between the two. So Sexual energy to us is a spiritual energy, but it has been corrupted in this timeline uh, through through religious dogma, for example, and, and a variety of other themes. Um, in in, a, in its purest state, when you are raising sexual energy, you are activating life force. That is your creative source moving from deep within you. The problem is it becomes wasted when the intention is simple pleasure. And there is nothing wrong with pleasure. Uh, we as Pleiadians, in fact, uh, enjoy uh, spending time together and, and pleasuring each other. We think this is a very important part of our everyday life. But it is the intent behind that pleasure that is missing. And so for us, when we are in the pursuit of pleasure, we know that that pleasure is going to extend outward to our entire star system because it is ultimately a frequency that is going to signal others and, and be shared widely uh, beyond ourselves, if that makes sense. Yes. So what, what becomes available to a couple that practices Tantra that they would not otherwise have available? Well, it certainly depends upon the individuals. So it would be difficult for us to put this in a very rigid definition. However, we'll give you some examples of, of what we believe can be accomplished and what was accomplished in ancient civilizations. It is, it is the, um, the willingness of both parties to be open to what they are able to achieve and receive from each other. First of all, we notice that couples become far more telepathic when they are practicing Tantra. And what that means is they're not using that telepathy against each other, but there's a synergistic type of way of moving together 
in relationship and on the earth to accentuate the divine plans of both parties. And it is somewhat like a beneficial give and take where there is no need to feel slighted or to argue about what is given or what is received. Uh, the couple begins to focus more as one and to think more as one using their individualized gifts and talents uh, where necessary to accentuate each other. And, and this is why Tantra was so uh, revered uh, amongst leaders, for example, in, in, in ancient civilizations like Egypt, because um, to, to truly thrive as a community, uh, very complex plans and, and the orchestration of energy was necessary. And these couples in merging their, their energy were working as one in the most uh, beneficial way possible. Now, in the physical, many, many changes can happen. Certainly, we could go into a great amount of detail on spiritual activation. And, and we do notice that partners uh, uh, are coming together in mass lately uh, to spiritually activate each other in a tantric or sexual way. Uh, some refer to this as a spiritual sexuality where it is not just a physical experience, but couples are walking away, uh, having very deep insights, uh, channeled encounters, for example, even seeing energy differently simply because they have been together and, and, and nonetheless revealing um, the mysteries of their past lives that they have spent together in, in many different incarnations. But most beneficial, we believe, is the self-generating and rejuvenating force of the masculine-feminine in tantric balance. There are energies, as we have spoken of from the beginning of this transmission, that the masculine and feminine are both slighted to. And in giving those to each other, there is a unified force within the body itself. The body remembers it is a holistic vehicle. Cells are no longer acting out on their own and, and naming themselves as something other than the entity and the body that the soul has claimed. Uh, we see organs and systems uh, working more in harmony. We see the uh, nervous system coming into perfect balance. And we see souls who have been suffering or, or struggling a great deal with physical life rising above some of the complications of their 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 karmic lessons and and easily navigating these uh, far better than what they would have alone. So, so so there are so many benefits we could continue to to discuss, but but we think these are the most um, important uh, of note. Well, we're almost out of time, but then we have one more question before we finish. Are there any other changes that we can make in our physical lives uh, for male and female that would help to enhance or at least uh, cultivate us moving toward a more optimal state of divine masculine or feminine, depending on which sex we happen to be. Regardless of your status with a current loving partner, there are two areas of focus that we believe are most beneficial. We've spoken first of the Kundalini and the Kundalini rising is something we always recommend. And, and we know it, it is made uh, to be very complicated in its process when in fact it is simply a focus on the breath 
rising the energy from the lower chakras into the higher. This was practiced every day. Uh, those that are divine masculine, those that are divine feminine would be working with the energies uh, of, of preference in the most sound and, and harmonized ways. In fact, their bodies would respond even better to the orientation of their biology and the chemistry that is meant to, to follow them throughout their lifetimes. In addition to this, we mentioned the resonance of heart. And, and heart resonance is something that is very difficult to, to both find and hold on to in this timeline. It is simply because the earth is changing so radically and there's so much going on in, in each individual's personal timeline. Yet to spend a few moments a day focused on the resonance of the heart, bringing the breath into the space, expanding the chest and, and allowing the energy to enter is, is another recommendation. We know this sounds like a very simplified practice, but, but to us, uh, it is everything. Because the more your heart falls into resonance with, with your own personal truth, the more the truth of others becomes honored. And then you will find yourself very quickly uh, within a unified collective. Well, I have one more question since you brought it up. So these days, there are a lot of people on the planet who are either alone or in relationships that are not heart-centered or loving. So how does somebody in those situations, if uh, if Tantra can bring so much of more of an enhanced life, if they don't have access to that right now, then how, where do they go? Or is there some practice or way of being they can adopt that would draw in a relationship that would uh, provide for that kind of interaction? Well, for Tantra to take place between a couple, it must be self-generated first. So to practice the self-generation of Tantra, uh, the rise of the kundalini uh, on your own is a beneficial practice, we believe. It it may draw in a partner simply because expanding your energy field is going to expand your options. Right now, regardless of who you are and whether or not you have a partner, there are multiple potentials that already exist for the right partner to enter at the perfect time. And, and while the time may not be now, you want to cultivate the, the perfect energy for the arrival of that partner. And this is a self-juvenating, rejuvenating force that, that you can personally benefit from as well. So any simple breath practice done alone, we believe can be just as beneficial as one done with a partner. Because remember, as a creative entity and energy, the masculine and feminine is present within all. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Uh, we went a little bit longer than I planned, but but thank you all for joining us for another show. And we'll be back again soon with another episode and we'll continue our conversations where we left off and go into some other interesting topic areas as well. Okay, well, how can I say this? It's, um, it's interesting because the next one we're going to play is um, the topic is similar and the treatment will be unique, I'm sure. And this is called Floating uh, Souls and Aligned Evolutions.
what is required of humanity to move into our next steps of balanced evolution. Legendary channeler and author Lee Harris rejoins Regina Meredith to channel the Z's and offer the, their higher dimensional perspective on how humanity must release base emotions to transcend trials and tribulations. The Z's, meaning the Z generation. No, it's a group of beings called the Z's. Oh, and who are they? Um, they're dimensional beings. Humans? I'm not sure from what star system, but he'll tell us. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, so anyway, the Z's share how there are no fixed species, only floating souls. Oh, and how our evolution fits into an interwoven cosmic tapestry of our universe. Explore the higher dimensional messages conveyed in Harris' Harris's new book, Conversations with the Z's, The Energetics of the New Human Soul, Part 1, co-authored with Diana Edwards, or Diana Edwards. Ready, Rama? Mm. Okay, 59 minutes. Let's get started. It's going to squeeze into the mm. bottom of the next hour, everybody. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Hmm. Huh. It's coming. <laughs> it, de- it truly is. Oh, there we go. Something in the middle there. of time where some of the stuff they did not really want to get into more people are waking up to what's going on i think that's why the z's are being more transparent mm-hmm. about some of the control and corruption agendas yes. that we actually are trapped within where we're at right now i'm like oh this is the beginning of that opening this is the very beginning of that opening where the world does become very different is there anything that pops out at you that you would have been hesitant to share that you've been told? Exit points are periods of time in your life where you and your soul have the opportunity to take you off planet. You as a race simply are not allowed to be controlled on levels of consciousness. So we want you to remember your power as a people. 
A few months back, you may recall I did an interview with Lee Harris and the Z's on the topic of what's coming up for humanity over the next 100 years and much more. Today, Lee and the Z's and I are going to talk about equally intriguing subjects such as our potential exit points from this earth life. Did you know that there can be as many as 100 opportunities for a soul to leave the earth life within a lifetime? I love that. This is just one of the things. Welcome, Lee. Hi, good to see you. When I was reading that in your new book, I thought, I always thought there were a few key points, you know, with astrology and all that. But we're going to get into this because it's much more complex. Yeah, that was one of the things that really hit me when they first explained that concept to me years ago. And so it's come through the work at various points, but it really made a big moment in the latest book. Yes, absolutely. But before we do that, uh, first of all, last I thought we were smoking. I mean, so much good information that came out in our last interview, which is why we're doing a quick encore to that. But one of the things I, I, I think I even said on set, and I reiterate out reading your newest book, is that, you know, I've known the Z's for quite a few years. And there were periods of time where some of the stuff they did not really want to get into in years past. So tell me your perception of what's happened, because they're really, they, they're very much more revealing now about what humanity is up against than they were even three, four, five, six, seven years ago. Yeah, it's interesting. I used to experience it that their main focus and intent was to open us and that Mm -hmm. that really was the drive, which it still is. But I think a couple of different things happened. I had a personal experience in 2019 in Costa Rica where I literally had an awakening at a retreat center where I was running a retreat. And after that moment, I literally heard, now everything is serious. Okay, so let's talk about your experience that happened that allowed this to happen. So we were running a retreat in Costa Rica and we were on the third or fourth day. And one of our participants, it it was a morning off, and one of our participants actually passed while he was on his own time on the beach with his wife. So you can imagine that was devastating for all of us and shocking and seemed very surreal. But those of us who were who were called to the beach to work on his body, there was someone doing, uh, you know, working on his heart and trying to get the water out of his system. There were other people holding space doing Reiki and I was there and I thought, well, what can I do? And I spoke to him. I spoke to his soul. It took me a minute to figure that out. Right. And he was just floating above yeah. his body, orange, so happy. Like, and I, you know, I was pleading with him to come back to his body. And then I tried getting angry (laughs) and you go down here, your wife is here, you know, and and he had been so happy four hours earlier. He'd seen me at breakfast and he'd come over to me and we'd done a sound healing session the night before. And he said, I realize I want to leave the corporate world and I want to go into sound healing. And he was in his early sixties. Um, so you can imagine what that did to the group. And it was his wife who was the reason we carried on because in the hours afterwards, she said to me, we're carrying on. And I couldn't believe it because I'm immediately thinking, well, we have to send everyone home and there's no way we can continue, but we did. So you can imagine what that does to a workshop of 88 people. Put some reality in it. Really did. And the night before the Z's had been saying, live today, live and love your life boldly. Make sure you live in the moment and be fully present. And he died in the ocean. He had a a heart attack in the ocean and that was his happy place. And his wife said he couldn't have been in a more magical environment, which 
she was incredible. She was a, a real warrior and a real teacher for so many of us. So anyway, about three days after this, while holding the group together, I had a very powerful experience where I thought I was going to faint. We were all in the restaurant and I literally could feel my body was going to faint. I, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to fall over. Mm-hmm. I have to leave the table. So you can imagine when you have the whole place is your your group. Yeah, I did not want to fall over in front yeah, of the group. I mean, if I, if I did, I did, but I didn't want to do that. So I was very slowly walking to the garden where there was this massive Buddha that I had been communicating with all week. I'd just go and stand by him and I felt his energy. And at that moment, I literally had an experience where I knew I had to lie down, look up at the sky. And it was the last big awakening experience of my life. And it was suddenly just feeling we're everything. The, 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 the rain that was on the grass was me. I wasn't me. I was part of the trees. The Buddha was talking to me. The Buddha was saying, you can let go. Whatever was leaving my body, it was profound. And for about 12 minutes, I just felt completely connected to everything and completely not identified with myself. And when I came back, literally I heard, now your work gets serious. And it's not that I didn't take, I've always taken my work seriously, even though I have a sense of humor, but I felt that. And that was, that was November 2019. And of course, what happened four months later was profound. And so Mm -hmm. I'd often thought I'd stop channeling publicly. I've gone through that several times, but I, I decided to kind of commit to it again. And I think that coupled with what we need right now in society and that more people are waking up to what's going on. I think that's why the Z's are being more transparent Mm -hmm. about some of the control and corruption agendas that we actually are trapped within regardless of your spiritual life. We're getting into that today. Yeah. Because um, I found this um, with my own group of beings and other channelers who have groups of beings most did not want to get into that until something happened in recent times. And they're just starting to tiptoe in, but the Z's are going for it. They're actually going ahead and explaining what's happened. Not faces and names. We don't need that in terms of what's controlling us, but the nature of what's going on. And you're right. It's time that we start understanding the seas we're swimming in because it's all been kept from us. And I have notice as a channeler for now publicly for almost 19 years Mm -hmm. i'm always struck by what i will hear them saying to a group as information about what the group is ready for when i used to do one-on-ones i could tell where the person was at depending on how far they'd go so the fact that the z's keep coming out with this stuff and the fact that they are weaving it through this book series that diana and edwards and i are creating tells me a lot about the level of awareness that is rising on the planet around it. That they Otherwise, can speak they publicly be, in yeah. this way. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so on that same topic, before we go to the diseases, I want to ask you, um, you, you hear things all the time and you're given information privately. And we have a pretty savvy audience that's watching right now. Are there, uh, is there anything that pops out at you that you would have been hesitant to share that you've been told? before these times arrived that you feel is appropriate for the times now? They they alluded many years ago to me that when I was in my 60s, that one of my roles would be around peace and around peace 
not just on earth, but universally. Mm-hmm. And so if I look at that on a timeline now, I'm about, uh, what, four, we're about 14 years away from that period of time. Mm-hmm. So when they gave me that information, it was a decade ago and it, it seems. What did you take that to mean literally? It was slightly science fiction yeah. to me in yeah. a way because it seemed so far away. But I, what I was shown or what I understood was that the earth was no longer just the earth. There was, uh, an actualized experience that we are part of a universe and that there are other beings and other races and that there are multiple things going on. And they said, you will be one of many who are peace ambassador. Now, of course, I didn't assume that means I wear a robe and I give talks because as right, we know, right. some of the most important peace ambassadors we have on the planet are not public. But I found it very interesting that that was where we were heading. And so as little bits of information would start to come to me or be brought to me by certain friends, people tell me things which is helpful. They'll go, oh, I just heard this from this person I know who Mm -hmm. works here, and this is what I heard. And so it, it kind of started to give me a sense that where we're at right now, I'm like, oh, this is the beginning of that opening. This is the very beginning of that opening where the world does become very different. Okay. Right. Are you ready to yep. let the Z's come totally. through? Totally. Let me just have a little of this. Okay. Hmm. <clears throat> Good. A pleasure to be back with you in this conversation. And we will say to you uh, before we go into the many curated areas you wish to take us, uh, that one message for all, which relates to what you were just speaking to Lee about, is that the main focus that you must hold at this time, regardless of how you feel about what you see going on on earth or what distresses you or what seems a little alarming or unknown to you is love and power are the energies that you have been, we will say, disconnected from. And this passage of time that you are going through, which is quite, we would call it a trial and tribulation in many ways, is designed to help you unlock to your own love and power. These are incredible frequencies and your embodied power is when your life force can radiate and radiate not just in a way that serves you, but also serves those around you. So we would like to put that uh, out there up front that love and power is what you are reconnecting with, but it often requires wrestling with the shadows on earth wrestling with the shadows within your systems on earth and of course the shadows that come up inside you for clearing from this specific time you incarnated into and the timelines of earth's history that you both interact with the minute you are born and that many of you have soul memories of from prior lifetimes Mm. Mm, thank you for that and that's a, a perfect entree into the first thing I was going to ask you about, and uh, which I assume you know. And that has to do with uh, you're, you have become 
very forthcoming in the work that is being released now through these newest books, his book series, Conversations with Disease, a much more forthcoming about the stressors and influences upon earth, which you just alluded to. And I think people are very curious to know how that works, when it was put in place, why it was put in place, and what the purpose was for having put these restrictions in terms of our experiencing our full love and power, our full mind, our full everything, almost like a governor to slow a car down. Can you tell us all about that, please? Uh, Yes and no. We cannot tell you all about that for you would truly need to devote um, an hour to it in order to make sure that the nuances are discovered. Because Even with a group such as yours, Regina, those who align with you and what you say and what you do, this is triggering information. And we don't even mean emotionally or psychologically. So we understand that many of you will say, well, I already know a lot of this. But understand this energy that has been, we will say, woven into your planet to keep you all contained and limited and underneath far more of a gravity belt than your actual soul is designed to be. When it gets, shall we say, rumbled or activated, when it gets near to the idea that more is possible, or it starts to understand the level of suppression, it doesn't help your system. So it has to be done in a very delicate way, because your systems are what the future needs. You, each individually, have inside you, yes, the memory and the remembrance that as a soul, you are vast. And that when you return to the soul realms, you reenact with that vastness. But you all know very well that in many cases, uh, those who tune into you, and for example, you and Lee are among this group, many of you have parachuted to earth at this time to raise the frequency. And again, we will use this word, Uh, But you are involved in a historic galactic war. And that is what is playing out on Earth. Now, if you were to tell someone on Earth that, even someone who has a knowledge of it, their first thought can be to go into fear. And the fear is historic. Uh, We are not saying that the most educated person cannot somewhat mm, mm, remove themselves from the emotionalism that that word brings up. But that is why we say there is a limit to how much information we can give you in small doses. Uh, We will uh, at some point do a deeper dive on all of this. But at this point in time, uh, for us and our role on Earth and our contract with Earth, it is important for us to keep, shall we say, empowering the soldiers rather than giving the soldiers an educational history. There are others on Earth who do that. But to answer your question in short, Uh, What you have to understand is that Earth is not a place. Uh, Many think of it as a fixed uh, planet. Many think of the human race as a fixed race. You are all composites. Earth itself is a composite of other mm, mm, spheres of reality, mm, the energy of other planets in historic times. And it was decided that Earth could be what we would call or what you might understand as a safe place in the universe, which is the other side of this equation. Many of you look at what you see going on on Earth and you do not feel safe. And yet we'll tell you that Earth is a safe place in the universe right now. There have been many places throughout the universe that you would not have wanted to be, nor would life have been allowed to sustain. 
But there is a, shall we say, war going on inside the earth itself that has been going on for tens of thousands of years. And it is becoming, shall we say, uh, harder for that battle to maintain itself as the consciousness of the planet is rising. So that war is dying off. That doesn't mean war as an energy on the planet will die off completely at this point. It simply means that it will change. And so that is why so many of you are uh, beginning to see what Lee would refer to as the corruption in your systems. And you are a little more equipped to be able to see it. And there are uh, good days and bad days around this seeing. There are days where you are seeing that people or events or systems are being exposed and the public are beginning to see it and know it. And certain measures are taken to either quarantine that area or those people or remove that corruption. But of course, then the next day you hear of or see another one. Mm -hmm. That is because you are going through an asteroid field where the war on Earth is not only surfacing in a way that it has never surfaced in any of your multiple lifetimes, those of you who have incarnated here five or six times recently, but more importantly, it is moving towards the galactic center point. So you are going to see as a planet uh, more galactic awareness, contact, and we will say merging in the decades to come. Thank you. Thank you for that. One of the things that's happening as a result of this is people are feeling on an unconscious level um, the need to throw off these shackles, uh, regardless of who placed them there, where they're from, and how long they've been. We feel this resistance where we're starting to buck against, which is causing an extreme rise in anger on the planet. And so my question to you is, oftentimes anger is a catalyst toward action. Is there, what would be the proper relationship to the anger stemming from feelings of unfairness? What would be maybe the most positive way in which we can use those feelings? Well, we will say there are two ways of looking at this. There are those who do not, we will say, as yet understand their feelings. And there are those who do. So the group who don't yet understand their feelings, who believe that anger is what they become, uh, mm-hmm. they are so convinced that their anger is now their personality, they don't tend to do so well. They either lash out, take revenge, uh, behave in bombastic or inflated ways because they do not realize anger is driving their car. Whereas there are those who are aware of uh, their emotions and have some understanding that The emotional system is a field of movement that moves through you Mm -hmm. and that your relationship to it and awareness of it is something that you must be mindful of in order to be a whole integrated being. So that group can use anger as a wonderful signal that something needs to change. Anger is often a boundary. You might get near somebody that you do not feel aligned with and you start to feel a little agitated, irritated or frustrated. Now, if you can truly notice that, you will see that that's your signal to move away from this person. This is not your place. It's not either that you have to judge this person for who they are. Don't get into all of that old human stuff. Just move away. But in the case that you are bringing up of people getting angry, their anger is coming because they are recognizing they are being suppressed and oppressed. Yes. And anger is often uh, the moment where you break through suppression and oppression. Now, for many of these beings, it's a wake up call that their system is not safe, 
in the way that they thought it was. Uh, we have to be careful here for there are elements of your systems right now that if they disappeared tomorrow, you, none of you would do very well. Mm-hmm. So it is not to villainize the system itself. It is to recognize the seeds of corruption that built the system and to see if this is the moment in history where Earth as a humanity it can rise against that in the various ways it's happening. It doesn't always look like revolution on the streets. For many, there are energy workers right now who are raising frequencies in areas they go to and visit. So uh, anger is very important. It is a signal. It should be a temporary emotion. It is not something any of you should feel for very long. So if you are, however, someone who is coming to your anger for the first time, it might rage through you like a fire. And it might take a while for it to calm down because that is your life force. So anger is a warning. It is a protector. It is a boundary. If you can start to see it that way, it will serve you well. And for the many who right now are having a terrible time in suffering and are feeling angry about the system that is trying to keep them down, that anger is going to be fuel for the people revolution. And again, When we say revolution, many of you think of past revolutions you have seen. This one will be quite different. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. And on the flip side of anger, many people are also feeling the feelings of helplessness, like uh, like a true victimhood, like this is bigger than we can even understand. How can we ever move against it? So let's talk about what happens when someone sinks into despair and helplessness. Well, despair as a mm, brief experience is important for many of you. It is often a, a place where you eliminate sadness from not just your own energy field, but sadness you have picked up from others. Mm-hmm. So despair and hopelessness, when you sink, uh, what is happening is you are, shall we say, overtaken by the density of sadness, hopelessness, and despair. And what occurs for you is you can no longer reach your higher vibrations. Mm -hmm. You can no longer reach the higher parts of you. So the reason some are in despair right now is because they are in shock and grief as to what they are seeing. The reason others are in despair right now is because they are buying the narrative they are being sold. And you can't blame them for that. Everybody is looking for information right now. Uh, The question is, how deeply uh, are they looking at the information, analyzing the information and feeling the information? Mm -hmm. There are many who are desperately trying to cling on to anything. And so if the information serves their emotional resonance, they will dive into it hook, line and sinker. It is no different than getting yourself into a relationship uh, and declaring to everybody that this is the truest love of your life because you are having all of the happy romance hormones. And then two years later, you are moving out with a black eye. <laughs> so you see, you have to be very careful when emotion is allowed to lead. And there are many on the planet right now who are in despair because one of the mainstream narratives that you have been witnessing over the recent, not just the past few years, but indeed it has been building for decades, is that this is what's going to happen on the planet. This is how you are going to suffer because of it. And this is the solution we are offering you to get through it. And not many are asking, is this true? Is this highly accurate? And is the solution the best solution we have available to us? So the amnesia uh, that many have on Earth right now is they do not remember a time where they were in oneness. 
they remember a time where they are in this government formation and they have got used to being told what to do, what they're allowed. It's no different to the school system. You have to behave. You have to trust the teacher. Well, uh, most people are beginning to question what is going on uh, on the planet. And your mainstream media is, we will say, insidiously scaring you all to death. Uh, it is doing it insidiously because it's peppering in enough hope, enough entertainment that you keep going back to that mainstream source of information uh, while you are also being indoctrinated to believe you are doomed. And we do not see it that way. No, thank you so much for that. And then when you get into alternate media, alternative media, then you have to look at it from both sides. It enslaves from both sides. It's just a little more polite polite language versus recognizable language. Both seem to lead us to the same place of despair. Well, you also have to remember that many who come here to fight the oppression, and this is something you and Lee were speaking on earlier personally, uh, many who come here to fight the oppression were the oppressors in a prior lifetime. So, for example, Mm -hmm. someone who is very agitated by dictators and decides that they are here to take down the dictator, they quite likely were a dictator in some way, shape or form in their prior life. Doesn't mean they ran a country, but they may have been dictatorial in the way that they did not treat the humans Mm -hmm. around them. So they come back for karmic balance to help balance their own journey and balance the planet. It's why we say you have to be a little careful about simply heaping judgment on each other. Yes. Because if you go back in time (laughs) far enough, you would be a little horrified at some of the things that you have done at other times, other places, and at different levels of consciousness. Yes. So you were on the subject of media. So I think let's go ahead and continue on that. So I was reading a document yesterday that was released, and there's a big thing uh, about Twitter here on Earth right now, that files are being released about information that has been uh, kept or spun from humanity. And the shocking thing about this particular article had to do with the positioning. This happened to be around the subject of health, COVID, vaccines, but that the companies that were positioning these influential, making influential uh, positions were children's shows, exploratory shows on documentaries, history, and so forth. These mainstream outlets that we think of as benign and we think of as educational actually have been uh, to a good extent co-opted. Can you expand on that? Well, most who are listening to or watching this are quite aware of the levels of corruption that run through various areas of your mainstream society. And again, we will go back to this is the time when more on the planet will start to see this. This will happen for two reasons. Uh, we will say that the moves that are being made are bolder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is a little more in people's faces. But also uh, there are many on the planet who are on the side of freedom for the earth who have even lost faith that any mm, new revelations could be genuine. There is this perception that it's all controlled. So there is this idea that many have where they say, well, uh, this person is being controlled, so they're allowed to give us a certain amount of information. We would say, don't be so sure. We're not saying that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But what we are saying is there is a wealth of information that is now coming out that is coming out all over the world in different ways at different times. And the end goal of that is to wake up enough people that enough people start to question the narrative 
next time they are pushed, and we will say pushed into fear. Yes. Because if you can get people into fear and then offer them solutions out of their fear, because most people do not know how to be with their emotions, nor have they really stopped to consider what life is, which is from our perspective, and this might be a little cold for some, it's a hollow deck. So you see uh, from our vantage point uh, and the vantage point of you as a soul, you are in a hollow deck simulation experience that will not last for that long in linear time. And yet the joy of this game is to cling to it so deeply, so personally, uh, that when you are asked to fear for your life, you will do anything to stay on the holodeck if you aren't paying attention to the options you are being given. Now, the other side of this is people will often say, well, if it's a holodeck, why come, how come awful things happen to certain people on the planet? And we are saying, yes, there are some terrible events that some go through, but all of you go through awful things. There is not one person on the planet who does not go through some level of suffering on earth because suffering is one of the frequencies on earth and it will not change until there is a radical overhaul of the consciousness of the planet. And that's the journey that you are all moving through right now. Thank you. The holodeck, the notion of a holodeck, a lot of people find themselves feeling disempowered at the notion that this is a holodeck. But when we stop and consider that we are non-material by nature, there's you can see us, there's no there there, um, a few atoms swirling about in space. And then it makes sense to understand that these thought forms we create, these frequencies we're bathed in, do create essentially a holodeck. And that's nothing to be afraid of. It's just living in this dimensional frequency. Yes, and we will go one step further. If you were what we would call a very high frequency planet and a very high frequency race, and it was uh, determined that for the balance of you as a race and for the balance of the planet, you all needed to ground a bit more rather than having channelers uh, or uh, voices of spirit that you connect with in yourself. You would have people teaching you how to judge, how to hate, right. how to to bring the level down. Now, we are not saying that you have to judge or hate to bring the level down. There are other ways to do it. But our point to you is you are not a planet right now that needs to go backwards. You are a planet that needs to include the higher dimensions, which is why when we say a holodeck, because from our perspective, that is how we see it. And we can be, as you might say, that clinical about it because we are not uh, in a human body right now, although that's arguable because we are halfway into his body at this point. Uh, but our point to you is it's not that you have to not see humanity or Earth as real. But it is that you mustn't see it as the only real thing. It's being able to move your eyes around. So today I am seeing this from a higher perspective. Tomorrow I might be in despair because I need to burn off some sadness. But I'm never going to forget that the other dimensions of existence and seeing and being aren't within me. Mm -hmm. And so before we get into the whole notion of how we're using crystalline structures within the earth and their auric fields, I would like you to explain a bit more about the earth's other dimensions, because we tend to think of earth as just this dimension we're experiencing, rather than it as a being in its full multidimensionality as well. So if you could tell us what, say, the next finer uh, frequency dimensions would look like or be like, or how they would function from your perspective, tell us about earth from a higher dimensional look. 
Well, to do that, we first want to take you into the Earth, so into the center of the Earth, and we will describe it this way. Uh, the center of your Earth is more of a mirror and more of a portal than many would perceive it to be, meaning the very center of your Earth, the core, has connections galactically to so many other places, planets, dimensions. It is not mm, 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 solid the way many may perceive it to be. It is highly, highly active, the center of your Earth. It is very electrical, and because of that, it is able to connect across time, space, matter, and move. So if we were to give you a, a very uh, human example of it, we could say, well, the center of your Earth is a teleportation station. And you can teleport from the very center of your Earth to other places, to other universes, to other times. Uh, that is the best way we can describe to you what elementally is taking place in the center of your Earth. So uh, when you realize that, therefore, your gravity has to be very pinned in, uh, we often refer to this as programming. You all have human programming. Your society has been programmed to some degree to hold you on the surface of the Earth. You often think that the gravity is coming from above, uh, that you had to drop from above and you had to land into the Earth. You were actually being pulled down by the Earth as well as activated by the Earth at the same time. Many of you are aware uh, that the energy of the inside of the Earth is actually what is causing the shift in consciousness on your planet right now. It reverberates up through the surface and moves through your bodies. But equally, you are being pulled toward the center of the Earth. So no wonder being human feels so discombobulated <laughs> because you are far more in movement than any of you have ever been allowed to understand. And that is why so many of you, when you reconnect to your spirit, your higher self, your guide team, uh, whatever it is that puts you into that place where you are expanded again, suddenly it makes more sense to you. And most of you can't and won't maintain it. For example, Lee shared his personal awakening story in 2019, the latest one he had. Uh, he can't stay there because that's not his job. He could have left. Uh, that was one of his exit points. Uh, but he chose to stay and he chose to come back and he chose to double down. And the gravity of the earth welcomed him back once his soul had made the decision to stay. So we have gone a little off from the question okay. that you originally asked, <laughs> but it felt important for us to share that piece in yes. response to the words you gave us. Oh, my goodness. And I'm, I have a thousand. Now I could go in a thousand directions. OK, a glimpse of what the dimension beyond in a finer frequency range where we are right now, the dimension above what a glimpse of what life is like there, how it expresses. Well, the thing we will say to you is twofold. At this moment in time, you are centering what some of you would call the fourth dimension on earth with options to go into the fifth and the third. So you can go a little up and down. And when we say you are centering, we mean that is mainstream consciousness. So mm -hmm. mainstream consciousness is far more, uh, fourth dimensional than most of you yet understand because the language is taking time to catch up. People are having mystical, unexplainable experiences that they have been trained to not speak to each other about. They have been trained through use of taboo manipulation and in certain periods of history, let's burn those witches so they don't talk about these things. And of course, that was just a great way to get rid of powerful women. Uh, we will say 
that the fourth dimensional experiences that many are having on earth is what makes this time so different. Unfortunately, many uh, tend to think the reason they feel so strange about the world is because of what they see going on outside them. They don't realize what's going on inside them also does not match up mm-hmm. to where they were anymore. So fourth dimension is the norm at this point. And we see by 2030, there is the potential that the fifth could begin to ground. If things do not go at the same speed, it would ground by approximately 2040, but no later, because it simply won't be possible for it to take longer than that. So uh, life at the next level for many, or for those who live in the fifth dimension, we will say love and harmony are very present. It doesn't mean that you don't occasionally run into areas where love or harmony are not the norm, but you are not dragged out of love and harmony because you encounter them. So there are many today who are living in the most compassionate state that they are loving, for they are no longer knocked off center by the mm, bruises and wounds that uh, humans like to throw around in order to check, are we connected? Let's try connecting through heartbreak. Oh, good. Now I feel connected. What they don't know is the kicker is going to come in six months time when heartbreak is not a sustainable connection point. So, uh, we can go on if you wish us to. But no, we- no, let's, I mean, yes, I would love to. If we had a three hour show, we'd go down every road. But since we don't, thank you so much for at least explaining up to the fifth that we're looking at our potential, uh, certainly by 2040, of moving into a more um, homeostasis of love and harmony. And, and that's beautiful. we will clarify that not every single member of the population has to be in that position for it to be the dominant mm-hmm. theme. Okay, wonderful. We, I want to talk about the exit points because um, this is, I found a really interesting portion of your work with uh, Lee. And also you just mentioned that Lee could have left during that experience in 2019. Yes, he did not know that. Yes. And one of the things I learned in this, this particular book was that we may have as many as a hundred different exit points. When I had previously believed we had a few, some people believe there's only one and it's set. So can you tell us How fluid our life and our connection to our physical really is? Yes. So exit points is a concept that we gave to Lee approximately a decade ago. And we noticed when we gave him that it opened his frequency fast. So it is something that we have been speaking about more liberally because it tends to wake you up and put you back in the present moment and make you remember that life is a gift and it is not promised. So exit points are periods of time in your life. They may last for 10 minutes. They may last for 10 days where you and your soul have the opportunity to take you off planet. So, for example, there are some of you who have had near death experiences. There are some of you who have come back from those and have chosen to come back. But you were very clear it was an exit point, And that is similar to what Lee went through in Costa Rica. Uh, the other side of this is your soul and you get the opportunity to decide if it is pertinent for you to carry on. So if an exit point was hanging around you for 10 days, you might not be feeling great when this happens, but equally, you could be feeling higher than ever. (laughs) You could be feeling happier than ever, like you've accomplished more in your life than you ever possibly knew. And at that moment, There is a window of time where your soul, without your human necessarily understanding what's Mm -hmm. going on, is in negotiation to ask, is this the right time for you to die? And this is the piece that many people don't quite understand. Your death is never just about you. Yes. Ever. 
your death is perfectly timed for the group that are left behind. And yes, we know some of you like to never see other humans and shut yourself away in the house. Even you, <laughs> your death and your energy field disappearing from that house at the end of the street that you never leave is going to vibrationally affect not only that whole street, but your area. You see, you all have an incredible uh, part to play in the energy grid that you hold while you are incarnate. And of course, if you have loved ones, how they are affected by your death and the timing of the death is key because death creates a ripple of awakening. It wakes up everyone near to it. Even if grief is the dominant experience that you are distracted by, remember, grief is a transformational energy. And when you get close to a death window, you return to the place of your birth, which is the moment where you came back to the earth and agreed to forget where you had just come from. So death energy is very potent and exit windows are things that are actually pre-programmed for you throughout your life. So some might decide their life might go as long as 100 years and they are going to plot 25 exit points through their journey and those exit points will activate when they complete certain themes or levels of their life. So for example, you had to come to earth to forgive. Oh good, by the age of 42, you figured that out. You now know how to forgive. Good, let's wheel an exit point in and see if you want to keep playing the game or if this is the time for you to go. So there are those among you who know exactly what we are talking about because you feel it when it's happening. There are, and Lee has been in this situation too, where you feel that things are perhaps just a little too permeable in your life <laughs> and you aren't quite sure what's going on. So we always say, if ever you get that feeling, you don't need to go into fear, but you may need to have the awareness to say, ah, I just had a strange vision of me having a car accident mm -hmm. and I'm driving down the freeway. Uh, I am going to intend, I am going to be safe. I'm going to drive well. I'm not going to uh, have any accident and you may even want to pull over or change the route. So we always say if you are cognizant of your exit windows, you have a choice. So <laughs> allow yourself to be involved. Thank you. I think that's um, very empowering for many people listening to this. And it certainly was for me. And I think on a personal level, I think I've already had quite a few exit points. But if I may ask, this I was tumbling underneath the Truckee River when I was 26 years old. It's all a blackout. I don't know how I lived. I don't know how I ended up popping up somewhere down river um, just with amnesia, basically. Can you tell me what actually happened? Oh. I went underwater and that was it. Well, we can, I thought I was dead. We can tell you two things uh, uh, and we will disclose uh, some personal things about you, which uh, if you That's do not fine. want them left in the show, you can always edit them out. <laughs> ha. Uh, you are a tricky one when it comes to mm, being on Earth because you are crystalline in nature. Mm -hmm. It is why you do the job you do and it is why you have the mission you have. And of course, like many who tune into you, you don't always love what's going on on Earth, even though you have cultivated a very strong and resilient way of approaching life with not naive optimism, but a certain level of optimism that you are here for a journey of growth and change. So you are, shall we say, on the earth in that level of consciousness. But your body has always been something that you weren't 100% sure was actually attached to your soul. True. So you have an experience where you can speak to your body and you can ask your body to do things. But most other people 
are actually a little more twinned with their body. Mm-hmm. And there is more of, or we should say less of a gap between the instruction <laughs> to the body of what the body needs to do. Whereas you are almost uh, six feet above your body, yeah. uh, telling it what to do and telling it how to go places. And you do enjoy physical things about life and that is good, but you've had to cultivate a special relationship with your own body. So uh, what we will tell you uh, about the exit point you describe in your 20s, that was your 17th. And that was a ferocious uh, period for you. Your life pre-40 has uh, been mm, a lot more challenging than your life post-40. And that is saying something. (laughs) For you, like all on earth, are going through all kinds of different challenges Mm -hmm. right now around the identity you thought you had, mm-hmm. uh, where you find yourself. That specific uh, death was actually a rebirth. So you I opted for water to rebirth your soul. You were born with a particular level of courage, which is required for the job that you do. Uh, you were born with a alignment to truth and the courage to push through barriers and people that might be stopping you from getting there. And you had to learn to be a little more considerate. <laughs> you had to learn to be a little more mindful of people's feelings in your earlier life. Not that you weren't uh, compassionate in your heart, but you didn't always understand the ripple effect your courage and your power could have on others. And as you grew, you understood that. But this was the beginning of that understanding. This late 20s mm-hmm. moment for you was you agreeing to come back and live an even more human life after that point. And that rebirth in cold water was very important for you because it shocked your electrical system and it actually rewired you into your body in a deeper way than you had ever been before, which is in Still some ways strange <laughs> because you were a physical young person. You were someone who had an alignment with physicality. You were not someone who was afraid of being physical in the body, but when you were in that alignment, It was how you felt connected to your body. And that is often the case. People who need to, uh, we shall say, be very sporty, very active. It is often the way they are keeping themselves in a body Mm -hmm. that they sometimes feel a little disconnected from. But that was your water rebirth. And that Mm -hmm. was a turning point for you in your Mm -hmm. future. And you started to spiritually align in a deeper way after that point. Uh, You were following your path in a more, shall we say, human way up Mm -hmm. to then. Yes, I would say that is true. Very good. Well, thank you so much for uh, that elucidation on that experience. And also, I hope some people have found themselves in this as well, because, again, you said that was the 17th exit point. I I think I was always trying to get out of the body. Yes, but you only had three that were dramatic like that. Yes, and several cents. So thank you. Final thoughts that you would you would like us to know before we depart from this conversation. Hmm. This has been very powerful. Well, uh, a couple of different things. Hmm. Uh, We are a remembrance chamber and our job is to mm, activate remembrance in all of you. And our job is completely personal to you. Uh, Obviously, we have a contract with Lee and Lee has a contract with us and there is that side of it. But when we are emitting what we are emitting, it is not important that you agree with us that you align with us, it is not important. And there will be certain things we say that you will not align with, even if others you really do. Our job is not to tell you what's happening. Our job is to help you remember what's happening. Because everything that's playing out on Earth right now is scripted. You are actually on an ancient loop 
on Earth. The difference is Earth has never looked like this. And Earth's position galactically, meaning how close it is to the uh, galactic boundary being broken, uh, is very unique. And certainly for many of you who have gone through multiple cycles of lifetimes on Earth, uh, the reason many of you feel nervous at a time like this is not because of what you are being told or what you are fearing is going to happen. You are nervous because you are going to spiritually die. Why do you think so many of you are fixated on death right now? Why do you think it's all over your world? Why do you think people are afraid of it? We say, good, you're going to die. What a beautiful release. You will be shocked how wonderful actual death is for you once you have left your body. So we are never worried about that for you. But your spiritual death is a different matter. If consciousness is rising and you are dying to the old consciousness in yourself that you were, this makes you nervous. Why? Many of you have done a lot of work on creating a grounded, wide vessel in which your energy field can thrive on Earth. So the idea that it might be taken from you or destabilized makes some of you nervous. So we want you to just consider this idea that you are facing over the next decade or two, a form of spiritual death of what you thought Earth was and how you feel about it. And hear us not through your mind with that sentence. Because if you hear us through your mind, many of you will go, oh, yes, well, I've known this is coming for 30, 40 years and I've been waiting for it. No, no, you're not hearing us. That's mental. You're hearing information and you're nodding your head. It's your energy field that is going to have to go through this. Your mind is documenting past and potential future information. Your energy field is going to have to go through this. So from our perspective, what you are all in right now is a spiritual death and rebirth cycle that is very intense for you, very potent. But, and we have said this all along, the gifts, the love, the harmony, the power that you will access, the connection that you will access is unlike anything you've accessed on earth before. So you might say, so we have to take the rough with the smooth. And we would say, uh, you have to release the rough as you go to the smooth. And many of you are made up of events on Earth that are not high frequency. And so because you have ingested those, and in many cases, you have even formed your personality around some of those things, you now have to let them come out of your body. And so it will happen in two ways. It will happen simply on a cosmic mystical level. You will have your own series of awakenings. You will have your own revelations. You will have your own visions. And then it will happen on a mirror reality level. Something will happen outside you that will trigger a response. Somebody dies is a good example of this. It triggers a response in you because what's actually happening when that person leaves the planet, you are having to reorganize your inner self on a molecular, emotional and psychological level because you were tethered to them in some mirroring way. And now they cannot play that in the physical. So what does it do? It completely upends and rearranges you. This is why we call grief the great transformer. Mm -hmm. So we understand that grief for many of you is an undesirable state. We would say it's the way through. So there will be some grief in the years and the decades to come. And planetary grief is going to be something you will deal with. But it's not something that should make you hide in your house. It's something that should make you recognize rebirth is taking place. And we will close with this. It is very easy to listen to even a conversation like this that is taking in high frequency, but is addressing 
low frequencies on the planet and to not feel uplifted. Sometimes you can, but other people will not. Things may have been named in this conversation that make them uncomfortable. We have said this to you before and we must reiterate it again. We know that many of you are worried that you are under control. You are not controllable. You are not controllable. And you may argue that because you will say, well, how come there are pockets on Earth right now where we are seeing control or there are whole countries who are far more controlled than others? We understand it exists. And we also understand that there are movements in place for it to become more overarching. And we know that brings you fear. But you as a race simply are not allowed to be controlled on levels of consciousness. So we want you to remember your power as a people. We know it is hard in the dark nights or moments, but it is your power as a people and a group consciousness and a sharing, caring community that is not only going to pull you all through this period of time, but is going to contribute toward the destabilization and annihilation of certain groups who would rather see you living in a more inhumane, more held down way. So it's a rocky road you are in right now for sure. But we want to remind you, you are not just here on a hollow deck walking through some script that's already decided for you and the ending isn't good. If you feel that and you think that, we truly need you to wake up. Because otherwise, you will agree to the disempowering end that you are forecasting for yourself and that certain others would like to convince you is where things are going. If nothing else, ask yourself, why am I here? What am I here to do? How can I influence what's going on on this planet? And don't judge the answer. If sitting at home by yourself, meditating for the next 10 years is how you do it, great. If writing some book is how you do it, great. Doesn't matter the form. The intention is everything. Absolutely beautiful. In summary, we have each other and we're also mirrors for each other when we're starting to break through and we can see this in one another and we should herald that and respect one another for it. It sounds like as humanity, we can be tricked but we can't truly be controlled in the truest sense of the word. Yes, and community, as you have just said, is key. Yes. So stay close to your chosen communities and be willing to outreach and include others in the years to come. You will all need each other, but you will all be stronger because of each other. Yes. Thank you so much. A lot of absolutely necessary uh, conversation here today. In peace and in love to you, Regina. And all of your dear people, ha. And love back. Oh, my heavenly day. We are community, everyone. <laughs> I just start laughing during some of it. Just what a, what a wonderful, wild, direct ride. Thank you for, thank you for being here and for not quitting the channeling thing. Cause I talked to you through the, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> we are community, everyone. And we are ready for a little bit of a break. I think we have much to be thankful for, for what we have been given to listen to this afternoon. I hope you feel the same. We'll see you in a little while. Satnam for now, everyone.
Stay. 
was a mist near the secret of the train. Sitting for the great apostle of the ghost band. Stick to you, Richard. Hello, Richard. <laughs> yes. Oh, there you are. Over yonder. Oh, yeah. What's up? What's up? Yeah. 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 Uh, we're in Taurus now. You sound like you're having a long day. Well, they're all 24 hours plus or minus. <laughs> yeah, that's just true. No, I was just I was just looking up the the speed of mercury. Which is uh, minus 10 minutes per day. It's now retrograde. Mercury retrograde. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's at 16 degrees of Taurus, conjunct Uranus at 18 degrees. And it's heading towards the sun, which is at 3 degrees, conjunct the north node. And somewhere around, I guess, in about maybe a week, we'll see Mercury conjunct Sun. Mm -hmm. Uh Mm Uh-huh. Let me, I can probably, I think I, did I do this? I already did. Yeah, I already calculated. Where's 429? 429. Next Saturday, put... Mercury at 13 and the sun at 10. So uh, that's what that's going on here. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Close. That's getting pretty close. That's tight. Yeah, yeah. So planting season in the temperate zone is in full swing. All right, Neptune is still at 29, Saturn is at 5, Pisces. Pluto is still where Pluto is at 1, Aquarius. And the moon's in Gemini tonight, conjuncting Venus this week. 
let's see. That will be, Moon conjunct Venus will be exact in, call it two days. So Monday we start the week with Moon conjunct Venus. Mars is at 15. Cancer, right smack in the middle. Uh-huh. And Chiron is at 17 Aries. That's kind of right in the middle. And Jupiter, Jupiter's at 25 Aries. Okay. So that's that's where that's at. And uh, I don't know. I don't, you know, I, I was surprised this week when at the end of last week I made a comment about about Pluto square the eclipse. Right. And the Sudan brouhaha blew up the next day. It sure did, and it hasn't calmed down much at all. No, it's the, uh, it's two men with personal grievances, I think. The yeah. two generals over there. And, and so and all the... The civilians are getting caught in the crossfire. That's not so cool. Well, the innocents always get caught in the crossfire. Yeah. You know. But then again, uh, you might take the view that it's karma working itself out. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. But see, people are so stupid, they continue to create negative karma for themselves. Oh, brother. Right? Right. And that's that's true of of all actors that act opposite to love. If you if you're any action that's opposite to love, you got to make restitution. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of restitution going on. When you all, have... Well, it happens all the time. I mean, in, in you know, in, in, in yeah, families, in every place, you know. It's always... What I'm saying is when you have a lot of power and then you slaughter a whole pile of people, then you got a lot of restitution to make. That's right. You know, spend a lot of time in hell. <laughs> yep. All right, let's go see what Kaipach is thinking about this week. Okay, here we go. Okay, hola, it's Guy Pacha with the weekly Paley Report for uh, Wednesday, April 19th of uh, Great Year 2023. This is the Paley Report on the run, man. I am in between the freaking dentist appointment and the doctor's appointment. Uh, the moon is conjunct Chiron uh, last night, but as far as I'm concerned, it's still there. <laughs> Yikes. Sun square Pluto. Okay, so we have here we have a, a total solar eclipse, right? Square Pluto. I mean, it's like if if a solar eclipse isn't enough, 
let's just put it in square to Pluto to see what we can really do to ourselves. Oh, my God. So, anyway, the sun and the moon both, you know, uh, jump into Taurus shortly after this eclipse. Oh, look at it. We got some artists out here. Cool. Cool. Neat. I'm going to stack some rocks one of these days when I'm hanging out. Anyway, uh, what else is going on? So, you know, the, yeah, so uh, they, they all go into Taurus, you know, and uh, hits the north node. Obviously, it's a north node's there at like four degrees of Taurus. And, uh, and then the moon moves into Gemini uh, by Thursday, uh, uh, by uh, Saturday. Saturday, Gemini, slow down a little bit, and moves through Gemini. Obviously then trines Pluto for a second there, scoots up, square Saturn, before she heads into Cancer, and it's Cancer on Monday, and that's the traveling of the moon. <laughs> Jupiter is conjunct Eris, the great goddess of discord, uh, through this whole time period, this entire freaking week. And for the, uh, you know, Mercury goes retrograde, okay, on Friday. It'll be retrograde for three weeks, uh, going all the way back to five degrees of Taurus. Um, it's at 15 so if you got anything between 5 and 15 of the fixed signs, you're going to really be feeling that uh, Mercury retrograde. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, perhaps. And, uh, yeah, I think that's that's mostly what I want to be discussing with you is this uh, the total solar eclipse. And, yeah, so let me look at the camera and uh, see what I can come up with. All right, everybody. Oh, still feeling a little bit of that Novocaine. <laughs> I told them, give me half as much because they overdo it. Oh, man. Anyway, uh, what's going on here? Okay, I, I read you know, I read a lot last week. I'm not going to read so much this week. Um, I mean, I, I'm not going to read it all, but... Today, tonight, actually, here in California, okay, and it's actually tomorrow over on the East Coast. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, but it is a total solar eclipse that is coming in right now, and it's big. I think it's, you know, I think it's, it's very powerful. Uh, it is conjunct, and the, it's at 29 degrees, 50 minutes of Aries. The North Node is at four degrees, you know, something of Taurus. So that's very, you know, very close to the Moon's Node. And that is where the Moon hits the ecliptic. That is what makes eclipses. And this is a North Node eclipse. So, like, I, I spoke a lot, a lot about this last week. Um, and, you know, any planet near its North Node, it's very powerful. So the Moon has dominance over this eclipse because she's on her own north node. Now, the full moon lunar eclipse coming up in two weeks, the sun is going to be the dominant factor, okay? So it's going to be a switch. So let's look at that. The moon is the past, 
It's our childhood. It's our subconscious emotional needs. It's, uh, you know, our habitual patterns. It's non-rational, non-logical. Feelings don't have, you know, reason behind them. They just are. <laughs> so this can be a time where you are experiencing feelings that maybe make no sense, but you're feeling them anyway. <laughs> And you need to express them or, you know, it's Aries, so you need to put them out there. And ah, so it can be a, you know, kind of a frustrating, irritating time of getting in touch maybe with some anger. We know that anger is a secondary emotion. There are reasons underneath. There's experiences. Okay, there's wounds. There's trauma. You know, anger is just like the tip of the iceberg. So we want to use this time as an opportunity, okay, for digging a little deeper down into our psyche, okay, you know, like, what does that remind me of? Who is this person that's pissing me off? You know, who do they really represent? Is that my mom? Is that my dad? Did they do that same thing to me? You know, I mean, go back, go back, go down, go in, go to past lives, go wherever you want, but, you know, try to uh, take what's happening now as a, you know, as an opportunity to self-discover. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about self-discovery. So let me go into a little bit about, uh, I wrote the Lunar Planner uh, last night in a rush, two days late, because there's like too much going on. <laughs> but you can read the Lunar Planner because I think that uh, I don't want to repeat myself but I want to go farther. I want to elucidate a little more on what I wrote about uh, last night. The Lunar Planner, I kind of, you know, with the new moon, I give like a monthly overview. So let's look at the, you know, the longer picture a little bit here. And I talk about Lilith, okay? She's going back and forth mostly through Leo, okay, through this whole time period. And if we actually look at the mean motion of Lilith, She's going to be, she's in Leo pretty much moving very slowly from January to October of this year. The mean motion is the mean average motion. I use true Lilith. So she's actually in zero degrees Virgo right now at the time of the eclipse. But then she's going to retrograde all the way back to Cancer. And then she's going to go forward all the way up into Virgo, retrograde to Leo. Forward to Virgo, retrograde Leo. I mean, she's she's moving, baby. And she represents the shadow element of the lunar feminine forces. Yeah, she is our Kali energy. She is that shadow. And shadow is what we suppress, deny, refuse to believe about ourselves, even though it is a deeply uh, pattern, uh, you know, a deeply ingrained pattern within us and you know so she's moving through leo and like i talk about in, in the lunar planner mars moving through cancer okay and south node of the moon moving through scorpio with this eclipse happening in aries i mean this is just like it's a big drive it's a big push for more 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 power, more security, more territory, okay? You know, it's, you know, 
Russia wants Ukraine, and this wants Ukraine, and China wants Taiwan, and this, da, da, da. you can look at it on the, you know, on the big platform, or you can look at it inside yourself. I want more money. I want more loving. Okay, I, yeah, I want uh, more subscribers. <laughs> I want more, 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 more. But guess what, folks? Sorry, the well is dry. We are in a period of decrease. Capricorn to Pisces. Yeah. Saturn going down. Pluto. Okay. Entered Capricorn 2008. Descending to zero Aries. Closing cycles. Neptune at the very, very, very final degrees of Pisces. So we've got three biggies here that are saying it's over, done, finished, goodbye. <laughs> Pluto starts a new cycle, I think it's in 2068. Yeah? So, you know, we are in a detach, release, let go, surrender. And, and, and this time period now, Jupiter moving into Taurus. Did I mention that? <laughs> uh, Jupiter's also going into Taurus. Sun, Moon, Jupiter, all moving into Taurus, okay, shortly now. And, you know, a lot of people go, oh, Jupiter in Taurus, Jupiter in the second house, that's more money, you know, and, and, and I'm going to expand my bank account, and, you know, and it's like, no, not necessarily, not necessarily. Maybe Bank of America will build up its bank account <laughs> with your money. <laughs> <laughs> but what we're really looking at here is inner work. It's all about the inner work. Pisces and Taurus, feminine signs. Okay, this is about, and this is what the mantra this week is about. It's not measuring ourselves according to our material, physical, financial appearances, worldly, uh, you know, power. We are more than that. We are beyond this. This is the third dimension out of at least 13. Let's get over, you know, comparing ourselves, measuring ourselves, valuing ourselves according to capitalistic, materialistic, you know, uh, Western uh, bullshit. I mean, really. Uh, so, because these things are transient, this is temporal, this is temporary. Saturn, the Lord of Time, okay, you know, moving through Pisces is telling us, all right, you know, it's time for us to be looking up, out, beyond. Open the crown chakra, Pisces rules the crown chakra. Do your mystical meditations, okay. Find yourself in other higher spiritual frequencies and realms and dimensional realities. This is not all there is. The more that we attach to the temporary, the more disappointment, disillusionment, decline, fear, uh, insecurities, anxiety, sleep loss, uh, stress... You name it, you know, it's like, let's not, let's not hold on to things 
or overvalue things, and I mean things in particular, things are having to do with the physical material world, yeah? But to like really value love, heart, compassion, beauty, aesthetics, flowers, birds, geese, the duck pond. So this solar eclipse is happening on the duck pond. I, yeah. I talked about it last week. I, I, I wrote out the whole thing in the Lunar Planner, so you can check out that Lunar Planner. And let me just briefly, okay, mention it again. But I'm going to mention some other things while I've got your ear. And that is, yeah, I'm leaving for Greece in a couple of weeks, baby. And talk about healing wounds, healing trauma, doing a whole workshop on Chiron, healing our wounds on the island of Evia. Yeah, that is where Chiron lived. Super powerful. I'm doing another healing workshop in Athens, right at the foot of the Parthenon. I mean, it's it's amazing doing some psychotherapy work there also, along with the astrology. Check it out. If that's not enough, I'm also, you know, doing composite relationship chart work online for those of you that can't travel or whatever, you know, and are really wanting to delve into your relationships and partnerships because uh, very much this is where it's at. This is where a lot of growth is happening right now. South node of the moon moving through Scorpio and going to be going into Libra. Yeah, because they go retrograde. And this balancing, I talked about it in the Lunar Planner again, between giving and taking. Yeah? Taurus is learning how to receive, but what I really want to talk about here is this inner work, and Taurus is about building up our resources, building up our value, making ourselves more valuable. How do you make yourself more valuable? You learn something. <laughs> You know, we got we got Venus moving through Gemini, okay, and 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 we've got, you know, all of this Taurus is about skill set development, developing a new set of skills, maybe getting an additional new income, maybe turning a hobby, Leo, Lilith, and Leo over here, turn those hobbies. Hobbies are things that you just love doing, right? And you've done them for free for nothing because you enjoy it. Well, turn your hobby into a source of income, right? So it's skill sets, capacities, talents. Jupiter is expansion. Sun, moon moving through here. North node. This is a time from January of 2022 to July. North Node moving through Taurus. I've been talking about it for almost a year and a half. <laughs> you, know, you know, until I'm blue in the face. It's like, you know what? Learn something new. Develop your, you know, make yourself more valuable. And you will receive. You will be appreciated. You will be compensated. So Jupiter going through Taurus is not just, you know, um, scams, right, and uh, get-rich-quick schemes. 
No, this is you know this is about you know I am going to evolve myself. I'm going to become greater than I am through my own effort, through my own work. And why? Why? We build ourselves up. We learn things to what? Help, serve, teach, and give. We're here to give. This isn't about get as much as you can and and be the capitalistic greedy swine dog, you know that has more than anybody else and therefore is some kind of winner. No, 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 no. This is about Saturn and Pisces. We are all one, and we're we're all going to the same place. We're all on the same spaceship, planet Earth. And it's about togetherness. It's about unity. It's about nobody's better than anybody else. They're going to get there first before anybody else. Or no, 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 no. This is not a uh, you know, this is not an Olympic uh, you know competition. That's bullshit. Yeah. That's for. That's the. That's at a lower evolutionary stage where you're just kind of learning about, okay, you know, some things. But yeah, so yeah, you know, we're a duck pond and its brood is the realization of natural boundaries, setting the tone for the next six months. This eclipse is not just for this week. It's not just for this lunar cycle, but it's going to go until okay. That sun goes all the way around into Libra, and we're going to have another eclipse season, right? When the sun goes over there in Libra, so this eclipse sets the tone for the next six months. And I'm telling you, this is a six months to you know um, really. Gather, be a squirrel gathering nuts, yeah. And I don't mean hoard, but I do mean conserve. Saturn has to do with conservation. Saturn has to do with timing. Saturn has to do with you know really understanding, okay, that there is a time of expansion and you know it's inhale and exhale, right. Spring and summer, fall and winter. Spring and summer, fall and winter. Zero to forty-two, forty-two to eighty-four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, baby. So you know, yeah. Take care of yourselves. Take care of your body. Take care of your home. Take care of your love, your beloved. Take take care of your family, you know. It, it, it really, your health is your greatest wealth, and, and and this is just like really, it's a reminder, you know. Pisces, Virgo, Saturn through here. The, I'm talking three years. Now I'm not even talking about the six months, you know, of the eclipse cycle. I'm talking about Saturn and Pisces for three years, man, and. We really want to gather our nuts so that we can share them, yeah, and we can have banquets, and we can have feasts, and we can have gatherings, 
with all our friends and neighbors in the midst of perhaps, you know, the famine or the drought or the BS that's coming down or going around. We have thought ahead because we're into astrology and we know these cycles and we know what's coming and we're ready for it. Ow! Get ready. And we don't have to complain about it. We don't have to, you know, bitch and moan about it that, you know, that it's like, okay, you know, there is a limit. There's a limit to what we can control. There's a limit to what we can own. There's a limit to how much time we've got on this planet. And these limits are our teachers. Saturn is the great teacher. He's teaching us. And he's teaching us to focus. There is a divine intelligence. And that divine intelligence says, no, you are not the master of the universe. Not yet. You have things to learn in this little classroom that you are existing in right now. This little relationship has something to teach you. This little job has something to teach you. Okay, this little neighborhood has something to teach you. And when you have learned everything that there is to learn in this little classroom, then you can graduate and you can get outside of your little duck pond. <laughs> and maybe you can get on the river, baby, and get down to the freaking lake. <laughs> and after the lake, we got Lake Folsom down here. Of course, it's got a dam. <laughs> it's the United States, you know. <laughs> so we got to dam up the rivers, right? But they make lakes. And then when you know everything that you've had to learn and know and you got Lake Folsom down, well, then you can go over that dam and keep on moving and maybe get out to the ocean. And after you learn everything that there is in the ocean, then you can get out into the ocean, into the galactic ocean, into the universal ocean, beyond time and space. So it's step by step, inch by inch, bit by bit, nut by nut. There is something beautiful, something amazing in this little duck pond <laughs> that we find ourselves in. We want to look for the beauty. Taurus is about beauty. It's ruled by Venus, Aphrodite. It's about comfort in our bodies, comfort in our sensuous, sexual, beautiful you know, it's just like your body could be your duck pond. You've got so much to learn just about your body. My knee is teaching me something now. You know, my skin is teaching me something now. My my, my hair is teaching me something. <laughs> my lack of hair is teaching me something. I mean, there's so much just in our bodies, right? There's so much in your backyard. I mean, all you got to do is like go sit, go sit in the backyard. I went and I sat in the backyard last night, man. You know, and it's like, you know, tiny little flowers that 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 you, you would not even really. They're like a dot 
of violet as you're walking by. And they are a universe when you hold them up to your eye. So, yeah, simple pleasures are the best. Taurus is about simplicity and the beauty of simplicity. And it's not just all about big is better. This is just like such a freaking Western thing, eh? You know, good things come in little packages. Yeah. So it's, uh, let's just, you know, enough. (laughs) I'm rambling. (laughs) This is not the only plane of existence. As I am more than this. And just as appearances are deceiving, so are the measures of success. You know what I'm talking about. I was going to put in there, and so are the current measures of success. Obviously, there are many ways to measure success. I mean, I think happiness is a good measure. Calm, serenity, I think serenity is a good measure. What else? You know, peace, tranquility, acceptance. I mean, there are... So it's not all, I'm not saying that you cannot measure success, all right? I I was just trying to make the words rhyme. (laughs) I mean, as it is, is doesn't really rhyme with success anyway, but, (laughs) you know, whatever. (laughs) I'm not trying to make the perfect mantra because I have realized that Uh, Perfection is an illusion. (laughs) Okay. One more time, I'll let you go. Here we go. Unos, dos, tres. (sighs) This is not the only plane of existence. As I am more than this. And just as appearances are deceiving, so are the current measures of success. So, take it easy on yourself. Don't harshly measure yourself according to current delusional methods. But know that you are an infinite being of magnificence. Like a shining star. No matter who you are, shining bright to see what you can truly be shining star for you to see what you can truly be <laughs> actually that, that reminds me of the song for this week I, I mean I've just been going around singing Melanie I know she's old and I may have already brought this one up but look what they've done to my soul ma Yeah. look what they've done to my soul they've tied it up in a plastic bag and turned it upside down yeah Look what they've done to my soul. Repair yourself. Rejuvenate yourself. Heal yourself. Come home to yourself. That's the best expression of Mars and Cancer. 
Last but not least, you know, last week, I'm giving a live talk in Colfax, California. Get your butt on out here, baby. Ow! April 29th. I'll put a link for it down in the uh, notes of YouTube. But it's on my new paradigmastrology.com website. Uh, you got to get a ticket beforehand because it's a small kind of a studio. It's going to be kind of intimate. And um, we need to know how many people are showing up. So, uh, yeah, grab them tickets and we'll uh, hopefully see you there. And what else? Yeah, have a good week. <laughs> Talk at you next week, man. Hasta luego, baby. <laughs>
to your current plan. Right, you use this three weeks of Mercury retrograde to to chew on it. You know, take take your time and and uh, and chew on it before before execution is 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 uh, the way I've been using Mercury retrogrades for years now. You know, so that's. The other, that's the only other thing I can think of right now. Mercury sextile Mars in Cancer. Okay. Mm. And Mars, Mars in Cancer. I have Mars. Uh, yeah, it can be very powerful. Yeah, I think Ram is thinking he's got Mars in Cancer. Well, I don't have it right in front of me, but anyway. Okay, and don't forget Neptune out there because that, uh, if you can tie into Neptune, you can tie into your your personal higher self wisdom. I mean, you could use the entire period of Mercury retrograde just to open up the channel to your higher self. You know, do do that do that meditation as you fall asleep at night. Because mm-hmm. the point, the whole one of the one of the reasons for being incarnated is to get smart, mm-hmm. get wise. <laughs> so. Oh my God! Oh, let's all get smart. The uh, problem is people people come in and they're at all different stages of evolution. You know, some yeah. some of these some of these critters walking around have only been on the planet three or four times, where other others of us have been on dozens and dozens of times. So we know more about the situation. Yeah. Yep. All right then. Well. It's my bedtime now <laughs> because you know I have you know I get up I get up between two and three, so I need to get I like to get five hours in the. What do you do night. at two and three o'clock in the morning, sir? Can I, I be turn two? on? I turn on the BBC World News. Oh my God! Because at two a.m. on the East Coast, it's six a.m. on on London time. Mm-hmm. Ah. And they're starting their they're starting their 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 news day. You know, it's it's six a.m. And yeah. then I yeah, and then I and then I uh, then I eat breakfast about six thirty and and go back to bed for three or four more hours by eight these days. By daybreak, shortly after daybreak, I go back to bed for another three or four hours of sleep. Then, when I get up at eleven ish, right, get me another cup of coffee, all right, read for an hour, have a bite to eat, and then I go out. For this time of year, then I go out and work in the yard. Like like today, I went out. And I finished uh, weeding the uh, 16 feet of 
vegetable garden where the beans are going to go in. So I've got a beautiful, a beautiful 16 feet for a double row of beans. I've got that ready. The, to, uh, the spot for the tomatoes was done a couple weeks ago, and the tomatoes are going in this week also. So once we get the once we get the tomatoes in, and then once we get the the beans in, and uh, we'll be we'll be all set. And then we can go on to uh, some other project. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then it, then I come in at about five ish, depending on how hard I worked. Right. And then I've got Democracy Now from five to six. Oh yeah. There's, then there's the nightly business report from six to six thirty. And there's the New Yorker radio hour from six thirty to seven. Then it's dinner time. Then I read for two hours and I go to bed about nine thirty. That's my day that's what my day looks like. <laughs> So have a have a great week, everybody. I'm going to bed. Uh, yeah. I'm going to sit up and listen to Tanya. Yeah, okay. we're going to get going here. All right, let's get Tanya going here. Okay. Thank you, Richard. Have a good rest. All right, namaste. I'll be waking up at 3 and thinking about you. Okay. <laughs> I'll be up. Hello there, it's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrometrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the forecast where we look at an upcoming event in the stars and numbers to get insights that help to elevate us as we move through a celestial event. And in this case, it is the powerful total solar eclipse in Aries. A solar eclipse is a new moon eclipse. And this really is an incredible moment because we already had an Aries new moon on March 21st at zero degrees Aries, right at the beginning. And now we have a second Aries new moon, a total solar eclipse, at the last, very last moment of Aries, 29 degrees and 50 minutes. So literally almost the sun in Taurus. And this is really enhancing the Aries and Mars energy. Mars rules Aries. So Aries is the first sign. Aries is about passion and forward momentum and new beginnings. Aries begins spring in the northern hemisphere and fall in the southern hemisphere. And it begins the zodiacal year. The zodiac begins with the sign. So when we had that incredible new moon following the equinox, which was on March 20th, and hours later the new moon also at zero degrees Aries, that was a very special time. And now we've come to four weeks, about 28 days later, and it is the 19th and 20th of April, depending on where you live. And here we have the second 
Aries new moon. So it's an eclipse. It's powerful. There's a stellium too, which means there are three planets that are together. In this case, it's Jupiter, moon, and sun. And you could even count Chiron in this stellium as well. So four planets, all in Aries, which makes it even more powerful. So let's look at, first of all, the moment that it happens, which is on the 20th of April, universal time at 5.12 a.m., which is 12.12 a.m. New York Eastern, and on April 19th at 9.12 p.m. Pacific. And you don't need to be an Aries to benefit from this forecast because you have Aries somewhere in your birth chart. So this solar eclipse is actually happening somewhere in one of your houses and possibly uh, conjunct one of your planets or making contact in some way, somehow in your chart. Now, it's at 29 degrees. Like I said, 29 reduces to 11. 2 plus 9 equals 11. 11 is double new beginnings. Aries is the first sign. This is a new moon eclipse, new beginnings. So what's going on? Whatever you started in between March 20th and now, whatever has happened to you, some kind of experience or project was started or you've made a decision, that is now culminating this week. There's something that will break open or create a breakthrough or allow you to really walk through that 11 gateway, the doorway into new beginnings. And it's been building up this whole time. So by the time the second Aries new moon comes around, this is really a big deal, especially because it's a total solar eclipse. Mars is the ruler of Aries and this total solar eclipse. And Mars is in Cancer, which is the sign the moon rules. So we have this clashing energy where Mars, a fire sign, is in a water sign. Mars is a go-getter, has initiative, and is assertive, wants to start things. And Cancer is all about wanting to be nurtured and feeling comfortable, cared for, warm and fuzzy, at home, preferably cooking a wonderful meal, uh, just being very compassionate and deeply feeling sign. So we have these two energies coming together and it's very interesting because it really is the beginning of a cycle that we're in this year where the eclipses are epitomizing the receptivity and assertiveness where the first two eclipses now, the one in Aries and the Scorpio eclipse coming up on May 5th, are ruled by Mars and Scorpio is also ruled by Pluto. So that's very forward momentum, fiery energy. And then the two eclipses that are coming up in the autumn are both ruled by Venus. And then in the middle, we have a Venus retrograde starting in July. So there's this really big dynamic between Venus and Mars that is starting now. So Mars being currently in another feminine sign, Cancer, ruled by the moon, the feminine planet, is really powerful. And then we also have Jupiter conjunct the sun and moon. Jupiter is the ruler of Sagittarius, another fire sign. Jupiter brings a lot of expansion and joy and a sense of justice as well. Jupiter rules the legal system, but it also rules wisdom and higher education and learning. 
and beliefs and just a sense of expansion and, and vision that reaches beyond the horizon. So Jupiter encompasses the world. It is multicultural. It is long distance travel. So there is this big energy that's being born in this total solar eclipse. And it's going to carry us through for the next six months because that's the impact that these eclipses have on us until the next eclipse cycle with Venus. So we are actually being asked to act at this time. And it's fascinating to me that Mars is creating a sextile to Mercury. And the reason I say that is Mercury goes retrograde a day after this eclipse. So on April 21st, Mercury stations retrograde in Taurus. And Mars is creating this gorgeous sextile to Mercury and Uranus that are there together in Taurus. And remember, Taurus is associated with Venus. Venus rules Taurus. So there is this wonderful uh, awakening of the divine feminine and sacred masculine that is going on in all these events that are being birthed at this time, really speaking to balance. So where we don't just take one energy and, you know, only do forward momentum and assertiveness and my way or the highway independence, but we also have interdependence and we have caring and compassion, receptivity going on at the same time. So the other thing I want to mention is the date for the universal time for 2023 adds up to 13 and 13 is the number of the divine feminine. So we have this beautiful expression during this very assertive Aries total solar eclipse of the divine feminine in the numerology code being activated. Why is 13 associated with the divine feminine? Because we have 13 lunar cycles a year. Venus has 13 Venus cycles and 13 is the number of weeks we have in a season and the seasons are connected again to the divine feminine. So this is really wonderful how, of course, the cosmic code brings balance in the midst of tremendous shifts. So let's look a little bit more closely at the transits. Moon and Sun conjunct Jupiter is all about joy, kindness, gratitude, appreciating the bounty that life has to offer, appreciating opportunities for growth and going after opportunities. Remember, this is an Aries total new moon eclipse, so you are initiating, right? So there's a real sense of gratitude for your well-being and gratitude that you are to have what you have and to count your blessings in so many ways. The eclipse is also forming a square to Pluto. And it's actually very tight. That means that it's within a degree. It's actually within a half degree. However, it is out of sign, which means Pluto is not in, in Capricorn, 29 degrees Capricorn, Pluto recently moved to zero degrees Aquarius. So even though it's out of sign, it's still a very tight square. And boy, Pluto's 
squaring the sign that Mars rules is powerful because those are the two very passionate planets. And this means that you will be driven to empower yourself or to get in control in some way or to really move out of a situation where you are feeling like you're being controlled, um, wanting to purge everything that is keeping you from stepping into your power. A square is all about action. It's a tense aspect. And since Pluto's at zero degrees, Aquarius, the sign of freedom, you are seeking to set yourself free from anything that is impeding you from feeling like you can make your own choices and you don't want anybody to dampen your energy. So it's really about stepping into your power in a big way. So, I mean, we have some wonderful energy here with that square. And I mean, by wonderful, I mean the growth opportunities are pretty astounding because your inner power is being activated, it's being invigorated, and your drive to actually do something and succeed to really see yourself in a new way. You know, Pluto does transform. It's about life, death, rebirth. And Pluto is the ruler of the next eclipse. Pluto and Mars rule Scorpio. So Mars, the ruler of this eclipse, was the original ruler of Scorpio. And that Scorpio eclipse on May 5th has the the modern rulers, Pluto. So this square is showing you, okay, well, between now and May 5th, when we have the full moon eclipse in Scorpio, there is something for you to really attend to and purge and release and let go of. So be sure to do a lot of deep breathing and let go of bygones. That's a big theme and meditate and ask your guides, ask divine source to support you ask for awareness and ask for goodness to prevail because goodness does always prevail so you can have your own prayers and take them with you through the day as it the energy really intensifies and know that also we have a beautiful sextile from the moon and sun to saturn and the reason it's beautiful is that you're taking your feelings seriously now. And Saturn recently moved into Pisces. And that really was a major shift for Saturn. Saturn is bringing to the surface the things that we weren't able to see. So Pisces can veil things. It's mysterious. It's spiritual. And it's not that realistic in a sense it's more ideal so it's about compassion unconditional love and those unseen energies i mean saturn is known as the taskmaster but it's more like the teacher and so there's this sense of when the moon and sun sextile saturn of you have this practical encouragement and you can be more patient and you allow time to heal so there's all that is important. Saturn is Kronos, the, the ruler of time. So there's a sense of allowing timelessness, which is Pisces, to merge with timing. So 
it's a little bit of a paradox. Timelessness doesn't really have timing. But when Saturn is in Pisces, we've got a lot of paradoxes because this is about reality versus everything that is surreal. And so Saturn is bringing to the surface those things that are actually not real, that were taken to be real. So again, there may be things that happen in your life or that you discover were not actually the truth, were not actually the case. And allow those things to come up. This is a beautiful sextile, so you're able to see it and not feel guilty or, or um, you know, in some way judge yourself for not being able to see clearly. This is just a way to allow yourself to be aware without judgment. So we have a lot going on, and I want to end now with a couple of Mars contexts that are made. So Mars is an aspect to Uranus and Chiron, and Mars rules this total solar eclipse, so it's an important planet to look at. Mars sextile Uranus really intensifies your intuition and creativity and your yearning for independence. And these two planets are about fast action and using your instinct and inspiration together. So there will be surprising developments. Uh, you're embracing the unusual, the, the, the sort of um, unexpected, the new, the uh, inner genius, inventions. So it's a great time to manifest change in your life and do it rapidly. And then Mars square Chiron, Chiron is in Mars's sign. It's been there for a while uh, in Aries. So there's this real sense of learning how to express your frustration in healthier ways. You know, Mars can sometimes get impatient and angry and aggressive. And so the square with Chiron is you're recognizing that you may be attracting people into your life that reflect some of your unexpressed emotions. And so you want to learn to assert yourself, but in a way that is also born of love, not born of a really negative energy. So it's, it's really about knowing the right amount of force in any situation. So you are consciously and consistently taking practical action that makes a deep healing imprint. So this is actually a very powerful aspect that Mars is forming during Mars's total solar eclipse in Aries. So really, I mean, there's so much here. I know I've gone on and on, but it's just very, very big moment in the year. And of course, it's the beginning of eclipse season. So for more on Mars and Venus, I do have a free masterclass at venusmarscode.com. And it really talks about the great awakening of the divine feminine and the sacred masculine and how we really are learning to merge that Venus-Mars energy. So we talk about the five-pointed star of Venus, the secret meaning of letters V and M for Venus and Mars, the 13 phases of Venus, the difference between aggressiveness and assertiveness and why that shift is happening now. And also we talk about the origins of the Mayan calendar because it has to do with Venus and Mars as well. And you'll learn a lot about the cosmic changes that are unfolding for humanity right now. So enjoy that free masterclass at venusmarscode.com. And I will see you 
in next week's Star Codes podcast. Enjoy the total solar eclipse in Aries. Lots of love. goodness that was a lot and that was Mm -hmm. a really powerful time that we're in now Mm -hmm. (sighs) thank you everyone for sharing this time together because yeah it works it works so much more when we do things together Rama tell us how do we get on our conference call tonight? Uh, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, everybody. Say that one more time. 720 720- 716-7301. And the pin code is 353863-POUND. Okay, we'll see you there. And then we'll be right back here at BBS Radio. Best radio there is. Expect the unexpected all the time. It's good. It's a good time to be alive. All right. See you at the conference, everyone. Thank you. Namaste. Hello darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk with you again, because a vision softly creeping, left its seeds while I was sleeping, and the vision Oh, so
That was very good. I haven't heard that in a million years. Yeah. What's the name of that group? Pentatonics. Pentatonics, right. Welcome mm. back, everybody. You got some more for us, right, Rama? Yeah. Okay. Oh, 
Paul Horn went over the rainbow back when somewhere. Yes. I used to listen to that all the time. That's such a beautiful piece. Yeah. This is a message from Aurora Ray. Okay, say that nice and loud. So this is a message from Aurora Ray that came out earlier today about the uh, energies going on. On the planet. And uh, you ain't going to hear this on Fox News. <laughs> Galactic Federation transmission. A new phase is beginning. You're entering a new phase of life. Your vibrations are rising. And your body is changing to the fifth dimensional frequency. You will soon enter Gaia's golden age, where there will be nothing but happiness. The new earth is a planet of peace, love, and joy. It is the most beautiful planet in the universe. It is a land of light, love, and abundance. The people on this planet live in peace and harmony with each other. There are no diseases and no war on this planet. The people of the new earth enjoy eternal blissfulness and happiness. There are no sufferings or problems in the new earth. All your sufferings will be over when you enter the new earth, the golden age of Gaia. You will be happy as an immortal being forever on this beautiful planet. The dark forces cannot live for a single moment in that vibration and will leave this planet forever. They will be thrown into the lower dimensions to continue with their negative activities. In fifth dimensional frequency, you transform yourself into an all-powerful being who lives with ultimate blissfulness. 
when the earth changes its frequency to the fifth dimension, your consciousness will also change accordingly. You will be able to travel in space and time. There is no need for a spaceship anymore. You can simply think about where you want to go and you will immediately be there. Your soul will leave your physical body and travel anywhere in the universe and it will return back to your body whenever you want. There will be no diseases in the fifth dimension because there is no negative energy field like on Earth. You can live much longer than today and your body will stay perfect. In the 5D, there are no material goods or money anymore. All material goods are created by the power of thoughts of humans, and they are distributed equally to all humans. The quantity of money on the planet is limited in order not to keep balance on Gaia. You can feel it. The last pieces of the puzzle fit into place. The energies are shifting in your favor, and you are witnessing miracles happening every single day. Nothing can stop the inevitable now. Not even a full-scale war on this planet will be able to prevent our ascension. But to experience this miraculous event, you must first get rid of all negative energy that has accumulated within you throughout your entire incarnation cycle on Gaia. When you clear this last hurdle, there will be nothing left to stop us from moving into the fifth dimension. There is no way to avoid this cleansing process because it is a natural part of the ascension process. It is the last stage before we can reach the 5D new earth. You could call it a cleansing before rebirth, if you will, because when we reach the 5D new earth, we will have a body of crystalline light that has been cleansed and purified of all darkness. Therefore, many people also refer to ascension as ascension through a tunnel of light which perfectly describes this process. In the 5D New Earth, you will be able to maintain that state of being in the following ways. 1. You will be able to remain in a state of peace, happiness and bliss through your consciousness. 2. You will be able to eat for nourishment, for physical well-being, instead of for taste and enjoyment. 3. You will be able to meditate on the positive attributes instead of on the negative ones as we do now. 4. You will not need sleep as we do now. 5. You will not have any illness or disease as we do now. 6. You will not experience physical death, but you can choose when you want to leave your body if you wish to do so. The new earth is a world of light, love and awakening. It is a world where there is no fear, a world free of darkness and deception. Its inhabitants have fully awakened to their divine purpose and live in harmony with each other and with nature. Now you may be thinking that this sounds too good to be true, and if it were being presented by an external authority, you'd be right. But this new earth will not come about through any human effort or organization. It will simply happen when we're ready. The 5D New Earth is not associated or affiliated with any religious traditions, organizations, or entities. It is only associated with your consciousness. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation.
my. Mm. That was to the point, Rama. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Micah brought up something about uh, getting after Pfizer. Is that there, Rama? <laughs> yeah, I'm getting there. It's about ten minutes altogether. The first five minutes is in English. The last is in German. Okay. Yet it's laying out a court case mm. for them. And Biden's in the noose. Mm. Making a forced mandate for certain people. If you want to work, you got to get jabbed. Mm. There's a young lady that's still in a coma from getting jabbed. Anyway, is that it? Yeah. What does it say up there, huh? Breaking news. I from Switzerland. Gotta say it loud. Pascal. Gotta say it a lot louder, huh? Oh, breaking news. I from Switzerland with Pascal Naji. No, I'm not saying it right. You guys talk louder. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, you want to hear this now? I don't see the sound. Is the sound up? I got to play with it. Yeah. <laughs> all these little things. This is special... Greeting from Switzerland and Pascal Najadi from Switzerland. As you know, I have filed criminal charges against the Swiss president, Alain Berset, on the 2nd of December because of the vaccine policy he's been running in Switzerland. I have filed criminal charges. It's with the federal prosecutor in Bern. As you also may know, Anna McCarthy has filed the only case that's sticking against Pfizer, and I'm part of it, of this case, case number 100-197, with the New York State Supreme Court in New York, in Manhattan, against Pfizer, Inc., for tort and other malpractice. Anybody who doubts that can go and look on the New York Supreme Court uh, uh, website, and you can find the case, case number 100-197. We also have made a website dedicated to update you on the case as we progress with documents. And that is very simple for you. It's nmp.associates, and then you can see it, and you can uh, look at the files. The filing document is there, and even a screenshot. The case is active, and it's going forward. I would like to inform you all that Switzerland has been wise because of our case against Pfizer in New York. Switzerland has ceased to recommend COVID injections, vaccinations in Switzerland. It has also, the Ministry of Public Health has also said that from now on, that was before Easter, um, the Swiss doctors are responsible, liable, in case there's any side effects from such vaccinations. That's a big success because of our case. Also, we have um, leaned on Swiss international airlines uh, to stop the forced vaccination on cabin crew and pilots. The airline made a statement, I believe it was 4th of April, that they uh, stopped the COVID vaccination, the forced vaccination under threat of job loss. That's what they've done in the past. They stopped. 
Also, you have to know, President Biden, well, Anna McCarthy has notified the courts in New York that President Biden has violated the First Amendment on religion because the Supreme Court has ruled in 22, early 22, that actually uh, American citizens, United States citizens, are exempt from vaccinations if they are religious. They say, my body is my temple. No matter which religion, no matter what degree, if you're a priest or not, doesn't matter, you're exempt. It also failed to inform 205 nations around the world that there is an exemption on religion, on the First Amendment in the U.S. Constitution. On the 10th of April, President Biden had to sign H.J. 7, executive order, to cancel the national emergency on COVID in the United States of America. All this is because of our case that is running against Pfizer Inc. in New York. And people should not doubt us. We are for real. Anna McCarthy and me, we are for real. We have no support from any uh, unification or movements. We have no law firms that support us or finance us. We're doing everything on our own. We have no paralegals helping us, no staff. So please, if you can, go to our website, nmp.associates. There's also a link for donations. We need your support. We're doing your work at the front line. And we are helping to stop this global genocide. I am Sage, and I want to say thank you very much for your support. And God bless you and have a great weekend. I am Sage von uns here, auch in Deutsch, für den Raum Schweiz, Deutschland, Österreich, ein Update. Um, wie ihr wisst, habe ich um, um, That's it. Yeah, the rest of it's in German. Mm. I'm sure some of you know that language. Mm. When I was over there in Europe, I didn't have any trouble mm. speaking German. I mean, it was easy to understand when you're all surrounded with it. But uh, as soon as you get back here, <laughs> same thing in Mexico with Spanish. Mm. Well, and it was a little more challenging in uh Norway and Sweden. Adipa, tax, ta, duha. Okay. All right. Well, this is a, uh, this is a, um, it's, uh, it's a Gaia TV, uh, video that we didn't play at the time. We did some things and there wasn't time. I, it struck me that we would play it today. It's called Buried Secrets of Stonehenge, Awakening Conference with Maria Wheatley. Why did the Ministry of Works lie about the true heritage of the legendary Stonehenge site? Uncover the secrets as author Maria Wheatley exposes decades of evidence that illustrate a misleading narrative created by Richard J.C. Atkinson from biblical connections to giant skeletons. Learn the truths about which mag- megalithic stones were moved, buried, and manipulated to create propagandized history. 
We're going to get this okay. thing all straight now. This is an hour and two minutes. Are we ready, Commander? Ready. All right, let's do this. Mm. Here we go. and thanks for getting up early to come and uh, listen to my talk. I'm going to be talking about a secret history of Stonehenge because we have been lied to time and time again from the Ministry of Works. In fact, the Ministry of Works, which was the early English heritage, really saw what people were doing at Stonehenge. And so they defaced the stones. I'm going to bring back the magic and show you what the archaeologists did to partly destroy some of the stones. But we're going to get going uh, with the, this, uh, this lecture, and we're going to go back in time now, back in time to the Neolithic. The Neolithic is about 5,500 years ago, and they built these wonderful monuments. You're seeing at the moment West Kennet Long Barrow. That's a megalithic Long Barrow, and inside of which there's these chambers of stone. And what I discovered through Dowson, through spiritual Dowson, is that these people had elongated skulls. And in 2015, when I discovered these elongated skulls, I didn't have the body measurements. Now I have. And I'm going to show you a long lost mythical race. Yes, there were giants around at Stonehenge. But I'm going to show you what I believe is the origins of the Tuath, Dedan and mythology of Ireland. This is another long barrow called Wayland Smithy. Wayland Smithy is absolutely incredible. It's in Oxfordshire and it's again a Neolithic monument. But these monuments were laid out not just on lays but have an earth current flow down their axis line. So right they're invisible but they're going right the way down. The people see earth energy it's like lines on a map and they call them lays. But research has shown, coming out of the 1930s, that Earth energies are colourful. They have a dominant colour. The dominant colour of this barrow is blue, so it can activate the throat chakra. But on the Salisbury Plain, there isn't any stone. It was all imported from places like Wales and Marlborough for the different types of stone there. So this is the Neolithic wooden earthen mound. That's what was on the Salisbury Plain. The Salisbury Plain, like I said uh, yesterday, is an area uh, about 26 miles by 26 miles, owned and run by the military, with 2,500 ancient sites on there, controlled literally by all those military establishments. So again, why is that? Wherever you have ancient sites, powerful vortex energy, you have a military presence. 
And these are another type of megalithic structures where they're called dolmens and the Tinkinswood one with a long uh, portal slab stone, that had up to a hundred people in all buried in different ways. In the Neolithic, they didn't bury the whole body. There would only be one whole body normally in all those burials. So they used to deflesh the body, take the femur bone and the skulls and place those in. A bit like the pirate's flag. Uh, that's what they placed into the barrows. But used to have some very unusual ones, the guardians. And I'm going to show you uh, a guardian. You sometimes get them in a flex position like this, where they tie the body up in the fetal position. This is from uh, the, the Belbica culture, which is 2500 BC. And it's very tall. The femur bone is very long. So that person was probably about six foot nine, seven feet put in the flex position. But then we have the guardians. And this is a, a very old antiquarian drawing where you'd have them sitting, staring out into the distance. And as a kind of spiritual person that interacts with these ancient sites, and as, as a druid, you ask the guardian before you go onto the site. You ask the spirit of place and the ancestors. And once you have permission to go into the site, and it's easy, you just stand by an ancient site, and you just tune into the land, and then you, if your body pulls forward, that's a, a yes, the ancestors and these guardians have allowed you access. If you don't, it's just kind of like going into a temple uh, with, with no respect, really. So that's what we tend to practice. On the Salisbury Plain, overlooking the land. And when you're on the Salisbury Plain, and this barrow certainly overlooks the land, you're on elevated ground. It feels like the sky is very close to touch. And this is the largest long barrow, long barrow in Northwest Europe. It snakes across and it had one person in it, one woman. So clearly she was probably a high priest or high priestess and she was probably associated as well with the building of Stonehenge phase one. We'll look at the different phases later on. So when I discovered this barrow, I thought, well, who is it? Who is it? And I, like I said yesterday, these people of the past, they call to you. And if you listen very carefully, they tell you things and guide you to make discoveries. One of those discoveries that I found was very close to Stonehenge, not on any map as well. It was on antiquarian maps, but one of the strangest burials that I have found, and I found several, some of which I'll be discussing today, was very similar to Lloyd Pye's Star Child. Because the antiquarians that dug into it wrote a report, then it was re-evaluated in the 1930s and rediscussed. And in that report, it said there was several people kind of in a circle all tied together with long skulls. And they were forming a circle. Inside of this circle was this strange being that was described. It had the eyes on the top of the head, for example. It had a tail and it had a crooked skeleton as well. So it was kind of like that shape. And they really didn't know what they'd uh, discovered. So it got filed away in what's called the National Monuments Record Office. And this is where, where I find, find these type of details, which have been literally squirreled away. So what was this person? Was it a deformed human being? Was it someone from the stars? 
We'll never know because the skull has gone missing. But it was definitely very, very close to Stonehenge. I think we have to be very open-minded with the people of the past and and question everything because no one author has all the answers anyway. Coming together like we do, we together can solve mysteries. And so uh, the, some of the information was lost and the, some of it was gained as well. And in the gain in the 1930s, the bones of this star child, as I call it, were in a high state of preservation. For example, like it's written here, I told you there was three skeletons. And also one, one of the bones, they said the bones of the leg were like hollow as well. So it's maybe that caused it to have a, a crooked skull, a crooked uh, spine, for example. So there's lots of these facts going on. So that's one of my first strangest burials that I found at Stonehenge, which is quite uh, quite incredible. And also, if we go to Laurie Pye's information, then his was about 900 years old, whereas this one's five and a half thousand years old. It could be one of the earliest uh, features in the Stonehenge landscape that may not have been from this earth. So I find that really, uh, really fascinating. And it's never been found again. None of these, these unusual skulls, they get literally, like I said, pushed away. I don't know if I probably you haven't been to uh, Cambridge University, but for example, you're in a room like this, really, really big room. Down one side, you have box after box after box with skull after skull after skull. And then on the other side is all the Egyptian skulls. And they don't really know what they've got. So we want the Salisbury Plain again. Yes, <laughs> I know you're from the Salisbury Plain. Uh, and the, these red flags mean you can't have access to, to the plane. You've got to be very careful how you navigate it. You really, really have. And these unusual burials are inside that. Yeah. So we have to imagine that you've got to navigate it. And sometimes they're open to the general public and sometimes it isn't. It's Area 51. It has hardly anybody visiting it. It has wardens. And if you go off uh, track, the wardens will get you on. You're being monitored from the moment you go on to the Salisbury Plain. And I took a group to meditate in the name of the ancestors on one of the barrows. And literally, uh, security was there within all, within five minutes. So they're watching you all of the time. So, yeah, these are some of the uh, tanks there that you find as you drive across the plane. This is a firing area, for example, and you can go uh, in a car when it's opened a couple of times of the year because there's a village there called Imba. So it is open at some times. What I find fascinating about Stonehenge, they're the people. And I'm going to show you what they look like in a moment. But I want you to come and visit Stonehenge with me because we all think we know Stonehenge. It's the most iconic stone circle in the world. So we do think we know it. But when it was being restored from the 1900s onwards, what didn't fit the model, and this is the model that Stukeley drew in 1724, the Reverend William Stukeley, that's the model. And then when Colonel Hawley came along in the 1900s, that's the model. And Atkinson in the 1960s, that's the model. But what Colonel Hawley did, he found many unusual stones, but it doesn't fit the model. 
So what do we do? Because we think we know Stonehenge. So they buried it nearby. And what I've done is I'm raising all these stone features and showing you a new view of Stonehenge. Then we're going to have a look at the individual stones. Like I said, when I opened up, they have been defaced and destroyed by English heritage. And this is one of the reconstructions, before the reconstruction, sorry. And everybody tended to write postcards when they visited uh, in this era here in 1929, after illness. Time and time again, it was after illness. But we can see how bad the state of Stonehenge was there. They've got no lintels on hardly. That's what it looked like when Colonel Hawley arrived. And so they set to work to reconstruct over the next 40 years or so. But they all said one thing as well. And like this quote here, it says, Still and then, those that drank the miracle water were healed. That was first written in the 12th century by Geoffrey of Monmouth. He said, if you take scrapings of the sarsen or blue stones that form Stonehenge, you will be healed. But could it be there was a different type of water generated by Stonehenge that was healing? And that's what I'll show you later. And also, in that model that I showed you earlier, the iconic model, they said there was one altar stone. Okay. And you're seeing Stonehenge weathered. Okay. It's terribly weathered. Four, orthodox dating, four and a half thousand years of British weather. What do you expect? <laughs> it looks grey. But originally it wasn't. I'm going to, later on, come and have a look at polished bluestone. The bluestones came from Wales and they were so highly polished, they looked like the star-spangled sky. At the centre of Stonehenge, bejeweling the monument, was the altar stones. I'll show you. They say there's only one altar stone and it was green and red. It was flexed with garnet and mica, and it shone and glistened. And on the outside, the stones weren't grey. All archaeologists know the stones aren't grey. The greater trilithon at Stonehenge, it was originally orange and pink reflecting the sun. And all archaeologists agree with that. So come on, let's see Stonehenge in this really colourful way. Now, Atkinson, Professor Richard Atkinson, don't let the name Professor fool you. He damaged Stonehenge beyond all recognition, and his name should be blighted from the archaeological books. He destroyed some of Stonehenge. In fact, all, all the Druids in the area say one thing. Go to Stonehenge, don't get obsessed by it. Am I obsessed? No. <laughs> But you've got to be really, really careful, okay, because he did get obsessed and he started to hide artifacts in his bedroom and things. That's the, this is Professor Atkinson and this is him doing the reconstruction, pulling one of the uh, trilithons up. Now, these aren't in the earth. Most people think standing stones in this area are in the earth. They're not. They're in solid chalk bedrock. So they're linked into particular socket holes. He, he moved that by 15 inches. So if you've got good eye at Stonehenge, you know they're no longer opposite each other. That's another little crime, Vatkinson. The Henge Bank. When you see those iconic pictures of Stonehenge, 
is open. You can even drive along the A303, look, look to your left, and you see the stones. That wasn't like in the ancient times. Imagine, there's the stone circle, and it is surrounded by a 10-foot chalk bank. You can't see into Stonehenge. So all you could see back in the day, as it were, was the top of the Greater Trilophon. I inherited all the unpublished surveys by a master dowser called Guy Underwood. And my late father was a master dowser. He also knew the custodian and the archaeologist of Stonehenge. He was there at Atkinson's dig. Atkinson wanted to know roughly how deep this massive henge bank was, glowing chalk white. Okay, and he said that what he saw, Atkinson lied. And it's in every single guidebook. Atkinson said, that's made of chalk rubble. It's just chalk rubble. And they kind of put it all together and made a wall. Our eyewitness said no. It was scooped out of the ground like a pudding bowl and made high. What sort of technology did that? That's over 330 feet in diameter. So it's very, very smooth. Again, in the ancient world, there's evidence for colour. Everything may have been very colourful. For example, this is a barrow in Sardinia that I visited. It looks grey and it looks warm. But that's what it was like. Full of beautiful colour. Okay? Ochre. I find ochre everywhere around Stonehenge. There's also evidence that the Henge Bank in other parts of the country that preceded this were also colourful, carved with symbols. And that's from Professor Mike Parker Pearson. So what I say is that Henge Bank could have been very, very colourful. I've done experiments with ochre. If you mix it with some ammonia, then you can literally paint onto stone and even through storm after storm, it remains pretty constant. It would need a touch up every now and again. So again, it's a colorful world, the ancients, not gray like that on the inside and out. And in Orkney, they found paint pots on the nests of vodka. And here we have that iconic picture all in the shades of gray. So, for example, that huge trilophon there, that was deep orange with a beautiful pink hue. These stones never saw the light of day until they reached Stonehenge. People think when they go and look at stones in, in what's called the Valley of the Stones, about 17 miles from uh, this monument, oh, that's where they got them from. No, they dug them out. They were buried because if you have a buried stone and you raise it to see the light of day, it's easy to make into a lozenger shape. So these stones were special. Avery was built from stones that had been lying on the surface. These came from deep underground. And, and blue stones, that term blue stone implies they're all blue. No, some were green. Some were such a beautiful green shade with red. And then, like I said before, these Flexes in them. Well, that didn't fit the model. So guess what Atkinson did? He buried them. And I've got a map to show you where, where they all were. When we look at Stonehenge, again, through this same, same model, then we see it's got an axis line that everybody says, oh, it's aligned to the midsummer sunrise. It's off. 
Atkinson again. He forced that photograph, really, because if you're at the centre of Stonehenge, to get the sunrise over the heelstone, you have to be six feet away. And he got this photographer to do that. Any archaeoastronomer will tell you the heelstone's best alignment is to the moon. Every nine years, the moon rises above the heelstone. That's its true alignment. So we're going to go have a new view of Stonehenge now, because English heritage will tell you there's a stone circle of sarsens in which there's the blue stones, then you've got the trilophons, then you have the altar stone. I say no, there was a concentric stone circle of blue stones there, and there's the evidence for it. And here, Professor Mike Parker Pearson, he agrees with me. He says, we don't know if they, the bluestone sockets behind the greater trilophon were part of the Q&R bluestone circle. The, everyone else says it's the horseshoe, which I have interpreted, and I do. But, we can, but the English heritage say, no, it's, it's a horseshoe. Let's, let's stick it as a horseshoe. But the professionals think it's a concentric stone circle of the bluestones on the inside. I'll show you that in a moment. That's the model. I've been talking about no avenue leading into it. And this is my model. And it's saying to you, there was two altar stones, very colorful. One was taken and we're seen by the occultist of the royals. He stole that stone. And then that's the concentric circle. And there may have even been another trilophon. And I'll show you that. They know that's there. Yeah. So it could have been opposite. So that's what English heritage tell you. That is probably the truth of Stonehenge. And I'm getting more and more archaeologists agreeing with me. You just got to step outside the box and say, no, this could be a beautiful new Stonehenge. And right at the top where it says stone number 30 and one, you've got extra stones like a bluestone avenue. You'd walk processionally into Stonehenge through a very short avenue. That's not on any model at all, because Atkinson knew that there was that way to enter it. And he even got the excavation. That's the excavation showing you the entrance. So he decided in all the guides not to keep that in. Again, another kind of repressed information. James I, aren't our kings mad? Yeah, it's not a queen man. Uh, the kings of the past, honestly, King James VI of Scotland, James I of England, as he would become known, a very unusual king. Yeah, this, and he even inspired, you know, all of Shakespeare's plays. He was paranoid about witches. Yeah, he was so paranoid about witches, he decided to write a book. Uh, his first uh, most famous book was translated the Bible, translating the Bible from Latin into English. And it's still a bestseller today. And then he was accusing people of witchcraft and, and trying to kind of topple him down. And so he wrote demonology at the, uh, to telling people, oh, they, if they have these signs on them, then they're a witch. And he started the frenzy of it all. But meanwhile, he was an occultist. And he had two occultists working with him. In fact, he was married to Queen Anne of Denmark. Okay? But he had a lover. And his uh, lover was called George Villiers. 
the dashingly handsome Duke of Buckingham. That's what I need. Now, traditionally, you have one altar stone here. It's said to have stood at the heart of Stonehenge. I say there were two, and I say there was evidence for two. The socket hole was found in the 1620s by James I, his lover, the Duke of Buckingham, and Indigo Jones went with him as well. Indigo Jones said that there was uh, six trilophons. He got that through sacred geometry. We were going to find the sixth one. And they called the socket hole in modern times WA3359. So what happened? Duke of Buckingham said to James I, I'm ill. I'm really, really ill. The whole of England thought James I was going to die after his wife, Anne of Denmark, departed. And so the Duke said, we need a blood ritual. And they did a blood ritual. And the following year, James I came back to life. And the first place they all went to to visit was Stonehenge. Because they knew the stones could heal because it was written in the 12th century that they were healing stones. So that's where they went. And that's what we're going to go in search for, the altar stone. This is the, uh, the Duke of Buckingham uh, here. He, when he went there with Inigo Jones, he said, I will buy the trilophon. They, well, he wanted the greater trilophon to take back to, to London. And he offered the owner at the time any money you want. He was had more power than the King of England. He was in control of England at that time. Him and his uh, mother, they were both occultists. But the owner said no. And so that's the stone that they wanted. It's, it's leaning, put it in the holy, put it back up. But that's the one they wanted, and they couldn't have that. So they probably, for their occult practices, took the altar stone. The second altar stone, which uh, is probably uh, being stolen and carted away. And this is the evidence for it. All through history, it's been saying the second altar stone in John Aubrey's famous book, Monumentum Britannica. Aubrey was told of the second altar stone's fate by the rector of Bishopstone. He said that Philip, Earl of Pembroke, Lord Chamberlain to King Charles I, successor of James I, did say that an altar stone was found in the middle of the area here and it was carted away to St. James. And they interpreted that as St. James's Palace in London. So it was all documented that the second altar stone uh, was stolen. And when I ask archaeologists, we have all of this evidence, they were still looking for it in the 1930s. For example, Oh, well, we'll just stick to the model. We'll just stick to the model. And it's probably here in uh, St. James's Palace or in another place in Wiltshire, which Inigo Jones designed. So it's in one of those places. And it was the most, one of the most healing stones there. With the official line of Atkinson with the second altar stone, they know the hole's there. They know the hole's there, so they've got to find it. And he says that the, the stone hole, WA3359, was for a makeshift uh, stone. And the makeshift altar stone was this blue stone with a groove in it that still stands today by the altar stone. And there's one stone that they buried and hid away that has a kind of tongue. And they put these two stones together and they made a makeshift altar stone. Now, 
Uh, everything at Stonehenge had meaning. Nothing was by chance. And that's no way uh, the second altar stone. But that's the official line uh, going. So we're coming to another anomaly now, the buried trilophon. Again, Hawley, back in the 1930s, really knew that that was the model. They clearly saw that, but they knew that they didn't know what to do with it. They found it. And so this is the model Inigo Jones made of the sixth uh, trilophon. That's what, uh, what it looks like. And where is, where is it? This is where it is. It's buried right there. And they know that and they won't dig it up and they won't do an excavation. I've called for one recently and saying, well, let's just have a look, geophysic, do something to try and find this uh, wonderful uh, stone. I'm going to talk now about the power of stone. Because Stonehenge can really change your consciousness. And it has such healing ability that is second to none. And that is the magic of stone. Imagine there's loads of ley lines coursing through Stonehenge, but more than that, at the center, you have a convergence of earth currents rising out of the ground. And also by the heel stone, that's a power point as well. We're gonna have a look at the metaphysical properties of stone and how the ancients used the monument. And here we have a wonderful quote from the 12th century. For in these stones is a mystery and a healing virtue against many ailments. For they washed the stones and poured the water into baths, whereby those who were sick were cured. For not a stone is there that is wanting in virtue or leechcraft. I mean, it was the best place to go and have healing and mixing water with stone. That's a trace element of what was really happening with some of these very, very mighty stones. These stones here are what's called in situ. They haven't ever been touched by Atkinson. They're not swamped in concrete. That's how ancients, the ancients put them there. And again, imagine them pink and orange, very light pink hue. It's very beautiful sarsen that's come out of the ground. It's not that kind of gray color that you see. And this is the side of a very special trilophon. So join me now. We're going to Stonehenge. We've gone through the entrance of the blue stone, concentric circle. And now there's a horseshoe with a trilophon behind me. And just on my left-hand side is a towering stone. And if you walk towards that, you really do feel your body down one side tingle, for, for example. But it had a hole on the other side. And that hole there, according to the custodian of uh, Stonehenge and the archaeologist, that made water even in a drought. It was magical. They said it could be really hot day. It would fill up with water. And they tried to figure out where the water was coming from. And you can even see water erosion where it was overflowing. And so people went there from far and wide and said that, uh, you know, it could heal all sorts of disorders. Shortness of breath, asthma is what they were talking about in that time. The falling sickness, 
epilepsy is what that was called. And people, even in the 1940s, after the war, used to go there and start bathing and washing in it. And they said they would be cured of all ailments. That's why in that first postcard I showed you, after illness. So it's very, very powerful. So... There was queues now in the 1940s. People had ailments from the Second World War. So people were queuing by that stone. And the authorities got to hear about it and said, what's all this about the healing waters here? And they were saying, oh, it's like the lords of France. They said, oh, we don't, we can't have this. We're going to stop this practice now. And that's what they did. They plugged it up with cement and plastic. So it no longer is a, is a feature, but it's, it's remembered by the very old, even in Amesbury today. So that's one of the healing virtues of the mighty temple we call Stonehenge. This stone has fallen, okay? It came down in a storm. That's the line that, again, English heritage say. The stones didn't fall down. They've been up for four and a half thousand years. What has happened was Atkinson got a crane and he lifted stone 22 from its socket and apparently it went crazy. And it spun around and spun around and spun around and went bang into another stone. And so now that one's leaning. So they said, oh, we're going to push that one up. And this one came down because of something else Atkinson did. We'll see in a moment. But they, our archaeologists say that this tooling here, as it's called, broad tooling, it makes a spine, okay? Like a big ridge, and you've got two, and they're at human height. So when that stone was upright, if I went against it like this, it goes perfectly down my spine. You get these spine stones at lots and lots of stone circles. Avery has one. And I believe that they were when they were upright, if you put your spine against them, hundreds and hundreds of people have done this with me and said that they feel the energy. But here's a good trick when you go to Stonehenge, when you get book your private access with me, you can get your hands and go all the way down and you feel heat rising out of the stone. And I took just recently... This last month, I took 60 people all in all to Stonehenge. 60 people felt the heat coming out that stone. And then you get the guards come over. What are you doing? You're not allowed to touch stones. Touch, not to touch stones. Gently like that. And I said, there's heat coming out of the stones. Was, uh, was the look. And he, then he started doing it. And he called the other securities over. and said, look at this. The heat. So I think it was generated like that uh, in the past. It's an incredible stone. All of the stones at Stonehenge trilophons were for healing, okay? This other trilophon on the opposite side has a very strange carving in it, okay? It's like a, we'll see it in a moment, it's like a rectangle. Back in the Elizabethan times, it was recorded that there was a metal plate found near Stonehenge. Eventually it got buried in a burial, possibly with a very tall giant, as, as people, other researchers like Hugh Newman would say. I think it got buried, but it was said to be found near there. The metal, they didn't know. They were learned scholars at the time. They said it was tin. Then they argued, no, it's not tin, it's lead. And they couldn't figure it out. It had all these hieroglyphics all and these strange symbols on it. I propose that it was actually at Stonehenge itself. 
And this stone here of the trilithon, this is the carving. It's the exact same measurements as that metal plate. So maybe that was saying something about the history. But then people say, well, no, it was the Stone Age. It was the Neolithic and the Bronze Age. But nonetheless, that plate, whatever it was, wherever it came from, probably went there. And that's what I think. And it probably shone beautifully so. Just before we come to the people of the past, I want to tell you about the fate of Trilithon 59 and 60. The spine stone that I've just showed you was gently leaning over like that. Anyone will tell you that a leaning stone shows you the strongest earth energy and it bows to sacred space. That's why when you enter a long barrow, you always have to go down and then come back up. You bow to sacred space. And Atkinson said, we're going to straighten it like this. It can't be leaning. Can't be, that can't be the design. So with crane and chain, he lifted that stone up. And he must have had an oh no moment. Because suddenly it had a, a cut out feature that began to crack and it cracked doo, 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 all the way down. And they said there was a sound released from that stone itself. And today that's the weakest point of Stonehenge. And they didn't know what to do. So they plugged it up with concrete. That's why you see this stone and people go, what's inside that? It's a huge piece of ugly concrete. And that's because it was destroyed by Atkinson. But the people of the past, I mentioned that they had elongated skulls. There's two types of elongated skulled people. For example, back in 2015, when I first discovered them, this is the, the high queen of that long barrow that I discussed earlier. She had a hyper elongated skull because it had been manipulated by bandaging. You do get naturally long skulled people, but some of their skulls have been extended. And this is the one from Cambridge, uh, definitely a ruling elite. She was buried with artifacts as well. So they say in the Stone Age, oh, there, there was never any artifacts. She was buried with what looked like a kind of uh, a wand with uh, antlers and also an incense pot. And the incense pots, if you imagine like in churches, they swing the incense like that, don't they? That's what they were doing. They had these incense pots. They were swinging them like in churches and they were full of opiates. So they were, you know, entering a, a different sort of consciousness, uh, if you will. Now, I didn't have the body proportions when I first had that skull. I then had to go back uh, to Cambridge to find out the, the dimensions. And even though they had very long elongated skulls, they're tiny little skulls because we have a body measurement of one eighth of our head to our bodies. They didn't. It was one tenth. So they're very, very small heads and long bodies looking all completely out of proportions. And these are from an anthropologist from Oxford. And when I said to them, well, you've got all of this information. Has anyone ever put one of these together? And they said no. And with the full height of the femur bone, probably about five feet. Uh, this is a male, uh, for example. So very tiny little heads. And this is me measuring a, a femur bone uh, with uh, the crater of uh, Oxford. And 
all the measurements from all of the Neolithic long barrows, 17 inches or less. Even from the names like the giant's grave, they were just 16 inches. Again, five feet four tall. So that's the skull shape that was from, again, from reports. So you imagine that tiny skull and their faces were so narrow, like this. And when I said to the crater that you've just seen, that's like a child's. And he said, yeah, yeah, I know. So they had, they were kind of very, almost like, as you'll see, fairy-like, because their ears were all in a, a different position than we have uh, today. So I think these were the mythical beings of that descended into the mounds in mythology, in Ireland, because they say the Tuatha Dé Nain were the ruling supernatural, fae, the fairy folk of Ireland. And after losing a battle, which they did have a battle, the elongated skulls, they descended into the mounds. That's what I think these beings are. They're very different from uh, the giants, because in every single report that we read, their ears were quite large, except further back. So we have our ears in the kind of, obviously, in the uh, right place for, uh, for us. Their ears were uh, much, much further back, giving them, again, this mythological kind of look, uh, like uh, modern-day depictions that we have uh, today, but very fine features uh, as well. And I believe with their elongated uh, skulls that they had metaphysical powers uh, about them. And I think they could, as I mentioned uh, yesterday, I think they could hear stones. So there's two types of long-headed people, like I mentioned earlier. This is a, a long-headed uh, person, really extended skull at the back, and the evidence from the long bows, especially at Stonehenge, said there was some kind of battle that was going on at Stonehenge, for example. So you've got these mythical-looking people, and I believe with the ancient DNA that they were the ones that constructed Stonehenge, because it's a Neolithic monument. So you have the lesser type, and this is one here. The skull is still very tiny, uh, and they were, again, very small with their femur, femur bones. And this is a, a close-up of it, very, very uh, childlike, uh, in, in, even in weight. And these bones are very, very light as well, rather than the dense skulls that we have today. And this is how narrow they are as well. And that's a measurement map that you use at places uh, like like Oxford, for example. So uh, if we look at there, then this skull is of the, the lesser long-headed type. They are still very, very narrow. Now, let's compare that to the invaders that came in. And they were called the Belvica people around 2500 B.C., and that's a comparison. So they would have looked like giants to them. So they were coming over and they were looking at our monuments, the Europeans. We've got all the DNA evidence uh, for this, incidentally. And I think there was now a battle for Stonehenge, just like in the Irish mythology, because the Neolithic queen that I opened up with, she had been murdered. And when I looked to the archaeological reports of all of the barrows that surrounded her, they had all been murdered as well. In fact, in one barrow alone, there was a massacre of about 40 males hidden away, squirreled away on the Salisbury Plain. So what was going on there? 
I think that the round-headed uh, people, and that's what the, the antiquarians kind of figured all of this out because they said long-headed people in long barrows, round-headed people in round barrows. So they were the people. There was a battle. And it baffles archaeologists. Why has Stonehenge gone over so many different tinkerings? They would take one stone setting and change it. So, for example, uh, 2500 BC, they took that concentric circle, made it into an oval shape. Then they would take something out and they would change it around. And they don't know why. Why did they keep changing all of our monuments? They did at Avery. Avery's not one monument at any one time. It's Neolithic and Bronze Age and Late Bronze Age. I think that's because the round-skulled people were dominating the area and tried to make it theirs. The first thing they did at Stonehenge was try to topple the Greater Trilithon by building, uh, by constructing rather, a big, big pit by it, but it still held its own. Now, Earth energies. I think these people of the past were highly, highly sensitive to the Earth, to stone. And they were very smart because I've been taught Dowson by Chinese geomancers, uh, master dowsers of Europe, for example. And the master dowsers of Europe showed me something. They got me to Turin and said, we're going to show you how even today the bishops uh, would enter an ancient site. I thought that sounds really interesting. And so they got me to try and find what they call a neutral area. And so I said, I think it's here, just off to one side before you'd enter a church or a cathedral in the northern part of Italy. And then I said, well, I'm going to have to see if I can find these in, in the rest of the world. Because what they told me was really quite fascinating. You go to the neutral place before you enter the monument and just stand there for, for a while. Let the energies uh, soak in you. We measured them. There's a lot of uh, negative ions coming out of the ground. And the electromagnetic field gets a little bit stronger. And so does the DC field. So while you're being cleansed, you're being grounded uh, as well at the same time. So you, Avery, this is the neutral stone. And you stand by it. And then if you walk around it on its uh, inner face, there's a ledge where you can sit down because it cleanses the energies. So you don't take your emotional baggage, <laughs> we've all got that, into the stone circle or temple. You get this at Karnak with the, the avenues of Sphinx. So before you enter, you cleanse uh, your whole being and it really does feel good. Also, if you're into dowsing, you can do a before and after so if I measured somebody's aura, for example, and you, you take a pendulum or rod and just move it away from the body, you might get a reaction here. Normally it's about here. As soon as you've been into a neutral space, it will be way past me. So my auric field now is very, very receptive. What the Neolithic were looking for as well, whether it's a pyramid, whether it's a stone circle, they were looking for sacred water. And sacred water is water that is born within the earth and generates this spiral pattern independent of rainfall. It's supposed to be very healing and it emits this kind of high electromagnetic field of seven to ten hertz. That was their first design canon. And it doesn't matter where you go in the world. It's very, very expensive to bore. 
and it's very difficult to find. So when you have moneyed people, they will want that water. They know about it. And if you're on your normal tap water that you, you know, drink from the tap, then that is groundwater that has fallen from the sky and filled up the aquifers. So an esoteric water divining law, that's a healing symbol when you stand above it. If you drink that water, you will live to a long, long age. And when I did some um, water divining for, he's passed away now, uh, for Lord Barr, Alexander Finn, he said, come to my property. I want you to, to decode it, Maria. And he said, I live above the spirals. We drink spiral water. So they do know uh, about this, that's for sure. And uh, there's these type of aquifers beneath the pyramids. A lot of people would just say it's a groundwater aquifer beneath the pyramid. Yes, you've got that groundwater there, yang water, but then you've got the yin water down here. And that's the sacred energy that uh, you are, will be in that field. And these energy patterns of the underground water can create triple spirals. And they are really sacred and very, very holy. And this is Newgrange in Ireland, a terrible reconstruction. I don't know if you've seen the before and after of this. That's got breeze blocks behind it. And in Ireland, all of the cons, as they're called, they have crystal quartz going over the top, but they stuck it round the side. They now know that was a mistake, a bit like some of the reconstructions at Stonehenge. And here we have the very famous triple spiral here. And a lot of people will say, oh, that represents the time of the year and uh, could be linked to Sirius or Venus. But the Earth produces this. And if we interact with these type of energies, I believe they regenerate your own body water. And they're very healing in that regard. So I take people to ancient sites to work with these energies and cleanse, uh, cleanse themselves literally from the, in, from the inside out. And these are the lunar effects at Stonehenge that create these wonderful patterns. But underground water doesn't behave like surface water. So surface water, such as the sea, uh, will react to the new and full moon in its high tides. These stones, in ancient Druid lore, you would only pick mistletoe six days after a new or full moon. And they constantly said the, de- the, the year began six days after the spring equinox. I suggest that the ancient Druids were so connected to nature, they felt these days because these energy patterns happen six days after new or full moon. So if you go to an ancient site on those days, but everybody tends to go there on a new or full moon, then you'll be experiencing by numerous stones, these triple spirals. And when you kind of really work with this, this energy, then I have had loads of people had healing experiences. I took a blind person around Stonehenge and it's probably one of my most interesting times because she was so highly sensitized. She could feel and she said it was like music coming out of the ground and she could feel all of these triple uh, spirals. 
And here we have another one at another phase of the six days after the full moon. The first one is the new, and that one is the second. So a lot going on at ancient sites. And a lot of people have all heard about leys. I'm sure you all have uh, here today have heard about ley lines. And back in the 1980s, I had the pleasure of working with the master dancer, Hamish Miller and Paul Broadhurst. And Hamish kindly has forwarded some of my books. He's a truly remarkable dancer. In the 1960s, John Michel said that there was a very famous ley line going from the west uh, and coast in Cornwall, all the way up to Hopton. That's what he said, and he said to Hamish and John, why are you going down it, guys, and see what you get? And they thought they'd get ladies that aren't really that exciting. They kind of expand and, and, and do this, and then they uh, sometimes go into the ground. So there they were, uh, doused it, and then they realized they hit on a lay system. So if you imagine that there's the ley line and you've got a male current entwining it, and then a female current entwining it, like the caduceus symbol or a strand of DNA, that's a lay system. And they are very powerful. You'll get the lay going through the site as a carrier wave almost, pushing the energy on, but the currents, that's what the ancients were truly working with because in an environment like Avery or Stonehenge, the ley line just hits one, two features. But these earth currents, they hit every single feature, bathing them in color. Like I said earlier, earth currents have a dominant color frequency. They're called the esoteric colors of the earth. You have the esoteric colors of the sun. So there's other colors that the Earth produces that aren't on the electromagnetic spectrum from red through to, to violet. Hamish called those two currents Mary and Michael because mainly because they have churches on them dedicated to Mary and Michael. And when I was in Egypt, I thought I would look for a lay system over there because everybody else just does the lays. And when I was uh, in, in Abydos Temple, for example, uh, you have the solar uh, ley line going right the way through the axis line of the church. That's done in yellow. There you've got another crossing point of a blue ley. You have three very powerful currents coursing through the land in temple after temple uh, with their with their energies. They're affected by the sun and the moon as well. So you get the solar line will be charged, especially now. I mean, with we have yesterday was Midsummer's Day, wasn't it? A lot of people could confuse Midsummer's Day with the summer solstice. People keep thinking it's in the ground. It's earth energy it must be in the ground, but it rises up. And we've used very uh, sensitive filters to try and find uh, the different frequencies and the different colors. And it's interesting to note that when you look to famous dowsers, you have, for example, Isaac Newton. He, he was a dowser. But one of the best dowsers, unfortunately so, was Himmler. And Himmler opened up the Dowson Academy during the Second World War. And in my family archives, I've got this wonderful photograph of Himmler shaking Hitler's hand, saying, congratulations on your Dowson Academy, because they were looking into how to raise the frequencies 
probably for very dark purposes. But they were following and tracking two very powerful frequencies. They're opposite each other. It's the white ray and the red ray. And that's where they got the colors for the Nazi flag bomb. Because if you raise these frequencies up, it is said that you can partly control the whole of that lay system. So imagine that I'm right in the bottom of Cornwall and I'm manipulating energies. I can influence Hopton on the Norfolk coast. That's the power of it in a way. Wherever you are, you can influence something else. The German master dowser that taught me about the red and the white frequency said, we're going to go to Stonehenge and I'm going to raise it by a factor of 15. And he did it in a particular manner. He was a top German master dancer. He will always be nameless because he has the most high ranking position in Europe, unelected, incidentally. But he is a very powerful dancer. So there we are at Stonehenge. And he said, I'm going to raise it by the factor of 15. And he did. And he said, and everybody that is in harmony with that earth current will dissipate. But they do it naturally. I thought, this I've got to see. I like that little trick. Uh, so he was there. He did a, a particular kind of rite, uh, ritual, and everybody left. And then we were just stood in Stonehenge watching all of this. And then my head started ringing. And I think, oh, wow, I can't, I can't handle this either. And I had to, to leave. I just happened to be talking to two ladies there. And she said, oh, I've got a really strange ringing uh, in my head. And that's what a lot of people can do here today. They can manipulate these energies. So I think, you know, when we go to these sites, tune in to see if you can get the color frequency. And it's so easy to do. You just get a, a dowsing dial. And then you get a pendulum and you ask to be shown the frequency. So, for example, the Knights Templar had their color frequencies. The Nazis had their color frequencies uh, as well. The British royals have their color frequencies. For example, whenever you get the red and the white ray of what the, the Germans were, were looking for, that's the symbol of the warrior. So when you go to some ancient sites that are associated with war and, and warriorship, that's the color frequencies. And when you go to other sites that have the frequency of the white ray and the blue ray, for example, that's the healing frequency. And that's where you can literally get healing. So and the Templars had their encodements and, and so did other societies as well. They all have their color encodement. And the royals, for, for example, they will only have a, a home or an ancient site where they're inaugurated, like Tara uh, in Ireland. The high kings went there to be you know, inaugurated. Then you must have the red, the white and the blue which is our, our colour encodement of our flags. So I really feel, uh, as, as a dowser, when we really start to decode ancient sites, we can say what they were being used for, how to use them today, and how they were probably used in the past, and by whom as well. 
The natural thing is when you work with these color frequencies, for example, if you're into healing and you allow that energy to literally come through your being, that will call you in the healing frequencies. So it's more than just looking at lines on a map. And it's more than just looking at earth currents in the ground. And at particular times of the year, if it's a male uh, current, like that's a solar line with male uh, currents entwining it, they become active at particular times of the eightfold year, which are, we've just had one, the solstices. They make the quarter days. Then we have those days in between, for example, like August the 1st, Namath, that's the next portal day uh, coming up. Then we have uh, Halloween, Christianized to Halloween, when uh, in Druidry, the ancestors are close and they can kind of come out of the ground and you can converse with them. And in bulk, uh, February the 1st, these are when these energies are at their maximum. And it's a sad fact is when everything's at its maximum and you can really, really become empowered by it, Stonehenge is a free-for-all. Anyone can enter. And it's then, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And, and it's, it's pretty chaotic. But if you go there on those days, you go to an ancient site on one of those eight-fold days, the veil is thinnest. And then you can interact. And then you can feel. And then you can walk around the monuments. I believe that's how we should try to reenact how our ancestors were. So when we have a recap on this journey of going to Stonehenge, Stonehenge isn't what you've been shown in the past. It really isn't. Stonehenge, I found you lost features of the lost altar stone, the trilophon, and there's many other features besides that. I've also shown you that there's a mythical race, a long lost mythical race that interacted with Stonehenge, built phase one and phase two. The later phases of Stonehenge were built by the much taller people and the geology and the archaeology fit that model. It's just we're not uh, told about that at all. So I'm just going to be uh, wrapping up uh, in, a, in a moment. This is my new book coming out soon. It's uh, going to be out in September. It's got far more than what we've discussed uh, here today. It's uh, going to be out, like I said, probably September, October, because I'm taking Earth energies into the next level now. I'm not only doing colour, that's all my old research, of uh, time's gone, as it were. I've, I found out every single Earth current can produce a musical frequency. And if you walk around an ancient site in a particular manner, you're walking in that musical harmonic and becoming one with it. And you can play musical instruments uh, to that harmonic. Also, I've discovered how we can enhance food production by living in harmony with Gaia as well. And my agricultural trials are now two years on. And I think that we can safely say if we follow this model, you can grow faster, no chemicals and be healthier for it because we can learn from the past and bring ancient technology to the future. Thank you.
Oh, wow. That was well worth it. Uh, some attention, everyone. Um, so there we go. Well, we're going to take a trip this time to Scotland. This is uh, with George Nury. <clears throat> it's called Ain- uh, Portals and Sacred Sites of Ancient Scotland, just next door here. Mm-hmm. Who are the original builders of meth- megaliths of Scotland? <clears throat> and could they connect all the way back to Atlantis and Egypt? We know the answer to that. <laughs> Author and researcher Freddie Silva explores the mystical, the mystical land of Scotland to reveal its ancient and mysterious past from powerful secret societies such as the Knights Templar to giants, megalithic monoliths, and ancient star connections. Silva helps to reveal Scotland's hidden history. Explore the modern science illuminating Celtic mythology and the secrets that are still arising from our lost past through Freddie Silva's new book, <coughs> Scotland's Hidden Sacred Past. Well, since we just listened to our sister here talk about this Stonehenge hidden history, mm-hmm. we might learn some comparative uh, relationship, but land is connected, so... Um, we're going to find out what we're going to find. So, a uh, little tay-to-tay between George Nury and Freddie Silver. Mm. Portals and sacred sites of ancient Scotland. Mm. And this is 45 minutes. So start now, right, Grandma? Yes, here we go. Welcome to Beyond Belief. Freddie Silva with us, best-selling author and leading researcher of ancient civilizations, restricted history, sacred sites, and their interaction with consciousness. He's here to discuss his latest work called Scotland's Hidden Sacred Past. Freddie, welcome to Beyond Belief. Hello again, George. It's like having family again. Why the interest in Scotland? In Scotland? Oh, it's because of the subtitles. Um, because there's so little known about it, it's a mystery in itself. Uh, if you think about it geographically, you think that civilization would have moved up from Europe, through France, then through Britain, all the way up to Scotland. I think so. It turns out that it turns out that uh, yeah, the whole thing began at the top of Scotland, on the islands, no less, and then it kind of threaded down towards Ireland, and then it kind of impregnated the rest of the uh, the landmass. So that, for me, was a big red flag that something else was going on here. And the fact that what they built there, there's over 300 temples, stone circles, some of the most beautiful things in Britain. Uh, they were not native to the, uh, to the territory. They came from very, very far away. And there was hardly anything that was known about the people who put them there or the reason why they were built. So I figured, I think that's a good making for a good mystery. So here we go again. Have you been to Scotland? Oh, many, many times. It's like a second home. You like it? Love it. Can't get enough. 
especially the curmudgeonly people who live on the islands, you know, people who live with uh, fog and dense rain all the time. And uh, they don't really like sort of foreigners of any kind. But once you get to know them, you can trust them with your life. Mel Gibson played the part of William Wallace. I, Scott. And he had good hair, too. Yeah, he did. Was, he, was that a realistic portrayal? <laughs> it's pretty good, actually. Uh, apart from the fact he's a, a very good actor. Sure. No, it's a very good portrayal. And he was a real heretic in the real sense of the word. Is Scotland magical? Absolutely, beyond a doubt. Uh, I think it's one of the most magical parts of the world because of the really? inheritance of information that they have at their disposal. I mean, the language itself uh, is based on uh, Armenian, which is one of the oldest languages in the world, which is a big surprise to me. And in fact, if you just read the Declaration of Arbroath, which is the de facto declare, Declaration of the Independence of Scotland, they actually talk about their origins as coming from the land of Scythia, which used to be the region around the Black Sea, which eventually uh -huh. went back to Armenia. So it wasn't a long shot from that, but very few people actually know that. So when you have the found, your foundation as one of the oldest languages in the world with very ancient traditions, then uh, you really can't go wrong from that. Geographically, is it uh, how big is it? Scotland. Oh, Scotland, I'd say, is about the size of Vermont. Not very big at Not all. Not very big. But before the uh, last sea level raise, which is about 3000 BC, sea levels went up about 24 feet. If you include the islands, some of those islands uh, were actually many continents in themselves, so it formed a much bigger landmass. 2400 feet took a lot of shoreline away. That's a lot of shoreline. And in some places, some of the islands could be fordable all the way back to the to the mainland. But it was also one of the last places in Britain that was covered with ice. So it makes a lot of sense that civilization began on the islands and it slowly makes its way inward because it was obviously not very hospitable. How independent is the country? Or is oh, it totally. still truly part of the United Kingdom too? They're not. Uh, when you cross the, uh, the border into Scotland, they're a completely different people. Fantastic sense of humor. Uh, and you def definitely feel, just like in Cornwall or Wales, that these people are genetically uh, and historically and culturally different. And I, for one, actually agree that they should have their own border with the English. Uh, you know, part, I'll probably get a lot of, a few enemies and a few uh, hate sure. from this, but it's actually very true. And I think it adds to the, uh, the sort of the color of the country uh, or, or the whole region, if you like. It's like going to a, into a foreign country without having a passport. Uh, so I, I, for one, am very supportive of uh, the Scottish right to self-determination. As we traveled through the region, and I'll have you explain to us these various areas and their significance. For example, let's talk about Scotland's megalithic past. Oh, yes. How dramatic was that? That is beyond belief, <laughs> to coin the phrase. Perfect name. We have, for example, on the island of Orkney, uh, Britain's tallest megaliths, 19 and a half feet tall, which, by the way, is a very consistent length for uh, megaliths around the British Isles, as though someone was reading from the same manual all the time. Uh, and they're still in perfect condition. Uh, there's a stone circle called the Ring of Brogar, lovely names, uh, still virtually intact, uh, because hardly anyone's ever gone up there. And also because in places like the Isle of Lewis, uh, with this stone circle of Kalanish, it was all preserved by the peat. So when people left the islands during a climate change 3,000 years ago, the peat begins to rise up. It covers these stones in no time at all. And the local people who stayed behind, very few of them, they would then cut the peat. They would stick it up in these little pyramids. They would make it dry. And that's what they use today for heating. So they thought they had a nice little series of stones until they cut away the peat. And little by little, they began to realize, oh, those stones are pretty big. And uh, they actually were able to preserve uh, by their natural inclination the very essence of what these monuments are all about. So we have some of the best preserved monuments in the British Isles 
in the extreme part of the British Isles. And that's what makes it very magical. Let's go to an island called Staffa. Staffa. What is so unusual about that and the belt of Orion out there? Oh, my God. Uh, if you have the stomach for it, even on a nice day, taking a little fishing boat out there, uh, the sea is very shallow. So you're going to get bounced around like a, a bouncing ball. And uh, it's the staff is a very tiny island. It looks like a series of organ pipes that suddenly got thrust out of the ocean. Huh. It's all of these octagonal basalt blocks. And they, they literally look like organ pipes. Was that man-made? No, no, no. It looks man-made. It looks like a machine, but it's all the, uh, it's the thrust of magma that came out of the ocean. It's the second oldest rock on earth. And when that hot magma made of a certain crystalline structure hits the cold water, it literally solidifies in these octagonal shapes. So you're walking around what look like organ pipes and it has three, uh, caves, two large, one small. The main one's called Fingal's Cave. There's a whole mythology about it. And um, it turns out that the guy that was uh, based around this mythology, a guy called Fingal, or uh, Fingal Mahel, if you want to get into the brogue, uh, which is really hard to pronounce, it turns out he's the guardian into the other world. And uh, all of these guardians into the other world, like Osiris before him in Egypt, they were associated with Orion. And one day when I'm standing there, I'm thinking, that's interesting, because the story of this benevolent giant who was white-skinned, which back then was very unusual for that area because people were darker-skinned, so he stood out. Uh, so the myth is kind of telling about someone who lived there that appeared to have used these caves for a certain initiation. So uh, one of these days I was looking at the three caves and since the stories of Finn and uh, the people that work with the other world are always connected with Orion, I figured, what if it's possible that they chose this specific island out of all the others to do a ritual landscape where the caves themselves are aligned to the bell stars of Orion, just like in Egypt. So a little bit of computer work didn't take that long. Stood on top of uh, Staffa with the three caves in front of me. And sure enough, uh, if you look at the horizon, the first time that the belt of Orion rises above the horizon on the winter solstice in about 3200 BC matches the exact Perfect. alignment of the Perfect. caves. Celestial geniuses. Unbelievable. You made a documentary of Scotland's hidden sacred past. Oh, yeah. Let's take a look at one of your trips to an island of Mull. Oh. All manner of mystics made their way to Mull to find a bond with their god, particularly women who always found a safe haven here. For example, the Church of the Nine Holy Maidens, or the Hill of the Virgins. An island Nambam, the island of women. And men like Kenik Dalan, a 6th century Celtic monk with family ties to the Druids and possibly the mythical rulers of Ireland, the Tuatha de Danann. Koenig built a chapel beside the ring of trees, marking what can only be described as a vortex, the kind of energy hotspot sought by mystics for shamanic travel. It may explain why the monk chose to build a chapel far from any congregation and in the middle of nowhere. Oh, he wasn't the only one drawn to this remote corner of Mull. Uh, around the 14th century, there's another group of mystics practicing ancient systems of knowledge, and they made their way here and created a home for themselves. And they were the Knights Templar, whose inner brotherhood behaved like a ministerial college. And they built a cubic tower inside which lies a restricted chamber used for an out-of-body ritual whereby the initiates were described as raised from the dead. 
And just like megalithic temple builders before them, the Templars too aligned their temple to the stars. The tower is placed at the exotic angle of 51 degrees, the same angle of slope of the Great Pyramid of Giza, and the number associated with Seshet, Egyptian goddess of sacred buildings. Its northeast wall faces the summer solstice, the highest position of the light and symbolic of the attainment of wisdom. Its southeast wall marks the winter solstice, as well as the rising of Cygnus, the constellation of the swan, symbol of the divine feminine in the era of the Templars. And the eastern corner of the building aligns to the rising of Venus on the spring equinox, the symbol of the risen initiate. It also references Orion on the winter solstice. That's fantastic. He looks just like me. I'm going to have a chat with my agent about this. Well, he looks a little better than you, actually. <laughs> you just saying that to hurt me. How old are those structures we just saw in that portion? Those are fairly recent. Uh, they're about 12th century, 13th century. Uh, the Templars built something on perhaps something that was there originally because that was not unusual for them. They do it everywhere else in Europe. They're always protecting a site of extreme antiquity, usually dedicated to a female deity. Uh, in Portugal, for example, they would protect sites connected to Isis or her local doppelganger. Uh-huh. But here, they actually built it on a very strange location. It was a sort of outcrop of rock right next to the uh, to the ocean uh, with a, a fresh water way around it, And uh, which means that uh, if anybody tried to uh, raid the building or lay siege to it, the people would be inside the building, except that all they had to do is uh, stay outside for a couple of weeks and you had no drinking water because the salt goes into the actual drinking water from the ocean and you die first. So there's a big chamber right underneath it, which uh, archaeologists say, well, that was obviously a well, but there's no way for water to go in there. So the only other uh, reason why they built that chamber was to have this experience of leaving the body, which they did in other places around Europe. And that was also consistent with other practices of similar sects that did the same thing. Uh, when you reach a certain level of uh, initiation within the Brotherhood, on the third year, you'd be given a narcotic. You'd be put it into this box or a chamber uh, below the ground, like you're going into the womb of the Earth Mother. Wow. And then you leave the body for three days. You come back three days later completely aware of where you've just been, not like a dream state. So you've actually physically left so the body. So they had out-of-body experience. A, an induced near-death experience uh, to, to come of it. So it's a practice that goes back to Japan in 8000 BC. And what did they induce that with? With poison. Uh, very well-timed poison because you get it you wrong. You get a little too much. Well, that was my point. Is that how did they, did, they, did they practice? You know, you start off at 15% and you go, well, he's dead. He's Bring dead. in the next candidate. Let's lower it. Yeah. A little bit lower. He's dead. <laughs> it, would have, it would have been hard to put your hand up to volunteer, but that's how they did it. And it was that's how it was done in the Middle East and Near East. Even in North America in 1890, Native Americans up in Michigan uh, were still doing that. And three really? days later, you come back into the body completely groggy, but you're totally aware where you've been and all the information that you've gathered while you've been in the other world. And when you leave the body, so when you come back into the body, you are declared risen or you're declared, declared alive. That's where the concept of living resurrection comes from. They seem to have a lot of knowledge of astronomy. Oh, very Did much they? so. Very much so. It was all to do with the ancient uh, concept of as above, so below. Uh, our ancestors were very much aware that the universe is alive. 
and the planets and the stars even more so. So to bring the energy of a specific constellation or a specific planet, which they understood to hold a certain frequency, was to bestow on a certain point on the Earth the frequency and the energy consistent with that body. So if you were trying to build a temple to, say, knowledge, you connect with the star Sirius or the Pleiades, which is consistent with every culture. Uh, Orion is also very consistent in this story as well. So the Templars were borrowing from a very old manual when they aligned their buildings to, to then give the little nod to anyone that was walking by. If they look at the alignment of the buildings, they'd say, the people that live here know something that we shouldn't talk about in public because back then the church would have killed you on the spot. Oh, absolutely. So it was a way to do a little nod in the wing to people who did knew about alignments because it was a secret communication, a secret language. And they were following already a very old tradition in the area. These Templars, were they the same guardians of the Shroud of Turin, the same ones? I think there's a different uh, group there. But uh, I, I really do believe, uh, and there was, um, I think it was, uh, um, Michael Bajan, I think it was, who wrote a very interesting book about the Shroud and uh, basing on the fact that it's the image of Jacques de Molay, which is one of the last Templar masters. No, uh, Jesus. It bears a very close resemblance facially. To and, Jesus. And to the way that he was actually you know, positioned. Who are the Tuaha Deidana? Ah, now we're getting to the deep territory. How did I do on that name? Very good. You can't pronounce Gaelic very easily. It's uh, If you can master that, you're already halfway you, there. You train me well. <laughs> very good. Who are they? They are a very interesting people who were mythologized by the incoming Catholic Church, and they were turned into fairy folk, little people, very annoying, because they wanted to get the Irish people away from uh, eulogizing and following this uh, ancient race of, uh, of people who follow the divine bloodline. And I followed the trail all the way across Europe. So in about three to 5,000 BC, not sure about the timing, they arrived on the coast of Ireland as the Tuatha de Danann. They were very tall, unusual for the region, despite the fact we had Norwegians not far away, very light-skinned, blonde, blue-eyed, and uh, they stood out like a sore thumb from everybody else. And they were said to be part of a divine bloodline, and they were totally understanding about mathematics, astronomy, uh, the movements of the planets, and how these things influenced the being. And they also carried a very ancient tradition of mysticism, which led to the development of the self and the spiritual body. So I traced them all the way back through France, all the way through Europe, through Denmark. Eventually, they go to a place called Scythia, one of the biggest kingdoms in Europe in about 5,000 years ago around Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, and uh, what was then Armenia, one of the oldest places on uh-huh. Earth. All right. So that was old Scythian territory, and there they are called the Tuad de Danu. So as language moves geographically, it changes with the, changes with the, with the dialect. Yeah. So Tuad de Danu were part of a divine bloodline who were half human, half divine. Are they still around? They're now the Tuad de Danan. They're also part of the uh, Scandinavian race. Uh, the Caucasian oh, really? race. Okay. Of course, it's very diffused now. Uh, Extremely. Completely diffused. We're talking thousands of years of development because before that, you trace them back to the Armenian highlands and they are your friends and mine, the people of Anu, also known as the Anunnaki. Were they giants? They were eight and a half feet tall, apparently, according to the Egyptians, who were also part of that same race as well. And it's actually written on one of the temple walls, I believe is it's at Edfu. It gives you a specific uh, height of eight and a half feet, which is about the height of the skeletons that we find in the giant's graves throughout Great Britain. Freddie, who are and were the Druids? The Druids were very interesting people. Uh, Druid, uh, as a, 
I hope I'm not offending any Gaelic people here. That no, you're doing great. Uh, <laughs> Better than me. A couple of pints of Guinness. You can speak Gaelic very easily. Basically, they were, with the name that originally translates, there's been a lot of argument about this. I found one of the oldest translations of the name. It means to bring into the circle. They were part of a mystical group of people that held a certain secret circle, just like the Templars and everybody else. Good people? Evil people? Oh, very good people. They were, master, they were protectors of ancient mysticism that leads to the development of the spiritual self. Nothing wrong with that at all right and they dressed in white robes um they again understood the stars mathematics uh julius caesar were absolutely frightened by them and fascinated by them in the why them because they could do things uh, and like change the weather and frighten the hell out of entire roman change legions. the weather completely change the weather by just by using the power of intent focusing it and making the romans run away in fact Julius Caesar had a problem recruiting people to go and fight the Druids when they were finally holed up in Wales. Uh, even the women joined the Druids and said, we're going to get rid of the Romans. And for several centuries, the Romans c- could go nowhere near them. It frightened the hell out of them. And one of the things that they learned was to use the power of sound to paralyze the Romans during battle. So they're just, it's like the Japanese, like the samurai. With that, you know, that sound that they do, the ki, and it brings down the atmospheric uh, barometer pressure of your blood. And when it does that, it induces sort of a catatonic fear in your opponent. That's why they do that. That's amazing. So it gives you just a few seconds before the Romans finally woke up and they realized that they're actually being, you know, hit upon by arrows and swords. Uh, incredible. It's all about the power of intent and how to manipulate nature. They understood the mind, didn't they? And that's the one thing that connects all these people. Their technology literally was understanding the laws of nature, harnessing the nature, and then bending the rules within the rules themselves. That's what turned them into gods. Freddie, what was so unusual about the island of Iona? Oh, the fact that 60 kings and queens are buried there on an island three miles by one. It's suspicious. 60 kings uh, and queens? Macbeth. Oh, yes. Everybody wanted to Why be buried there. Why on that island? Exactly. Uh, another one of those little mysteries. Uh, it's been sacred as long as we can remember. Uh, and it's uh, the original name, Hai-On-Na, uh, is uh, an Armenian phrase, which means the uh, island of the uh, noble clan of Armenian people. Uh, or if you look at it from another point of view, the island of the noble clan of Orion. Uh, I thought that's very interesting. In the place where you have the abbey at the moment, the famous abbey of Iona, there used to be a stone circle with 360 stones. The whole place is one great big energetic hotspot. And ever since we've known uh, the island's history, people have gone there to do all kinds of interesting things to do with energy manipulation, moving the laws of physics, and literally establishing uh, groups who are very ecumenical. Uh, The women were allowed there. They had equal footing as, as the men. And everybody got along just fine. The Druids were there as well. The Chaldee. Uh, moved there in 33 AD, sorry, 35 like AD. Seems place to be, huh? A very good place to be because it's about the rock and the energy of the rock. It's mostly red granite. It's one of the most powerful rocks on earth. A lot of quartz, a lot of iron, a lot of magnetite. And it's the same elements that you find in the human body. So it's as though you're standing on the rock version of the human body. So they were allowed to do all kinds of mystical things in that island, free from, uh, well, free from the English for one thing. And certainly the uh, Scots were very much into this anyway. A lot of the kings were. They let them get, get along and do their own perambulations. In your documentary, Scotland's Hidden, the Sacred Past, you tell a story of a monk, Audran. Audran, yeah. Let's take a look at that. Beside the abbey, An overlooked chapel marks the rising of Venus on the spring equinox in 37 AD. 
Inside this humble building, the Kuldik practice their magic. As a monk named Odrun, a companion of the notorious St. Columba, found out for himself. There is a legend that the walls of the chapel came down as fast as they went up, as though by evil magic. And only when a person was buried alive would the stones stay put. Now, Odrun, being the devout Catholic he was, thought this all pagan mumbo-jumbo. But to his credit, he volunteered to be buried alive to prove the point. And three days later, the earth was removed. Odrun raised himself, and much to everyone's bewilderment, he declared that all that had been said and preached about hell was a complete joke. Odrin had himself an out-of-body experience. He found himself in the other world and returned to tell the tale of how the universe really is, rather than how it is portrayed by religion. You see, the chapel sits on a hot spot of energy that is capable of facilitating such a journey. It's perhaps the most secret of all esoteric rituals, and it was practiced for at least 6,000 years from here to North America to India and the Middle East. And the concept of walls going down and up is really a, a description of the change of perception experienced during the ritual. Uh, you literally experience the dematerialization of the physical world and with it the temporary departure of the soul and its eventual return to the body. And Eastern mystics called it Kayi, or as we've come to know it via the Essenes, the way. In essence, the Kuldich practiced the same near-death ritual once performed inside the box in the Great Pyramid of Giza, or the restricted chamber of the Pyramid of Unas and Saqqara, and many other restricted rooms around the world associated with this initiation, which became known as the Living Resurrection. I love the architecture of those buildings, Freddie. It's uh, magical. I mean, that was part of the art that they practiced the different use of geometry and the relationship of elements and the careful use of stone, the choice of stone, was actually what created the, the special environment. So you can go from one building to the next. It will look almost identical, but the two will have a completely different effect on you. And it's all about the, the relationship of geometry. It's like going to Giza. You have three pyramids, big right. pyramids. Right. Each one of them has their innate angle of slope. Every person will have a different experience in the little pyramid as they'll have in the middle pyramid and the big pyramid. And it's all to do with the relationship of these those angles. It has a specific effect on your state of awareness. And that was part of what the mystery teachings were all about and why they were so protected. And people took the, uh, the teachings to their grave if necessary rather than give them away. Let's move to the island of Sardinia. Yeah. Tell me its relationship to Scotland. Well, here's the funny thing about this project. Uh, and this is something that was taught to me when I was 12 by my history teacher. If you want to find the origin of something, go back at least 80 years and then go somewhere else to find out what was going yeah. on in the place you're examining. So I had this half-finished hypothesis, uh, and it's not even a book at this point. Uh, so I'm off to Sardinia and I'm uh, walking around and looking at things and going, wait a minute. These are the very things that we have in Scotland that the archaeologists say shouldn't be in Scotland. We don't know where they came from. And here they are, 3,000 years earlier, being built in Sardinia. Now you know where they the came from. the same mythology, yeah. the same construction method, the same associations to Orion. The giants are buried all over Sardinia. I mean, the locals, you sit in a, in a, not a pub, like a cafe, 
And they're more than happy to say, we're very proud to tell you of the history of where we come from. The Giants used to have this as a big colony. And in the last days of Atlantis, and they mentioned this so freely, without any sign of any embarrassment, in the last days of Atlantis, there used to be a colony here. The Giants are everywhere, there are pyramids everywhere, and they're absolutely right. And there's a whole vow of silence over the island because these people are threatened not just by the police, they're threatened by the archaeologists and the church to mention pyramids or giants. And when they find them, they just get removed and they are threatened with their jobs. That so You'll never work on this island again if you talk about what we've just seen. And that got me interested immediately because suddenly I realized that whatever was happening in Scotland first took place in Sardinia. The connection was not just the mythology, not just the construction method, but the DNA of the people that were in Sardinia eventually becomes part of the Scotland. And uh, 24% of the DNA in Scottish people today comes from Sardinia, and that comes from somewhere else. Now, so, how did the Italian influence occur and take over Sardinia? Oh, that came much later, uh, because, I mean, Italy obviously now governs Sardinia. Uh, it's like a holiday island for the Italians. Uh, but that comes much more later in the historical era. I, okay. I believe it was in the 18th century when finally it became part of uh, Italy. And then Corsica to the top becomes part of France. What is dwarfy stain? Now, the dwarfy stain uh, is a incredible big, well, it's not a boulder. It's a big slab of Devonian redstone that sits by itself in the valley uh, on one of the islands of the archipelago of Orkney. So we're natural? Natural, very natural. Although you wouldn't, uh, when you go there, you go... It's very hmm. suspicious. It looks like a little spaceship. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the rock boats of the gods that they have like flying about in Japan. Band. But it is very natural. Uh, it was dragged not far away from the, uh, from the cliffs. There's like nothing you've ever seen. It's a big slab which has been hollowed out uh, by hand into this very narrow chamber. It's about three feet high by about two feet wide. Uh, I have to crawl in there. And then when you go in... Uh, there's a little chamber, which is uh, like a half-moon chamber. Don't you get claustrophobic? It began to get a little bit interesting in there. I don't do well with confined spaces, but my curiosity gets the better of me. And it, it, there's a point where you think, maybe I shouldn't be in here, yeah. but get, I have to, get to, me to write about it. I've got to experience it. Sure. You know. And then the other side's got yeah, another chamber that has like a, a picture window. And you think, why is there a picture window and, and, a, and a, what looks like a bolster for someone lying down with a head on this rock bolster? And um, the uh, angle which it aligns to is precisely due west. And I mean, it's exactly due west. And there's a big stone plug that fits exactly into the hole, leaving just enough, a little bit of light and enough of a sliver of light for air. So it wasn't meant for anyone to be buried. It was meant for someone to be inside, but it was meant for the uh, plug to be taken out at a certain time to allow the person to come out. Because when the Vikings found it, much later on in history, they thought there might be treasure inside and the plug was in the hole. So they had to d uh, dig a hole from the top to go inside, and they found nothing. There's no one in there. Was there much different. maneuvering room? Not much. Not for six-foot-five guy, even though it's associated with uh, giants, I again. I think. Uh, but I did, did – uh, uh, when I began to sort of breathe, you could hear the heart and the breathing being very labored. And I thought, I'm getting a sense that I know the, the note in here. And you do a very, very low note to the point you're almost like this. It's almost hurting your throat. Uh, and I, I began to do it for about two minutes uh, without taking a breath, and suddenly you realize you're leaving the body. There's only one other place in the world I know that that is possible, and that's the box in the king's chamber, and it has exactly the same purpose and exactly the same note. So whoever had uh, been working in that place in Egypt also had worked 
there in right. Scotland. Or they sent the knowledge of it or something. Exactly, because a lot of the place names of these sacred sites in, in Orkney actually have an Egyptian background as well. And in fact, you have, they actually mean exactly what they are. I mean, there's the stone circle just up the road from uh, the Dwarfist thing, of Ring of Brogar, lovely name. Braga in Egyptian means the enclosure of the sun, and that stone circle actually is an astronomical site which conf- uh, depicts the, uh, the houses of the sun throughout the year. So what's Egyptian language doing up there, I wonder? Well, you had an opportunity to talk to Regina Meredith on Open Minds about Sardinia and some of their sites. And if you were standing here in 8,500 BC, you would get a perfect alignment with the equinox sunrise and an hour before that, you see Venus rising yeah. just before uh-huh. it. And you see this again and again around the world. And anytime okay. you see that kind of chamber, that's usually a place that was used for initiation. And what I find interesting about that is then we're talking about, and I say the word cults very loosely, but uh, groups of individuals that had knowledge that were aligned with the sun, yeah. which is in the classic hermetic sense, those with the shining ones with the advanced knowledge would be the ones more prone to aligning their structures toward the sun rather than the moon cults, for example. Exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. And Venus was always, Venus rising before the equinox sunrise was always the mark of the risen initiate. Okay. Someone had gone into a special place like this, they would have gone in because, well, the frequencies are here, they're different on the inside, they would have been the ones who had become much more, uh, um, I want to say, tempered by the, the frequencies inside the chamber mm-hmm. because they would have actually uh, been beneficial to them. And we know that these frequencies actually align with the human body in a way that drives down your state of thinking to a place where it's not thinking. Right, you're doing going into a more alpha state or even a delta yeah. state of consciousness. So you're saying that this is positioned in really critical ley line um, oh, on that mat- matrices? Every single te- sacred site on the face of the earth is aligned exactly where the earth's tillery currents happen to be. Whether they were manipulated there or whether they were there to begin with, that's another story. Mm-hmm. It's a big situation, but certainly they mark the, where the X marks the spot. So, and anybody who's sensitive uh, and can't afford, you know, twenty thousand uh, dollar pieces of equipment will actually pick up this stuff. And a, a twenty thousand dollar piece of equipment will do it too. It's just a lot cheaper if you just sit here and actually, you know, get a sense that there's something unusual about this place. So, chicken or egg? You're saying that the shaman of the day or the priests of the day understood that this had a particular ley line pattern here that was beneficial for building this? Exactly. Or are you, so you're saying by evidence that it's built, we know that the ley lines are here. Both. Fascinating place. Why were you holding an umbrella? The Sardinians were apologizing. They said, we have never had this much rain ever historically on the island. And here we are filming. And somehow the technicians, a guy managed to get three episodes out of this. It was hard work. I mean, we had great it conversations of plop, 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 plop. Well, great cut, but we can't hear what you say. <laughs> and that was all on Sardinia. Yeah, Sardinia is uh, incredible. I need Gorgeous. to go back there to finish the job because there's so much going on. What's the population on that island? I don't know, but it's very sparse. I mean, you either have, you have Cagliari at the bottom, which is the uh, capital, and Abruzzo at the north. And between that, um, there's not really much going on. Very small villages, and I kind of like it that way. And people who know things, their grandparents and their uh, parents will, you know, volunteer right. information because it's part of the folklore, and that's what really helps us. I mean, for example, they have an entire culture there called the Nuragic culture, and I can't find any historian or any archaeologist that will explain to me what does Nuragic mean. I said, well, we don't know. 
well, why do you, why do you name your entire uh, culture of your island the Nuremberg culture? And they can't explain it. Well, a year later of research, I began to uh, learn Armenian, found out that Nurag is actually a holy person or a legate. And the people that said that they built these uh, temples in Sardinia, like the round towers we find there and right. in Scotland, and those giants' graves where no giants are buried, they said, yeah, these were a special spiritual group of people that were understanding of the stars, and they were also priests, so they are astronomer priests. Well, that's what a Nurag means in Armenian. So there's that Armenian connection now between uh, the movement of people in Sardinia and also their DNA is also found there, and it's also found in Scotland. So now we have three stepping stones connecting these places. Freddie, tell us about the Ring of Broga. The Ring of Broga. It's like, uh, it's, you feel like someone up there wrote the Lord of the Rings from these names. Ring of Brogar is wonderful. It's not situated at the place where you'd expect an astrolabe, uh, a sort of a big astrolabe to be, because that's what it is. It marks the solar and lunar calendars and attracts the stars. Uh, it should be a bit higher up. It should be more, more level ground, but they shifted it further just to the south, just enough to make sure that everything calibrates with the horizon. Ah. But in the middle of the stone circle, it marks the exact 59th parallel of latitude. So they're very, uh, that's another question. Why were they marking this very exact parallel? It comes with its own mystical story of giants who are turned to stone. And the idea is that there was a fiddler that sprang up a very lusty tune on his fiddle one day. And this giants had to get back to their home before the sun came up. But they got so distracted by the tune and the dancing that they forgot the sunrise and they get turned to stone. And uh-huh. you hear the story again and again. And the thing is, the name Braga in Armenian actually means dance song stones. So the mythology is actually named after the name of the site, which is based on Armenian language. Uh, so again, you have a, a mixture of cultures on this completely windswept island off the north coast of Scotland, which the site itself uh, took 166,000 man hours to create. They had to Huge. level the bedrock. They had to build, it's the biggest stone circle uh, in the whole of uh, Europe, uh, I believe, uh, if not the British Is Isles. that called the Stennis stone circle or is that something else? Stennis is the one just down the hill, which is a little bit smaller and priceless. But it's, it's part of a three uh, stone circles. The third one, hardly even know, knows it's there because the stones have been pilfered for the local uh, farmyard. Uh, but together they form an alignment, which of course, uh, two big stone circles, one little one, slightly offset from the other, which is a complete mirror image of the first rising of a Rhine's belt over Orkney in a natural landscape bowl on the horizon in 5300 BC. So we have an exact date of when these people were there. Leon Fail, what is that? The Leon Fail, the sacred stone of Ireland. Now that's a whole sort of story in itself. Oh, they've got magical stones everywhere on this Absolutely, side. because you see the stones wouldn't just... You didn't just go and get an ordinary stone off the side of the road. You'd have to go sometimes 400 miles to get the right stone with the right chemical composition in order to be put in the exact place where the Earth's currents just happened to cross. Now, in the old days, we could figure this out, and you could speak to the Hopi or the Aboriginal people. They'll say, oh, I know where it is because I can see them. I can feel them right there, and they can. Now, when you and I forget about these natural abilities and we forget where the energy is, they would then mark where X uh, happens to be. So the stone, with its uh, magnet, uh, magnetite and its iron and its crystalline structure, when it's anchored into that particular uh, uh, electromagnetic current, the current charges the stone. So if you're there at the right moment, at the right time when it hasn't been discharged for a long time, and a lot of dowsers will tell you this, 
you go up to the stone, you think, this stone wants to talk to me. It has something to say. Talking stones? The stones, want to, it's like a computer. And you go up to it, and uh, I've done this so many times foolishly, and I just put my hand on the stone, I get one hell of a belt. For the next 15 minutes, you can't feel your entire floor. Really? You get an electric shock. And then you can't stop talking because all you can see is this vision. Because is it transmitting stuff to you? The stone, the, the quartz, it's just like a computer. The silica in the stone remembers everything around it. You come along and you connect with it, whether physically or through telepathy. You download the information and then you start writing about it. And you go, well, I can't just say this in a book. I've got to back this up with facts. And then you spend a year researching the local history. And it's right there. So the stone gives you the information. You then go and double check it. And it actually conforms to the local folklore. And boom, now you've got the backup to what you've just seen. Uh, it's, this is why they did this, uh, this stuff, is because these stones are like mnemonic devices. They record everything. And that's why the Egyptians, like for the core of the pyramids, the stones didn't come nearby. They came 400 miles from down the Nile, and now we know why. They were very specific about this natural you technology. They have the right kind of stone. Yeah, Kill the, Martin Glen, what is that? Kill Martin Glen is beautiful. It was very important for the Templars who put one of their three main sites when they escaped to Scotland. It's also one of the oldest places uh, in the Scottish mainland. So as the weather is changing, the cultures are moving off the islands now into the mainland of Scotland. It has some of the oldest uh, sacred sites in mainland Scotland and also the greatest concentration. So there are, there's a whole valley and a whole plain just full of mounds, passage chambers. And yes, they've got burial sites there as well. And the biggest concentration of rocks, which are carved with all manner of spirals and like uh, circles and ripples and little cups and marks. And it's, it's as though it was a place for understanding the stars because you go there and, and stand next to these big stones and you look up at the sky and the, the stone, you think they're, they're trying to tell you something about the sky here. There's nothing written about this. It's a complete mystery. Right. But the original one, the, the, the precursor to these stones, it's actually in Sardinia in the back of a bed and breakfast. Still standing there for this very day. Let's get a very close-up experience from the Ring of Brogar from Matthias de Stefano, who talks about it. I went to the stones and I put just a side of one of the stones, like if each one of the stones were a person, and I felt part of that circle. And um, I heard a voice in between the stones saying, we are here to, to watch you. And I said so where do i belong and they said in the center so i started to walk to the center of the stones and i got to the middle of it and suddenly i kind of accepted that i had to be in the center so i am the center and suddenly the stones started to say every circle has a center without a center there's no circle without a circle there's no center so you are never alone, and your work is with the team, but the team is to surround you. The team is to hold everything to be a sphere, and you mark the center. Where do we go? I am. When I said this, something in me started to see every one of my lives, and every one of the stones became each one of me, of myself, staring at me, not other people. It was just my my soul watching at me, and every stone was one of my lives. And I saw all of them, and um, and they start to come 
to me and becoming me and saying, we are the circle that holds who you are. So don't expect for others to be in that circle. We are that circle that puts you in the center. So it was very healing that moment in which my soul kind of let itself die from all the weight that it was waiting for being in the center for other people, like the responsibility of being seen by others. But they said the only ones from which you have to feel that you are being seen is ourselves, which is yourself in different timelines. Freddie, it sounds like he had uh, some kind of epiphany with the stones too. The good thing about these very out-of-the-way places which take effort to get there, cost a fortune to fly there, and then you get bad weather when you get there, yeah. um, is the fact that, and this is very specific, uh, not just of Orkney, but even more specific of the Isle of Lewis. Uh, we have some stone circles, which unless you know how to read a map, you won't find them. And they're some of my favorite places because they've been totally unaffected by war, human folly of any other kind of problem. So if the stones remember everything, Almost they do. Pristine. You just go to these places and it's like you're meeting your family. I mean, I can't even tell you how I never get bored looking at these things. I've taken people on tour there and it's hard to peel them off the stones. They literally become part of the stone. And I watched them change literally within a week and they become completely different people. It's like they recognize who they are, what they're doing here. But it's a very personal journey. It's so, and my advice is, Go in there expecting nothing. If you go there expecting something to happen, it won't happen. Go in there with an open mind and ask a question. For example, my, my usual one is, what's this really about? Because my purpose is to be a teacher to others. I have to know sure. my trade in order to be a good teacher to somebody else. So I just say, what is this about? And then there'll be one stone that, like all of them, they'll just stand out. And they'll say, come over here. I'll go, really? Freddy. And I go, Freddy. Um, I'm not sure they even know my name, but, uh, and I'll go and stand there. I just put my back to the stone. And before I realize it, and now it's disappeared, I, I think that I've been standing next to the stone for five seconds. And then I'm just writing everything down. This is really incredible stuff. And it leads on to another year of research. I mean, it's a great location in which to really just download information. And uh, you don't even have to believe it. I, I don't anyway believe this. I want you to go and experience it for yourself. Uh, because this, this is why the places were built. And there's one in Lewis, but I'm, that I'm very specific about, Ken, called Ken Hulvig. Uh, its original name in Armenian means the place of seeing. And it's the most important stone circle in the whole island. And that's where the priests used to go to do their vision quests. And that's why they gave it their name. Magical. And that's why you go to these places to have this interdimensional experience. Freddie, where can people see your documentary and get your books? Well, they can go on Gaia. They can go on my website in invisibletemple.com. And uh, you'll be there for a long, long time. Eight books, 14 documentaries. And uh, there's another one in the pipeline somewhere. Never a boring moment. How would you rate that area of Sardinia compared to other places on the planet? Uh, original. They're all completely original. Sardinia stands up by itself because it's one of the highest concentrations of most ancient DNA in the whole of Europe. And its connections to Armenia extend the, the, uh, the story even further back into prehistory. So it's part of another developing, eye-opening series in this quest to try and find out what the ancients were up to. Super. Freddie, thanks for being on Beyond. Always a pleasure. These mystical areas are truly remarkable, much more than one would ever expect. I'm George Norrie, and thanks for watching Beyond Belief.
All right. Now we're going to, this is going to be the last piece tonight. But I'm going to play maybe a little bit of something musical, something I hear still toying with what. But uh, this is called the Pleiadians. And uh, from the Hopi, the Mayans, and the Cherokee. To the Hawaiians, Egyptians, and Maori. Explore why so many ancient cultures of Earth depict detailed connections between our ancestors and the Pleiadians. Experts, researchers, and experiencers offer their testimonies linking lost civilizations such as Atlantis and Lemuria with long-forgotten truths of the Pleiades and Earth. Discover the similarities between humans and Pleiadians. And we have all the friends here. William Henry, Adam Apollo, Ricardo Gonzalez, Corpanco, Matthew LaCroix, J.J. Hertek, Ph.D., double Ph.D., Ph.D., Matthias State Stefano, Dale Harder, Sarah Breckman, Cosme, and Lana Morrow. Here we go. This is 32 minutes. system in our galaxy has been connected to more ancient sites and cultures than the Pleiades star cluster. Mythologies describe beings from the Pleiades who traveled to Earth through stargates known as pathways, where upon their arrival, they influenced and advanced civilization for the humans of that time. What is the Pleiadian influence in the continuation of our evolution? as humanity looks to the stars and life beyond our world. In the northern sky in December, people can readily pick out the Pleiades. You can find the three belt stars of Orion. Just follow that line, you're going to see a cluster of seven stars called the Seven Sisters or the Pleiades. Now, the thing about it is, is that to our naked eye, we don't see seven stars. But yet the Pleiades are called the seven sisters or the seven doves, and it's always the number seven. And people are like, well, how come I can only see six? The seventh star is a shell star that has varying degrees of brightness. And astronomers have calculated 
the, the last time we could very clearly and distinctly see seven stars in the Pleiades was 100,000 years ago. Astronomers suggest that is the beginning of all these stories about the Pleiades being the seven sisters, that it goes back that long. So are they saying Pleiadians have been coming to Earth for 100,000 years and, and telling us about, about their home world? You can argue that that is what they are saying, and that is very interesting and to suggest that they have been part of this vastly ancient race or a race that has been here for this very vast period of time and been influencing human affairs. The Pleiadians have been coming to Earth for a very long time. We have records of connection to the Pleiades going back to prehistory. When we look at civilizations like Lemuria, which is often described as a seafaring civilization that used the stars to travel and track and move, we find so many links to the Pleiadian star system that stayed present in Polynesian cultures all the way through to the Maori and the Hawaiians and the South Pacific Islanders. One of the most important structures at Machu Picchu is the Torian. Now this is a tower that's actually built into the living rock that would seem to have been of great astronomical importance. There are these two windows, trapezoidal windows, and this was seen to have been very specifically placed so that you could watch the Pleiades and the Pleiades would seem to have been a crucially important constellation in Incan and pre-Incan tradition. We should also think about and remember the legends of the Hopi Indians. In this case, they are also speaking about the gods of the Pleiades with good intentions. Specifically, those beings that had saved their ancestors from a great catastrophe that happened in the Pacific Ocean. According to them, these beings were called Kachinas, and they came in these flying shields. It is said that they rescued these people from a land called Kashara to take them to different parts of the Americas. I could also quote the Mayan legend that mentions that through a hollow pathway, almost like a hollow serpent, our ancestors came to the Americas. One of the ancestral legends speaks about this story. For example, in my country, in Peru, there is a very special and ancient temple called Chavín de Huantar. And this temple that is about 3,000 years old contains a great rock, a great altar called Choque Chinchay, which has several holes which appear to represent the Pleiades star system. Priests of this cave would observe these holes filled with water almost like mirrors reflecting the Pleiadian star system. The Pleiades star system is one of the largest star clusters we know of, consisting of over 800 stars. And it's found roughly 444 light years from Earth, quite a distance away. But the influences that seem to come there are found around the world. One of the really interesting things we find when we look at these descriptions of these indigenous groups, whether it's the Maya of Mexico or the Hopi of the Southwestern United States, 
is that they describe a specific planet in the Pleiades star cluster known as Mai. And when you look at the connections with the name Maya, many researchers believe that based on the name, they were creating their civilization in the image of the Pleiades on Earth with the Maya civilization. In East Tennessee, it's the home of the Cherokee Indians. And Cherokee Indian storytellers were given permission to publish Cherokee creation mythology for the first time. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially the Cherokee believe they were created by the Pleiadians, who were beings of light, who rode a sound wave through a hole in space over East Tennessee and created the Cherokee as guardians of a vortex. Now, that's a very elaborate creation mythology and very specific. It describes that the types of beings the Pleiadians were, beings of light, how they traveled the stars on sound waves, their purpose for coming here to establish an earth vortex or outpost, the creation of the Cherokee as guardians of that vortex, that's profound. There are other First Nation tribes that describe relationships with the Pleiadians, including the Hopi, and also the Hawaiians. The original religion of the Hawaiian people was all orientated towards the Pleiades and the recognition that their kings could travel on rainbows to and from the Pleiades. So that's another story that has to be vastly ancient as well. Many believe that the Hawaiian islands are the remnants of a lost civilization called Mu. And it may well be that the Hawaiians are recalling these ancient myths about their progenitors that go back to that distant time in Earth history. I had the opportunity as a geologist, anthropologist in country of Bolivia many years ago to receive gifts from the indigenous. And these were stones that had embedded within it small little gold leaf geometries showing the outline of the Pleiades. So perfectly were the gold leaves put in using a type of different technology that I'm not acquainted with that would suggest that these were gifts from the Pleiadian representatives who would appear to the indigenous, not only the peoples of Bolivia, but the Koji peoples of Colombia in the north, even the Shavanti peoples from the south of Brazil. These stones illustrated the cooperation of the seven stars, seven sisters of the Pleiades. If Pleiadian beings have been visiting Earth for perhaps hundreds of thousands of years, could they have also been participating with humans at the level of our DNA? Some unknown thousands of years ago, a group of extraterrestrials arrived here. And that was not coincidence. Because again, long before, millions of years ago, they created life simply by infecting certain region of their Milky Way with DNA. They knew exactly that only on planets which are similar than the one they can, some life would be evolved. So they knew in advance that they will come to Earth and they will 
find forms of life. And one of these forms of life was our ancestor. They simply took one example of it, took one simple cell and changed the DNA in the cell. This cell grows, multiply, and then they put it into the womb of a female of the same species. This female, after a certain amount of months, will give birth to a child. The child has definitely the evolution of the parents. Pleiadians are playing a role with humanity in evolution, partly because they are genetically related to human beings. But that being said, it is not all genetic material from Pleiadian race. As human beings, there is approximately 12 different genetics that are laced throughout humanity. Keys of Enoch tell us that the Pleiades represent representatives from the various star kingdoms in the heavens that came together as an association. And they were responsible primarily for the upgrading of civilization on this planet. According to the Keys of Enoch, the Pleiades are the cradle as well as the throne of human civilization. That is to say, in the reconstruction of the genetic tracks of where we are, the Pleiades represent the foundation. Pleiadians exist as both physical and non-physical beings. While some researchers report that the majority of Pleiadians visiting Earth are non-physical, some Pleiadians occasionally present themselves within our three-dimensional reality. What we know about their civilization and their origins tends to be learned mostly from contactees or those who channel information. There are some people who feel that their DNA has been activated to have a conscious memory and association as being Pleiadian themselves. As with former NASA engineering technician, Dale Harder, who relates to a group from the star Tigeta called Tigetan Pleiadians. The skin color of Tigetan Pleiadians is like a white or Caucasian, a light tan. Their eyes can be blue, they can be hazel, and sometimes a brown. They have brown hair or auburn, and they also have blonde hair. The women are very striking, exceptionally beautiful, and the men are very striking. They're muscular, tall, very attractive in that regard. They typically range anywhere from six and a half to seven and a half, or even up to eight feet. The Pleiadians are tall, and they have blue or green eyes. They're pinned up at the ends, almost cat-like. You can still see humans today with resemblance of a Pleiadian. There are a lot of people born with blonde hair. And if you think of the very early humans, they did not have blonde hair. They had dark skin, dark eyes. So this is just a hybridization program that has been going on for a while and has created different color skin, different color eyes, and you can see the traits running through our culture. In ufology, the Nordic aliens or the Pleiadians are considered to be the tall blondes. Some think they're seven to eight feet tall. 
since the 1950s when George Adamski claimed to have a contact with these Nordic beings, the Pleiadians have always been presented as these sort of benevolent beings, very loving beings, nurturing towards humanity. The Pleiadians are always associated with magical ideas of love and unity, and that is like their hallmark. We could perhaps extrapolate from that 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 is what Pleiadian civilization is like. Now, the Pleiadians, they might not all be tall blondes. There could be multitudes of races, even reptilian beings living in the Pleiades star system. But yet we try to make them all unified, that there's only one way that these beings can be portrayed when, in, the, in fact, the reality is completely different. According to Tigetan Pleiadian Swaru, who's set to communicate with specific humans here on Earth, there are a variety of species living throughout the Pleiades constellation. Around the star Tegeta, we find the Tegetan people. And these people also look very similar to the Scandinavian people on Earth. They're similar in size, a stature, build, color of hair, and even eyes to Earth humans. But the Tegetan women can be distinguished by their strong cheekbones and the finely chiseled physical and facial features. Around the star Alcyone, we find the Yenna people. They look like Caucasian Earth humans in size, stature, build, color of hair, and eyes. But yet, some Yenna are light beings who only take physical form when they want to. Around the star Electra, we find the Engen people. The Engens look very similar to the Tigetans, as both races have that Scandinavian look to themselves. But the Engen women have rounder and heavier features that are less defined than Tigetan women. Around the star Maya, we find the Maya people, which might be connected to the Maya and Hopi people on Earth, because they look just like human beings, but they stand a little bit bigger and a little bit taller than Earth humans, and they do have that reddish skin that looks very similar to the Maya people on Earth. When we look to the stars Pleona, we find the Salation people. The Salation people look also just like Caucasian Earth humans, but they're a bit taller with well-proportioned features, and their hair is extremely blonde. Though the Salation people look human, they do have a bit more of an alien appearance with a much whiter skin to them. As we explore the star Asteropa, we find the Alohi people. The Alohi are bipedal with two arms and two legs, just as you expect, but their skulls are elongated and larger than humans. They have the ability to transcend their physical form to become light beings, and using the power of their mind, they have the ability to create physical objects. Around the star Celiano, we find the Celestes, or what people call them the Blue Pleiadians. The Celiano are a subspecies of the Andromedans. This means that they are humanoid, but with clear blue tint to their skin. As we get to the star Maropa, we find the Hyadian people, which are a feline race. The Hyadian race of Maropa look just like the bipedal felines that we know as the Urma. They look like lions or tigers, but they stand about nine feet tall, and because of their way their bodies are built, they can be biped or quadruped as it suits them. Around the star Atlas, 
we find the Atlantis people. These are humanoid giants. Their skin is copper-colored, and their eyes can be blue, green, or brown. Around the star Steropa, we find the Sauk, which are a sauroid type of people. These are unlike any other reptilian type people because they're positive and they work well with other human beings. They are bipedal reptilians, but they're warm-blooded and they can maintain their own internal temperature. And interestingly enough, like other reptiles, they do lay eggs. A lot of my clients will remember being a Pleiadian. They go through the forgetfulness that we all do when we come into this 3D reality. But there are many people that if they did a hypnotic regression would realize that they have deep ancestry in the Pleiadian star system. Orbiting around Tigeta is a planet called Era. It has been reported by some researchers and contactees that Era is the home world to some Pleiadian races. It's slightly smaller than Earth and has a lot of trees and forests, mountains and streams. Everybody exists basically to help one another, to serve one another. And everybody is involved in what they love to do. So whether you're an artist or you're a musician or you build ships, it all contributes to the whole. And what you do is based not only for betterment of yourself, but in service to someone else or others. We have basically a matriarchal society with about 75% female, 25% male. There's never any problem. There's no competition. There is no greed. There is no being taught to compete with your neighbor or anyone else. None of that exists. Cities are ultra-modern in form and function. The people from Pleiades are actually high vibrational beings that could see future, past, present, and kind of guided the rest of the people in the galaxy to create the confederation. So they go beyond the systems, beyond the idea of, of having politics, of having structures like pyramids and stuff. They are trying to work with the inner systems. So they work with our chakras, with our emotions, with our soul. Because they are in the fifth dimension, most of them just take the shape of what we expect for them to be. So they are familiar to us. They don't eat, they don't have this relationship with the matter as we do. That's why they can transcend the matter and they can shape as they wish, because basically they are using light and they can mold the light by thinking. That's why they look like these perfect beings, but it's because we project on them this perfection. According to what witnesses you are speaking to, we will find many different perspectives in terms of contact with the Pleiadians. It is important to analyze and be discerning of all the information because, in some cases, they appear to be very scientific and observant, 
such as what was told from the alleged Pleiadians to Illy Edward Meyer. They stated we are not spiritual guidance counselors for humanity. We are simply more evolved beings with different science that are observing without interfering. However, this image of the Pleiadians changes when it comes to the channelings. This becomes more an image of spiritual guidance counselors, which even give to humans methods of meditation and raising consciousness. Let me remind you that the Pleiades is a large constellation with many different planets. There are beings that speak about contact with beings from the star Tegeta, where others speak about contact with beings from the Maya star. And including that, extraterrestrials have shared with us names that are unknown to us about different stars in the Pleiades. I could add that these beings that tend to have a human aspect, that have good intentions with us, and have attempted to provide us useful information, It is easy to assume that Pleiadians mastered space travel long ago. Whether using technologies to manipulate time or open portals to access our space and dimension, what we know about their technology comes primarily through contactees. Dale Harder suggests that he is a human avatar for one of the Tigetan Pleiadians on board a ship in Earth's orbit. He explains part of the Tigetan technology. It's been asked to me how we have the technology, how we actually build our craft as a craft builder, as a designer and so forth myself. We work with what's called polymorphic metals. And these metals are designed such that they can change shape under certain influences like magnetic fields and gravitational fields and so forth. So we will take a design or a part of a ship or even an entire hull of a ship. We will take that AI, we will instruct it, this is the shape of the ship that we want. Take the polymorphic material, put it into a specific magnetic field and gravitational field, and it makes a particular template of that ship. So then that hull becomes a single piece. Now, up to that point, it is transmutable. And after we give the instruction, then that polymorphic material retains its shape. Now, the ships are self-healing. That means if it takes a hit or it's damaged in some form, it will heal itself. It has a memory. And the AI that controls the ship, that AI then instructs the ship, return to this, do this, do that. So they can heal themselves and return to normality very quickly. We use crystalline reactors to power the engines. In the case of the cruiser, we have a minimum of four engines, four crystal reactors, and they are producing enormous amounts of power. These reactors have a little device shaped like a Merkaba. This Merkaba and thousands and thousands of them are set inside a gravitational and electromagnetic field so as these toroidal fluids are moving, all of these Merkabas are traveling. Then this thing is assembled like an onion, and it has layers. And each layer is moving as the toroid. They're all reinforcing and, and reenacting the field for each other. 
And then the energy is extracted from this reactor as free energy, and it's then channeled to do the work. In the fourth dimension, in order to travel through time, you need a lot of gravity. So gravity in between planets, the core of a planet, when you manage that gravity, you can basically bend time. What is the influence of the Pleiadians on humanity going forward into the future? According to these researchers that have done channeling work into these groups from the Pleiades star systems, they describe how they became involved in humanity at different stages of time. And their interest in our story was that if something were to happen to us and we weren't able to achieve the next stage of where we're going consciously and as a society, that they may be directly affected. The main goal of Pleiadian people is to become seeds of creation for planets that are becoming aware. So they are the main people that can download what is being created in the sixth dimension into the third dimension. Basically, they say, if all creation comes from the sixth dimension to the third dimension, that means that the third dimension can also be able to modify the sixth dimension and to create a new reality. Their agenda is to help each one of these worlds that are in the process of evolution to become the creators of their own reality. So the Pleiadians are the only ones that can teach us and show us how to connect with that inner truth that other species cannot. So listening to them and connecting to them would be the best option for us today. As we are so close to the Pleiades, you can see why a, a civilization like that would want to keep an eye on us. Because what we do on our planet could have dramatic effects on their star system. So they are coming here, infiltrating, trying to guide, make sure that, that we don't do anything stupid, I think is their number one imperative. Regarding the Pleiades, I believe they're 444 light years away. That's some distance to travel uh, every day to go to work. And so I'm not sure where they're living. Maybe they have a bungalow out at Area 51 or some other place. I'm not joking about that. Maybe they have facilities for these ET races to live here. They come from another planet. They might have special needs. They might have to breathe different atmosphere, eat different foods. And so there may be something that they require to survive, environmentally speaking. And so we might have to accommodate them in some special way. The Pleiadians are very benevolent beings and always available to help. And anytime you need them or want anything from them, all you have to do is ask and they will communicate with you. When we are at the point in our evolution where extraterrestrials will walk amongst us, you will see a lot of Pleiadians. I think there's a strong ongoing influence that the Pleiadian culture has here. 
And we need it right now because we're in a stage of humanity trying to open up to the diversity of our people, starting to recognize that we're not all one way. We're not all one race. We're not all one belief system, but we are many different kinds of people with many different kinds of origins, many kinds of cultures. And the Pleiadians teach us to flow like water. How can you embrace whatever container you're in? How can you accept and absorb anyone's energy as part of you and recognize that we're part of one living human family together? They're very invested in us succeeding and very protective of us because they have a goal. And the goal is to preserve this planet and to preserve us as advanced DNA structure. Because very soon we'll be working on our DNA as portals. And once we grow to the next level of consciousness and awareness, we'll be able to utilize that to travel through multiverses with effortless consciousness and awareness. In my contact experience, the missing pieces are the other cultures that come together, each contributing an aspect of the star system we would call the Pleiadian system in terms of the synthesis of the seven working together. Is the sign, is the symbol, it is the substance of beings that are now appearing on the North American reservation, particularly the Hopi, that come from the Pleiades that would be one of the great stories of contact in the 21st century. The way-showers, the avant-garde will come largely from that region we call the Pleiades. These will be our cosmic counterparts and the indigenous traditions will be vindicated. We will understand the rainbow colors of the rainbow nations of the great bridge that will be built between heaven and earth as we ourselves become the musical instruments of ascension. The Pleiadians have long been considered a source of influence upon human evolution, from influencing our DNA to having close relationships with our world's indigenous peoples. As we look to the future with our current understanding of quantum entanglement, the limitations of time and space give way to the possibility of instant communication throughout the universe. And with that, we can look forward to a more developed understanding about our galactic cousins as they share their intelligence, compassion, and spiritual wisdom in a new era of expanded awareness and communication from beyond this terrestrial world. Join us next time when we cover one of the more controversial species in the galaxy, the reptilians. was very good um please forgive us for the extra little yodels in between uh there's nothing we can do about it um windstream our 
internet service provider just said that that was the highest speed that we could get, and it doesn't seem to doesn't seem to cut it sometimes, mm-hmm. does it? So uh, I think it was fluid enough for us to get the gist. Thank you for all of this time that we spend together. Um, mm. I think our sister Aurora Ray from our Galactic Ambassador mm-hmm. is right there. Next story here. She's all connected in, so here we go. <gasps> the benevolent. <clears throat> the this is for today, twenty second. Although it's the twenty third, where Rainbird is, and mm. all you East Coasters, the benevolent extraterrestrials walk among us, live among us. They live in our cities, swim in our pools, eat in our restaurants, and hang out in our parks, our malls. Etc. They grow up like another kid in the neighborhood, right next door to you. They go to your schools and play on your soccer teams. Their ongoing agenda, like most humans, is to help with peacefully help and to peacefully coexist with mankind. We got all kinds of help, folks. We have. Uh, as Don Juan said, we've been kind of playing the stupid card along the way here. <laughs> but this is very, very hopeful, everybody. A benevolent extraterrestrial civilization is essentially peaceful and whose intentions for communicating with us are positive. We live in exciting times where it seems that we are on the cusp of contact with benevolent beings from other worlds. There is more disclosure happening every day. And many credible people are coming forward with what they know. There is no doubt that extraterrestrials exist. As you try to get in touch with them using the traditional aerospace technology found at NASA, you are unlikely to get an answer. (laughs) And as you are lucky enough to get through, it is because they want you to be able to do that. Many people have had encounters with ETs and trying to find ways to communicate with those beings. We might best prepare for any ETs we might encounter as we create an open-minded and benevolent attitude toward them. They may be like us or like nothing we can imagine, and that's the mystery and the excitement of it all. As we develop and expand our own consciousness and open ourselves up to more and more of the energy and information that surrounds us, we become more sensitive and aware. And as our consciousness is raised, 
so are our vibrational energies. Our worry, our stress, our anger, our frustration, our sadness, etc. are all manifestations of low vibrational energies. We are bombarded with low vibrational energies every day from the news media, from the internet, etc. So, it's important for us to raise our vibrational frequencies by clearing out all, all that is negative. By doing this, we then open up the opportunity for higher vibrational beings to interact with us in ways that may not have been possible before. The easiest way to be part of the solution is to love, to teach, to give a positive contribution so we can easily change the dark to light ratio. As we can do that, then we will connect with benevolent aliens who will help us. And that is the greatest obstacle for humanity. People do not like to work on themselves so they could elevate themselves into a higher place of being. Hmm. It's a counterproductive Whoops. <coughs> it's a counterproductive state of being because the only thing... Okay. All right, now, let's see, um, Don, if we can uh, monitor this because when Rainbird comes on, somehow we hear extraterrestrial sound. <laughs> it, it just for a little assistance. Okay. Um. Okay, thank you. Um, how could we, as race, eradicate the shadows of the world we are living in as we cannot even work through our own shadows? It is the unwillingness of humanity to step out of their comfort zone and do the necessary self-work that made it crucial for star seeds to incarnate in this planet, on this planet, in the masses. There's a loving extraterrestrial community trying to help us save lives and change this world for the better. They do not force themselves on humans. Rather, they walk alongside us as friends, as caregivers, as teachers, as a family, as guides, as travelers, as human beings, as starseed. <coughs> Excuse me. They live among us, right here on planet Earth, yet they live in another dimension of reality. <coughs> Excuse me. And they are trying, as they will, 
there trying to help us ascend to their level of consciousness so that we can be at peace with ourselves and with our world. Yet they are not here to harm us. They are not here to attack us. They are not here to judge us. And as they do, it is for our own good. These beings are here with the divine purpose of helping us. Helping us understand, understand, overstand who we truly are. What is our purpose? What is it? that we can afford this world, that we can, excuse me, that we can offer this world. There is much fear, confusion, and resistance in the world regarding these things, regarding these beings. I'm going to take a little drink, everybody. Just... Thank you for your patience. <laughs> um, yes, there is much fear, confusion, and resistance in the world regarding these beings. Whether you feel them, see them, or know them in your intuition, they are here for us in one form or another. As you are open to them, their assistance is in in helping us on our spiritual paths. Stress, fear, and panic are the worst enemies of subtle intuition, wisdom, and faith. The best way to connect meaningfully with this universe and its many inhabitants and to be at peace with ourselves is through deep, prayer, and meditation. That is the key. Prayer and meditation connect us with benevolent ETs or angels, with the divine, and with our own deepest selves, and sets us free. Prayer is not just a tool, an exercise to begin and end your day. The prayer is an act of love. It is letting the light within you shine into the world and allowing the love that is inside of you to radiate back. The angels who come into our lives help us, help us heal our conscious and unconscious wounds, overcome our fears and obstacles, and most important, connect with the divine. The benevolent ETs care about us, like us. They care what happens to us. They want us to be happy. One of the ways they can help us is by helping us connect with them. Prayer allows us to do this. Prayer connects us with them. Many people have had an encounter of some kind. They might have had frightening visions or they might have had a vision of angels or aliens. Often they report feeling touched by something that transcends them. 
one reason people report this reaction is that it often comes as a shock. People in our culture are taught to fear the other. And angels and aliens are the other. Many think of angels as aloof, unreachable. They think of aliens as scary creatures that want to use us and hurt us. Do not fear them. Do not give in to the ego that wants to keep your knowledge of them away from you. The ego thrives on fear and hatred, yet benevolent ETs are love. As they first come to us, they can seem scary because they seem foreign to us. Yet do not be afraid of them. Angels and aliens are not aliens. <laughs> they were born with us and want us to know that they are here to help us. And we are not alone. To connect with them, we need to accept that they are here to help us. We need to trust ourselves. Another option is to visualize ourselves, interacting with them, to visualize connecting with them. Close your eyes. Imagine that you are floating upward, out of your body, and into a space where there is no time, where you cannot, where you can connect, excuse me, with anything. You can visualize angels and aliens, or your own spirit, or your spirit connecting with your guides. You don't have to believe anything. You don't have to believe you are immortal or that you are connected to something. It is enough that you turn the page, turn the slowly page, That you are connecting in your heart. Now, ask yourself, what do you want to connect with? When you connect with something, one of two things can happen. First, you can feel some kind of energy or warmth or light. Second, you can ask for some kind of help or guidance. The more called benevolent ETs, the more we open the channel to connect with them. This visualizing and focus on connecting with them is ultimately what allows us to make miracles happen in our everyday lives. The angels are and benevolent ETs who surround us are around us all the time. Yet we don't notice them. We notice our own thoughts our own desires, our own fears. They know us better, better than we know ourselves. Feeling connected to them, we open our hearts. As our hearts open, our fears and attachments fall away. Our fears and attachments fall away. As our hearts open, we become more and more, more and more able to hear them, 
as our hearts open, we become more able to know ourselves. The benevolent ETs, sometimes they appear as shimmering, flaming, winged feature figures with halos. <clears throat> with halos of light surrounding their heads. And other times, as unhurried, unobtrusive people who are more at home in the landscape than in the sky. Sometimes people report a sensation of awe, the presence of something sacred, or the feeling of being loved. And at other times, they simply report having felt at peace. Sometimes what they bring is a sense of direction. Sometimes reassurance and sometimes help. People touched by ETs are given a vision or an idea or some kind of guidance. This guidance may be a matter of finding a clue to a future problem that had previously been hidden or of discovering truths of the world. Sometimes they appear to give advice. Sometimes they transmit a blessing. Invariably, people touched by ETs are expected to find the courage to act on their new understanding. At first, it seems impossible to connect with benevolent ETs. You imagine them like Santa Claus. You wait all year for Christmas Day. Then after waiting all your life, Christmas Day never comes. Yet actually, benevolent ETs are among us all, all the time. They live in our genes, our families, our friends, our schoolmates. They are in our churches, our synagogues, our temples, our mosques. They are our teachers, our doctors, our lawyers, and ourselves. They walk among us, live among us. You cannot tell them apart from your neighbors, even as you tried. They live in our cities, swim in our pools, eat eat in our restaurants, and hang out in our parks, in the malls, etc. They grow up like another kid in the neighborhood, right next door to you. They go to your schools, play on your soccer teams. Nobody notices them because we run in different circles. And we walk around in our own little worlds, isolated from each other, and only communicating, only communicating in the limited way we understand each other. Their ongoing agenda, like most humans, is to help and peacefully coexist with mankind. They are here for us because they love us, even though we do not always share their values, their ethics, because of the way we have evolved on this planet. They will not impose on us anything 
we did not approve of. They are vast, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. They know everything. They judge nothing. They don't need our help. The benevolent ETs are transcendent. They are beyond us. They inhabit a realm that is beyond our imagination. Our ability to imagine them is limited by our imagination. And they inhabit a realm that transcends imagination. To connect with them is to connect with ourselves. We connect with them to connect with ourselves. We love you dearly. We are here with you, and we are your family of light. Aho, Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Okay, and we have another ambassador with us, and her name is Rainbird. And again, we have this emerald serpent feathered one with us on this talking stick. Uh, another name for this one is Sanaka Kumara, right, Rama? Or Tahuti in Atlantis, or Katumi in Egypt. And yeah. And uh, also the angels and the fairies and the feathers and the rainbows and the crystals. And the Menahuni and the Sasquatch. And all the other beings uh, who are with us. We meet them every day. Rama was reading about the salamanders the other day. The fire element energy. And so it is. Here comes this talking stick. Did I miss anybody? Here it comes, Rainbird. Okay, I got it. Yeah, I think you can fall in there. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, Shady Jesus. It was a fun a fun day for sure. And lots of good stuff and um, yeah, and it's Earth Day and lots of celebrations with that and lots of gratitude. So thank you. Tara, thank you, Rama, and I'm handing this talking stick over to you, Rama. Here it comes. Okay. What you got for us, honey? This is Alan Watts. It all goes together. Alan Watts, it all goes together. Sounds good to me. Here we go. Well, the relationship between the organism and the environment is transactional. The environment grows the organism, and in turn, the organism creates the environment. The organism turns the sun into light, but it requires there to be an environment containing a sun for there to be an organism at all. And the answer to it is simply, they're all one process. It isn't that organisms by chance came into this world. Put it rather that this world is the sort of environment which grows organisms. It was that way from the beginning. Just in the same way, for, I mean, the organisms may in time have arrived in the seed or out of the seed later than the beginning of the seed. But from the moment it went bang in the beginning, that's the way it started. Organisms like us, us sitting here, were involved in it. You see, look here, let's take the, the propagation of an electric current. Though, uh, in, in the development of any physical system, there may be billions of years between 
the creation of the most primitive form of energy and then the arrival of intelligent life that in billions of years is just the same thing as the trip of the current around the wire it takes a little time but it's already implied it takes time for an acorn to turn into an oak but the oak is already implied in the acorn so in any lump of rock floating about in space there is implicit They all go together. So don't differentiate yourself and stand off against this and say, I am a living organism in a world made of a lot of dead junk, rocks and stuff. It all goes together. Those rocks are just as much you as your fingernails. You need rocks. What are you going to stand on? Our common sense has been rigged. see so that we feel strangers and aliens in this world and this is terribly plausible simply because it's what we're used to that's the only reason but when you really start questioning this say is that the way i have to assume life is I know everybody does, but does that make it true? It doesn't necessarily. It ain't necessarily so. And so then, you, as, as you question this basic assumption that underlies our culture, you find you get a new kind of common sense. It becomes absolutely obvious to you that you are continuous with the universe. For example, people used to believe that the people who lived in the antipodes would fall off. And that was scary. But then when somebody sailed around the world and we all got used to it and now we we travel around in jet planes and everything, we have no problem about feeling that the earth is globular. None whatever. We got used to it. Well, in a few years it will be a matter of common sense to very many people that they're one with the universe it will be so simple and then maybe if that happens we should be in a position to handle our technology with more sense with love instead of with hate for our environment So we got music? Yeah. Okay. We're going to know right now.
In der goldenen Morgenstund ziehen wir aus des Tales Grund und wir tanzen froh hinein in den frühen Sonnenschein. Hoch hinauf auf Bergeshöhen, um ins Auge Luft zu sehen, lasst uns feiern diese Zeit, die der Sommer Be with us all. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Um, 
lots to uh, look forward to. Have a wonderful sleep this evening, and we'll see you on the bridge. Sat Nam. Sat Nam Ki. Aho Mitakuyas. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil. Live long and prosper. Namaste, everybody. Namaste. Namaste.